at Cocoa Talk, we'd like to thank the patrons who sponsor our show. So our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Alan Murphy, Alan Huffman, Blair Ledoux, Bowden Aaron, Brendan Donahue, Brian Weasler, Karen Anscombe, D. Bruce Moore, Daniel Williams, Diego, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Vebke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Jason Downs, Ken Reichert, Kyle Etter, Mal Funk, Michael Pitsley, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Paul Thayer, Rick Eulin, Rob Inman, Stephen Wagner, Steve Batson, Steve Rasmussen, Terry Steen, Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tom C., Tom Heron, Tom S., and Tony C. Thank you ever so much, patrons. Coco Talk is an unscripted live broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own and not necessarily those of the Coco Talk show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds encourage, sense of humor recommended. If any off color comments were made, we're sorry. Hi, this is Dale Leader, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. This is Coco Talk the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calore computer. It's time to drop your socks, grab your real-time clocks, and let's rock. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world. Welcome to Kolkata, episode 235. Today we have the much-anticipated MT-10 special. How about MC-10? Empty 10, huh? <laughs> so, of course, this is the MC 10 special. So. Right. Uh, which also covers the Alice, which is a, a less well-known and, and bright red uh, that originally started as kind of a French clone of the MC 10. And then they you know, started expanding like the other things. So. Yeah, I want a red one. Red I don't have a red one. <laughs> so, anyway, we have a whole bunch of special guests on today. So, a big thank you to everybody. And it's from all over the world. We have people from you know, you know, the UK. We've got people from Europe. We've got people from Australia. We've got people from North America. So, this is a huge international panel. And, uh, <laughs> well, first, before we get into actually talking, everybody will be doing presentations. There'll be QAs after each where we can get questions from the live panel on the show right now. We get questions from the chat after each presentation, but I'll let Mark Bosley go around the table and introduce everyone first. Oh, gee, thanks. Hang on. I want to see how you pronounce names now after watching you mispronounce, you know, it's literally spelled for you, MC, so. <laughs> and it's on a script. <laughs> I was reading it off a script. 
Is that a bit uh, of a Freudian slip? Are you trying to make a dig on the MC10? No, not intentionally. No, okay. He's blaming the writers. <laughs> right. That's what you do. There we go. I mean, I, I even got a script I'm reading from. Uh, let's see who we got here. Um, on the regular panelists, uh, first up, we have Mark Overhoser. Hello there. Glad to be here. The uh, next is uh, Patrick Uland. MC Rickety Rick. Hello, folks. Okay. Hi. And Ken Waters, scorekeeper of the Game On Challenge. Hello, everybody. And our news correspondent, uh, L. Curtis Boyle. Well, everyone, I will mention, too, the Game Challenge this week was actually an MC10 game written by one of our guests today. Guess who? Uh, Slippy, you're up next. Greetings. We had an excellent uh, show this week on the Game On Challenge Live. Yeah, that's working out pretty good. And next panelist, uh, Jason Reichard. Hey, everybody. I've got my MC10. I've got my add-on from Ed Snyder, I'm, and I've got my composite kit. I'm all ready to go. Have you got the switcheroos ready for those yet? I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they need one. I got the Ed Snyder composite kit. I'm good. <laughs> I do want a red one, though. I got to get an Alice. Got to get an Alice. Match your shirt. Uh, Ron Delvo. Yes, from Arizona. Hey. Yeah, I wanted to know, um, does anyone know where the MC10 name came from? What's the 10 significance? Anyone? Anyone? I heard, I heard it's the, the, the uh, diagonal... Um, Width of the uh, machine looking down at it. I'll give a plug for next week's guest, Mark Siegel, because he was someone involved with the MC10 at Radio Shack at the time. We can ask him that question. All right. It was my first computer. Cool. All right. Uh, next up, Terry, Terry Stiggy. Hello, everybody. I've got my Alice and my MC10 going. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. Nick Parentes. And good day, everyone. All right. Special guest we have today, uh, Darren Ottery. You, I think you missed one. Good day. Uh, you missed Paul I, Thayer, alias Redbeard. Oh, I thought he was a special guest. <laughs> I am not. Okay. He's, he's not special <laughs> Hello, in any way. Everyone. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, special in you, a different way. Thank you. Yeah, you are special, Paul. We do special say guest. you're special, Paul. Yes, absolutely. Just <laughs> like my mom talk says, I'm it. special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on to our special guests. Go ahead, Mark. Okay. Uh, Darren Ottery. How you doing? Hello. Good, thanks. Good morning. All right. Uh, Greg Dion. Hello, hello. Right, Good to see you all. Uh, Jim Gary. Good day. And um, let's see. Uh, Robert, whose last name I do not know. <laughs> Sig. Sig, okay. Yeah. <coughs> How you doing? Good. How's it going? All right. And uh, we have uh, Alan Cox next. Hello. Hello. And last but not least, Redbeard. No, we did him already. Nope. <laughs> Simon Jonason. <laughs> this is why we need Stevie. I think you just How need to Simon. Simon. I think you just need to write it down. How's that working? I'm good. Not well. Thank you. 
<laughs> and this I, is this is a train wreck and a half, but here we go. <laughs> it always, it always gets to be a bit of a train wreck with this many guests on at once, especially when they're not regular viewers, because you know everybody's kind of introducing themselves to each other. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Curtis, why don't you take it away from here? <clears throat> oh, sure. Dump the dumpster fire in my lap. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, I'll, well, I'll figure out how to do co-host when I'm broadcasting it all across everywhere. <laughs> anyway, a big welcome to all of our guests here who have been uh, either MC10 people in the past, present, and future. Um, so we've got people here that have done you know, some hardware stuff. We've got a lot of software developers. We've got basic developers. We've got machine language developers. And um, basically, we're going to go through everybody's presentations, which will be kind of a, a retro history of what they've done with the MC10. And then in the end, I think we'll just ask some general questions like where do they think the MC10 is going now? What do they think of some of the new hardware stuff that's been advanced lately and some of the stuff that's coming out? Like I saw recently, on, I think we did on the news last week, that uh, Brendan Donahue is actually designing an extended vertical case for the MC10 so you can actually fit a Coco VGA in there and still have the cover on it. And uh, we'll try to get your opinions on what you think of some of all this new stuff. Like we've had discussions on the Coco side, like is Gimme X going too far? And now this is distorting the hobby type thing. And I want to get your points of view on that as well from the MC10 side of things. Because you guys have actually been doing, a, like the MC10 was, a, I think, a bit more stagnant. There was kind of a little burst here, like in the 2000s and stuff when Greg and some others brought out some games. Now, of course, Jim's been just a, a whirlwind of programs for years running now. Robert Sieg's done a ton of stuff the last while. But the, it seems to be the last couple of years, it's really picked up. And we've seen more and more development and uh, more and more interest in it, too. And I'll be first to be honest here that, you know, on Coco Talk, we kind of slagged the MC10 just kind of as an in-joke here for the first couple of years. But you guys have actually been advancing so much on the hardware and software like yourselves here that I can't honestly do that anymore with a straight face. So uh, kudos to all of you for, for keeping the flame alive and actually getting it burning brighter. A Canadian apologizing. I'm shocked. You've never had a straight face. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Anytime I poke fun at the MC10, it was always just in jest and not not serious, just just for fun. Don't worry yeah. about it. MC10ers feed off of that underdog <laughs> feel. Oh, do you want me to? I, I I I can I can I can do the over I can do the overdone joke. I can pull out the old doorstop and yeah. But it's been done. I'm <laughs> yeah, you know enough of that. Yeah. And to be honest, I've been very impressed with some of the stuff that's come out. So. Um, I, oh yeah, I there's some cool stuff. The the, the Pac-Man, I, I demo, I, I I make a point to bring my MC10 to the shows now, and it's like the MC10. I brought it to VCF Midwest, and you know I run that uh, ran the Pac-Man demo and had a lot of interest in it. It's it's a it's a nice little machine. It's uh it's been quite surprised. I've been surprised a bit by a bit, uh, quite a bit by it. Yeah, I think was it you that was demoing some of Simon Jonasson because he did some graphic demos and stuff on it too. I think that might have. That, I think that was someone else. Maybe that might have been Ron at a particular Coco Fest. I think he had some demos. Simon, or... do you remember? Because I know that was like you did some three D yeah, spinning. I did. Oh, that was Ron. Okay. Yeah, it was me. It, yeah, I think it, that was before I had a MC ten. Simon sent me stuff. Yeah, I did. The, I did the cube that blew Steve York away. Yeah. So, like I said, there's there's been a lot of stuff happening. So it's 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 no longer. I, I never. I don't think it ever really was completely stagnant, but it was more stagnant than it has been recently. It's definitely been picking up. So, and I think part of that's you know due to the COVID lockdowns because a lot of people have you know more free time or working from home, so they're, they're home more and they have more time for their hobbies. I know the Coco Worlds had a big explosion of it too. So, and, and a lot of other retro systems. I mean, that's retro computing in general at this point. Um, but yeah, and now that I mean. Um, Another update is like XWare by Kieran Anscombe, who created it for the Dragon 3264 and then you know, extended with the Dragon Elf and Beta and stuff. 
Then he added the Cocoa One Two stuff to it, and then he's recently added the Cocoa Three stuff, and now he's adding MC Ten native support to it too. So this is now going to be a super emulator for the entire Cocoa family. And yeah, now nice. for uh, for new people, what uh, is the processor in the MC Ten? Sixty-eight hundred three. And talking about Kieran, I just helped him this afternoon on Discord because I was going to show him a couple of my music demos and his um, emulation was wrong. So we fixed that as well. So he's, he's uploaded a new version. Yeah. Well, that's an ongoing project. I know he, he was trying some of the games, uh, like the machine language games. And I, last time I talked, which was a few days ago, he had one running and one wasn't quite running right. And that might have been the sound routines for all I know. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Yeah, he got them both fixed. And I also fixed his Coco 3 as well. Oh, cool. Anyway, without further ado, I think we'll get into the guests here and let them do their presentations because I know for some of them it's a it's a bad time to be up three in the morning type thing. So we might as well get very early or very late, depending on where you are. Yeah. So first up, we have Darren Ottery, who's in Australia, and we've had him on the show before. He was actually part of our um, virtual COVID fest, demonstrating some uh, MIDI stuff. Blue Monday. That was awesome. Yeah. So welcome back, Darren. For your, I think it's your second full-blown guest appearance on here. Yeah, and, thanks, uh, guys. Sorry we had to get you up at three in the morning. No, that's okay. <laughs> I can go back to bed. That's good. Sleep All right, anyway, proceed with your presentation, please, sir. Okay. Well, um, I thought that um, I'd try not to bore you guys for too long, but I want to take you back through um, uh, my early days with computers. Uh, the MC10 was my first computer. Um, as I'm sure it is for a lot of you. Um, so uh, just thought I'd um, walk you guys through that. So uh, basically, um, I used to um, hang out with my dad a lot in Tandy, um, uh, used computers at school, the Apple computers, um, but never had a computer of my own. Um, used to get the Tandy catalogs and uh, dream about this particular machine, but as you can see, for the pricing in Australia, it was just um, a bit just higher. Expensive. Wow. And yeah, it's even higher than the Canadian ones were, and we were a fair bit yeah. higher in the states. Yeah. So this is a this is actually a 1984 catalog. Um, so we used to get everything a little bit later than you guys, <laughs> but um, yeah, that that was just too much money for us. So uh, this is where I used to focus my attention in, in the catalog quite a bit. Um, but even at one ninety nine, wow, that was still a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but you can see from the awesome array of software available, there was four four <laughs> particular programs available. Um, <laughs> checkers game. I think I had them all uh, except math design. That sounded boring. Um, <laughs> but it was actually pinball that um, that that caught my attention when uh, when I finally got my 20K pack and, you know, you load up pinball and because and, the MC-10 doesn't do high-res graphics, but it does. Um, and, you know, even without any hardware modifications on a 20K machine, you could run pinball, which was kind of cool. Anyway, around about the same time, uh, I was reading this particular magazine. My parents had got me a subscription. I don't know if anybody remembers this series, but it was pretty cool. Um, and then finally it... Um, they had this, which was a little teardown of the MC-10, which was kind of cool. I mean, uh, the, the review wasn't exactly, um, you know, they weren't raving about it, but at the same time, there was some, they pointed out some really good things, including the really good color of the MC-10, which, you know, today, it's still one of the best looking 
um, color palettes, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, at the same time in Australia, I thought I'd show you these, which is cool because um, this is what we could um, subscribe to over here. Um, so I took out a subscription to Australian <laughs> Micro Magazine, which um, had a it was, I, I believe it was a lot of local content and a lot of reprints from American Rainbow at the time. Um, and finally, I got my computer, took out a subscription, and at that exact moment, the content for the MC10 just dropped off the chart. Computer was discontinued. And you can see now it's Australian Cocoa incorporating Australian Myco. Um, but nevertheless, I got published, which was kind of cool as a kid um, with my game Mycomania, uh, which I don't know who typed that in. It might have been Jim. I, I look, it just, I just found it one day on the internet, you know. I'm talking 20 years ago. Um, somebody must have typed it in from scratch. It wasn't me. But anyway, that was kind of cool to find it online. Uh, also, typing attack, the same issue. Um, and then that was pretty much it. Uh, I got one of these. And the MC10 was put into the closet. Uh, and then I got one of these. And then I got this. And I got this, this, this. And that was it for quite a for long second time. there. I thought you meant you got an island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. So then what? Well, I don't know. For me, uh, I reacquired a lot of gear, um, you know, 10 years ago and still didn't do much with it. But then um, this thing came along and, uh, you know, it will, for me, it was the MCX 128, but ultimately this guy the MCX32 SD, which has just completely transformed um, the use. I never really got into emulation, you know, like I, I did play around with it, but I just like using the real hardware. I like being able to use all the keyboard shortcuts on the MC10. I could type a listing out quicker than anybody I know that could type. So using the keyboard shortcuts, I thought that was a really good thing on the real hardware. Um, yeah, and that's, that's pretty much my journey. Um, I was going to show you guys um, just a couple of little things uh, that I've got on my computer here, um, but um, some of the, um, the stuff that I've done um, in the past. So like this is the file explorer that I wrote that I think a few of you have seen. Um, I might type in that. are going to get sound or not but um, yeah we're getting sound that's great so this was the first program i ever wrote um, for the mc10 um, which was typing attack So, Micromania. Aha. Oh. Uh -huh. There's two of them.
whenever I wrote programs, I always came across the same problem. Um, for me, if it couldn't run fast enough, I just gave up. I just, I just couldn't bear playing or writing programs that just wouldn't run quick enough to be um, entertaining. Um, I think that's where today I, look, I really like optimizing code. Like these are really these early programs for me were really um, sloppy programming. You if you looked at the listing, you'd just cringe. Um, but that was fourteen-year-old. So. Um, I like your launcher. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Uh, again, actually, it's a it's an exercise in just keep writing basic code until it works. <laughs> you know, it uses error trapping to try to, you know, if it can't find what you type in, it'll look for the next thing. Maybe it'll try a different extension to get around the basic versus ML. How do you run a basic program versus ML? So you don't have to type the extension; you can just type the the, um, the name. Um, and everybody dropship yeah so dropship i mean um i really liked how you could load um a whole screen from um, the mcx32 really quickly and i guess that's the inspiration of, of this if you think about what's going on in this game you're actually aside from the graphic backgrounds there actually isn't really a lot going on um, most of the animation is achieved uh, just by flipping the screen comma one to comma zero with that red and green annoying color but um you know really it's only a couple of moving aliens and uh, a little guy moving around the maze but um you know instead of having to draw the screen um you know it's just flipping it from a saved bunch of saved graphic screens on the mcx32 um yeah so that's that one and the last thing i was going to show you guys is something I'm working on now. This is really not even close to being finished. Um, it's initially called Dungeon Master, but um, I think that's been done before, so I, I think I'll call it something different when it's fixed. So that's kind of like what it's going to look like um, with a bit more information on the right-hand side for, uh, you know, power and, um, you know, treasures that you collect and things like that. But the, again, I just wanted it to look and work fast out of basic because I can't program in machine code. Everything has to be done in basic. Um, so I just wanted it to flip quickly. And I think I've got the engine working well enough so that it's going to be quite, um, yeah, quick enough to kind of keep everybody's attention. So yeah. That's pretty much it for me, guys. Are you using the stock basic or are you using any of the patches that have been introduced? This is so this is all um, this is all MCX um, 32 basic, um, the latest version. Um, no patches, just what, what comes out of the box when you turn it on. So that's the basic that Darren Atkinson did where he basically added extended basic for you know better want of a term for the MC ten yeah. with twenty K or higher expansions. Yeah, which suited me because it's almost exactly the same as Coco Basic, which is kind of where I sharpen my teeth uh, on basic programming. With a few exceptions, it's it's pretty much the same the same thing. Yeah. So your Pac-Man clone there that you had, how old were you when you wrote that? <laughs> Fourteen. Um, I'll, I'll be honest and say that I had a book called I think it was called 
creepy computer games. Um, it was one of those Osborne books, um, and it had it had uh, it had this thing where it just keep it kept uh, using um, a string equals you know a bunch of ones and zeros to make a map. So you'd go, you know, you you'd just yeah. build this map out of ones and zeros, and that got that got my brain thinking, you know, because I'm very visual, I can build myself a little map uh, and see it as I list, um, and that's. But the engine and everything, I, I just wrote myself. Um, yeah, it was cool. I, well, I just thought the uh, animation sequence for the death was really cool because yeah, I saw that wrapped around like Pac Man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean that's again that's that's the you know the, you know the MC10 of course could do uh, graphic characters in a in a program line, um, so it was really easy to do. You just you know a string one equals one frame, a string two equals a another frame and you, you run a four next loop and there's your, there's your ending. Yeah. Cause you guys can enter, this is different, different between Cocoa basic and MC 10 basic. You guys could actually see the graphical characters. You could type them right directly from the keyboard instead of character string, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so it was a lot really, easier to visualize and type those in than, than we had. Yeah. I really miss that. I really, really wish the Cocoa had that, but um, I mean, it had a lot of other things. Got a comment from Sixty Karen uh, Anscombe, uh, author of Xware in the, in the chat here says, now I like the dotted line visible through the door then I don't think most 3D basic engines would have drawn that, talking about your dungeon game. Yeah, and part of the challenge for that will be, so that's simulated at the moment, but, but um, you know, in order to do that, you've, of course, got to take your map beyond, um, you know, the room that you're in. So your current holding position within the map has to incorporate what's in front of you, what's in front of the, what's in front of the room in front of you, and so on, to make that work. So that's, that's kind of what I'm working on. Kind of kind of that now. Uh, yeah, I was picking up some noise right now, or is that just me? Yeah. It's that yeah, same it's mic issue. Mic. Now it sounds like a cell phone. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it's from Darren, apparently, whatever it is. Now it's overriding his mic. There's yeah. a giant mosquito coming for you. <laughs> Okay, well, luckily I'm at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks it looks good. It, it's nice to see some of the stuff you wrote as a kid and then actually got published, which, you know, not, not too many people can say from back in the day. I also wasn't aware that Australia actually had an MC10 devoted magazine for a while. I don't think we even have that in, in the States, as far as I know. Um, and then also seeing your new development, too. That dungeon game really looks interesting, I have to say. That's... Uh, that's pretty darn impressive. And Dropship, of course, was very impressive. We, we actually featured that very on the show. Fast. Oh, you're muted. Yeah, can you got me? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I just resetted my little switcher. Hopefully that fixed things. Um, yeah, it's always been my goal to, if it's not fast, it's it's not good. So I've written so much stuff that I just kind of can't, it, it, it's not playable enough for me. So, so that's, I get hung up on that all the time. Well, I got, a question. Yeah, I, I got a question for you concerning that. So we, there's a couple of things that, you know, some of the other guests will be talking about. So James Diffendaff, for example, has been optimizing MC10 Basic, <clears throat> and it's it's still ongoing. So he's, he's doing some stuff there. We've got these newer basics from Darren Atkinson to support some of the graphics and stuff. And then we've also got, you know, some basic compilers, which Greg will be getting into. Is that something you'd contemplate using, or do you still want to stay strictly in basic basic? It's a, it's a tough question because, I mean, 
I've moved on to MCX basic, right? And, and in my mind, I'm kind of going, well, not everybody has that stuff, you know, like, so you write something and what, well, you know, hopefully 20 or 30 people get to use it. Whereas if, if I wrote for like Jim does, you know, he wrote, writes code for, you know, a stock MC 10 quite a lot. And I like that because hundreds of people get to use it. So the question about optimizing it, um, I'd like to think that that's something that I guess through emulation, you know, I, I, as long as people get to use it and experience it. Um, so I guess if, if the emulators can make it work, then that's good, right? But, yeah. yeah. I mean, if the emulators support the newer hardware, like the SDX, et cetera, then I, I don't hmm. think there's a problem with that. Yeah. <coughs> but we've got, we've got some basics that are actually, you know, I think Jim's used them on a few of his projects. You see, he had the same problem where some of his games were just a little slower than he would have liked. And then right. using the compiler, you know, you get a couple times speed increase, then all of a sudden it's a very playable game again. Yeah. Uh, I'd mentioned and then James is trying to optimize basic itself so you don't have to compile it, that, you know, certain things are run faster. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, when I start writing a program now, uh, I don't know if it's best practice or, or what, but I try to do every, everything that loops in the game happens from the first lines of the program. And if anything's going to branch out, it branches out to later lines. And I, I think that makes it huge difference when you're writing code because um, you know, it's not having to jump to the end of the program every cycle. Um, I also think um, a few times I've mentioned how good it would be if somebody could make the sound or play command work uh, where it doesn't wait for the play command to finish its um, its note before it moves on. You know, if you could just... Like play in the background? Guess, yeah, if you could just go sound one comma one and it just keeps moving on, you know, you could do some really cool things with that. That might be a question for one of our other guests coming up here, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess it's hard to think about it when, you know, if it's just a patch, you, know, you don't want to have to load 20 patches before you run a piece of software, right? That's also the thing. Well, for me personally, I mean, it depends on the patch. <laughs> if yeah. it's a really, really good one, then yeah, darn straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it's going to prevent a game from happening, period, then yeah, I'll do a patch. Yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting. I, I, love, I love how much... Um, you know, the little machines being supported. I guess it's that old, you know, it always was the underdog for me. You know, after um, initially purchasing it, it very quickly became obsolete. All my friends had Commodore 64s and things like that. And I guess um, it was cool in a way to have, to uh, have, you know, something where you really had to uh, write sharp code to get it to, to work well. Yeah. I mean, those I don't guys... Wanna... Those guys never wrote anything because it was too hard to write in Commodore Basic for most of my mates. I'm sure there was lots of people that did that successfully, but yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be hogging you here with all my questions here. So, is anybody else in the panel? I'll be monitoring the chat as well. Does anybody else have any panel have any questions for Darren, either on his upcoming stuff or stuff he's done already? I got a question. Um, when uh, <clears throat> I went to the Coco, um, did you ever run across a program called Color Key, key Command? What it did was uh, it made uh, shortcuts on the keyboard for um, kind of like ADOS did. Um, so you can hit a control key and uh, another key and get go sub or, you know, other keys like like the MC10 had. That That's one of the first programs I tried to mess with, but I was never good at pro programming. I had it and then I just kind of dropped it. But um, have you ever heard of color key command? Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I've, if not that, something similar. So this is for the Coco, right? Yeah. Ron? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, that, you know that was that was another thing that was was missing 
you know, because I learned to type on an MC10, having to type everything on a Coco was a big inconvenience. But um, I guess the other thing was that you'd need a, key, a keyboard overlay or something. Otherwise, how do you know which command you? Right. Yeah, there was a few of those like master, was it master key or master control or something? was one from like 81 82 that had that, and that it, the old chick the keyboard had the little overlay you had to put over so you could tell the keys were generating more commands i'm worried i'm worried about all the development going on for the mc10 because you know it's it's going sounds like uh when the coco vga happens and we get a bigger case i mean people are going to be wanting an mc10 the, the coco will fall off the map <laughs> yeah, you guys might have the same problem we have where Cocos have shot up in price on eBay and stuff the last couple of years, like drastically, several hundred percent. And they're, yeah. they're getting too expensive to get the real hardware. I mean, you guys are below that right now, but yeah, if it keeps it's, expanding, it's, you might have the same problem. It's cheaper for me to buy a color computer from America and pay probably um, $100 in shipping to get here than it is to buy one in Australia. Absolutely. Wow. And I see you have an Alice in the background there too. Is that a ordered from France or did they sell those in Australia? No, um, that that did come from from France. It's got the little um, C. What is it? C cam? Is that, is that the output on the back of it? Um, yeah. Oh yeah. So this is the Alice thirty two, um, which is kind of cool. Now the Alice 32 is one of the ones that went beyond the MC10 specs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've got an Alice 4K here as well. But you know, I, I, I was just saying at the beginning of, um, to the other guys in the chat room, um, it wasn't part of my arc. So I just wanted one, and I thought I picked two of them up at a really good price a few years ago, um, and I just wanted to have them because they were kind of a curiosity for me. But it wasn't part of my arc, um, so I really haven't played with it much. But the 32 does have a lot of graphic stuff. I think. I think it's Robert that's done a whole heap of experimenting with that. So I'm sure he'll probably touch on that later on in the show. Experimented with what? Um, didn't you, did, was it you that did, um, showed us a lot of the graphic modes of the LS32? <coughs> yeah, yeah, that was me. Yeah, yeah I found, found that really interesting. I mean, I've never really even, wouldn't know how to, wouldn't know how to do any of that, but I, I think if I could find a bit more time up to experiment more with it. Yeah. I had to translate a lot of French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, since you guys are more familiar with the Alice than we are, because we have covered it a few times when we've seen them, but uh, like the successors to the original Alice that went beyond the MC10 specs and started adding like, you know, different graphics and stuff to it. How long did the Alice line last in France as a, you know, for sale new type thing? It was, MC10 went it, from 83 to 84, basically, and that was it. It was used in schools. Yeah. So it got a bit, and, and they they just uh, installed a lot of schools with them for learning. It was considered the learning computer. And then it went from it Alice to Alice 32 to, what was the other one you said there? 90. 90? Alice 90, yeah. Had a real keyboard, like a proper, proper keyboard. So it went for, what, like five years they were still selling it brand new, or was it... Uh, like how long did it last? Do you know, Robert? Well, it, after that bid for the schools, it pretty much died out. <laughs> Didn't last long. But a lot longer uh, than the MC10 did, obviously. Um, I like to think that we sold them this defunct computer and they made it better. <laughs> the United <laughs> States were like, you could have this brick, you know. <laughs> anyway, just... 
My sense I mean, is it got about three years or something like that before it yeah, fell off. It's it is not very long. Because you're talking from see when when was it first uh, released here? Uh, a couple months before the Coco Two, so summer of nineteen eighty three. Eighty three. So and how long was it before you started seeing them on sale for like thirty bucks or ten bucks? I don't think it was ever that cheap. It was. I found. I found. I bought mine for ten, from Radio Shack. Oh, I got mine for sixty nine. Sixty nine. Yeah, and the original price was like one ninety nine or one forty nine, somewhere in there. Yeah, I do remember Radio Shack catalogs from eighty four. I think selling it for one hundred nineteen. Yeah, that's what I bought mine for. That was the adjust. That was an adjusted price. They uh they kind of sacrificed that computer as you as you probably know because they're pushing, you know how one part of the company will make the other part of the company fail because another computer is doing better. The Tandy one thousand, I think. Yeah, versus the Coco. So I have a know. question about the um, insides of the machine. Um, you know the Coco was built on the um, Motorola specification. Where does this come into play? It's a, uh, you know, it's just a slightly different Motorola processor, but it has the same VDG, and I know right, Sam, right? But so, do you think it was a variation then? I, I think they just got their engineers to work out the simplest possible way to build a computer that did some of the things that the Coco did. Mm. All the pieces of it are in the data sheets. So you know, the, the video interface to the 6803 is straight from one piece of manual. So, yeah, I get the impression it was basically built from the Motorola guide. Just kind of slimmed down for a lower price, basically? Possibly. I mean, certainly it has, it has pretty much the minimum number of components you can build that machine with. I mean... When I was looking at playing with like building my own variant of it, I couldn't find anything you could cut or trim or tweak. Yeah, up until modern times, I mean, you could do it now with an FPGA covering several chips. But you know, given the technology at the time, yeah, you're right. It's it's a it's the absolute bare strip to the metal. I don't know that they were behind on the technology. It is. I mean, Timex and Sinclair were using uncommitted logic arrays. MOS were doing custom silicon against them at that point. Yeah. Which is wrong because I mean it was basically meant to be a competitor to the, the ZX80, ZX81 style thing, but with color, which would have been a bonus. But they came out several years too late. I mean, if it had been out two years earlier, it probably would have done fairly well. Yep. I think if they're connected, the A7 line, the A7 line on the VDG, they couldn't do it with 4K. And they connected the H sync V sync, it would have been a lot better machine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. Mark Siegel said it was a Motorola reference design. And Mark the is real, our guest next week, too. So the real nice thing about the MC10 is the timer because they still use it today for automotive, the processor, the 6803. Uh, which is itself the, a derivative of the not, 6801, if I remember. Not the 6803, but its descendants, you know, which are the HTC, whatever. The 6800 series has been used in automotive applications for donkey's years. 
as in like ECUs and stuff like that. And, and right. it's, it's it, it's an incredible piece of work because it's not a CPU, it's a microcontroller. Yeah, yeah, that's right. MPU. Yeah, because it yeah. is stuff like, well, it has a programmable interrupt timer, which we didn't get to the Cocoa 3 on the Cocoa side of things. So that was an right. advantage it had. And, uh, and then on, the, uh, there's onboard RAM on the chip and stuff too, I think, if I remember correctly, a little bit of RAM or something. A little bit, tiny bit. 128 bytes. Yeah. And which, uh, the um, MC10 runs faster than a Cocoa 2. Is that right? Uh, yeah. For some instructions, yes. For others, no. Yeah, the, the basic is faster. I will say that it's a touch faster. Yeah. Than the uh, let's see that HTC is it the HTCO? There's an HTCO five. Oh, if from anybody familiar with those? Yeah, they're related instruction set, but not quite the same. Yeah, but it's fully backwards compatible, by the way, which is interesting. I find it interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean the path was the sixty eight hundred, the six eight zero three, and the HC eleven. And an HC11 yeah. will run 6803 code apart from the I.O. differences. Yeah. I've actually used a compiler for the, the HC11 for compiling MC10 code. Works fine. Is it a faster chip? HC11? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's insane. It would be insanely fast, but it's not compatible wiring-wise. Yeah, it's software-compatible, not hardware. It's thing. just, well... Um, uh, assembly language is, is backwards compatible. The codes are the same, the numbers. Yeah. So the actual opcodes are the same between the two? Opcodes are exactly the same, except they have a, a much more extensive uh, library of those. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, Hitachi, who did the 6319 that a lot of us like on the Cocoa, also did a 6303, which has some extended instructions and stuff too. That I think is that one pin compatible? It's sort of compatible. So the 6303, you can drop over a 6803 in most hardware. It only added a few instructions. There was one particular thing that was missing, and it's a real pain on the 6803 they fixed. But they pipelined it like the 6502. So on a lot of things, it's one or two clocks faster. So a native mode like that, our 6309 has Yeah, which is exactly why everybody bought the 6303 and the whole 6809, 6309 thing happened in the first place. Yeah. But, now, is, that, is that something any of you have written towards? Like, have you guys written 6303 optimized code for the MC10? Or, or do you guys stick with the base that you know, most people have? I've looked at it, but um, at least on all of the MC10s I have seen, the CPU is sold and not socketed. If it was yeah, socketed, you probably have to go with three then. <laughs> There's a certain book for that. Where is that? Because, of course, me being a huge proponent of the 6309, I try to push that type of stuff when it's available as much as I can. Because it is period correct. I mean, that's one thing, too, because, I mean, those chips came out in the 80s. Anyway, while Robert's looking for that book there, does anybody else have any further questions for Darren? And Mark, have you seen any of the chat? Darren? Uh, yeah, Sixy had a couple comments. He said he'd found a schematic on the Color Computer Archive that had the V-Sync line connected. Also said it was Mark 2K of the 4K. It's optional. And uh, But he says, pretty sure it fairly never reflected reality. 
Yeah, it's not connected on the real one. And if you try and work out how to connect it, you need to add a couple of flip-flops, so you'd have needed more gates. So did they pull the same trick that uh, Sinclair did, where, yeah, you have one key entry, but that's because there is no tokenizer, so you're actually in a mode where that single key enters the token directly. You don't have any way to decode PRANT into print. You have to hit the special P key, which puts the print token directly into... So the ROM's smaller by a pretty good chunk. Is that helps with you know awkward keyboards like the MC10 and the uh, ZX81. Well, actually, it wasn't anything about the keyboard. It was the ROM. They didn't want to have a tokenizer that could decode the printed letter, printed words into tokens. Ah. You just keyed in the token. When you hit the P key, that was the print token. If you were in command mode, yes. one entry, um, one token, yeah. done. <laughs> Yeah, the MC10 internally, um, when you hit the control, you know, control J for go to, um, it actually reads from the memory bank um, and basically enters G O T O. And the O has the upper bit set as the flag saying, hey, we're done here. But the actual crunch, the, the command line crunch, is whether or not you use the control key or not, is still ready in pure ASCII. Cool. Okay, so it has the full interpreter then as well as the like interpreting the keywords in basic. Right. So it's like a macro system then. Yeah, when it when it saves to the line, it, it saves it as crunched. But when you're editing, it's in plain ASCII. Okay. So that's different than the, the Sinclair's that Rick was talking about. Right, because we used to trick commands into strings to save RAM space because it would print out the command even though there was only a one-byte token in the string. It would still print it out as P-R-A-N-T or whatever. <laughs> yeah, well. Similar with the MC-10, yeah. Cool. Any further questions for Darren, or should we go on to our next guest? Go. Going once, going twice. All right, well, thank, thank you, Darren. And I'm really looking forward to your dungeon game. That actually looks really, really cool, yeah, I must cool. say. Thank, thanks, guys. I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who's still doing stuff with this little machine. Thank you all. Yeah, and thanks for Dropship there. We featured that on the show. We actually covered it quite extensively the one time because that was kind of a a stunning achievement for for basic games. So, oh, thank you. I'll go. I'll make sure I go and have a replay of that one. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> I'm still going to try to uh, shoehorn that it's into regular best. memory. <laughs> Let me know how I can help, Jim. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll be getting on that soon. Cool. Okay, our next present presenter here is Simon Jonasson, who's been, uh, well, he's done some demos for it. We talked about it a bit earlier in the show, and he's, of course, done a lot of sound stuff recently, really pushing the one-bit sound to its limits. So, Simon, take it away. Okay, so I don't really have any kind of presentation per se, uh, because you can all download my stuff. I just want to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, please go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of an ad-lib guy. You know, um, uh, MC10, I only got into it very recently, um, maybe four or five years ago. And I was I was actually gifted an MC10 by uh, a very friendly American I met on, on the Coco uh, Facebook thingy, Bob. Uh, I had to pay the import tax, whatever, but that that doesn't matter. And I thought, okay, this little machine is 
so cool because it's so limited. Yeah. <laughs> it's so limited that makes it a challenge. It makes it an absolute challenge, you know. So that okay, what can I do with this little tiny machine here? How much can I push this little tiny machine? I'm like, well, okay. When I started my my very, very first computer was a Coco 2. And that sat by my side here. I'm not going to pull it up because it's dusty, but it was a Coco 2B. In other words, a, a Coco with K, Korean model, T1 VDG. Uh, my father bought that for me um, for Christmas, maybe back in 1984, 1985. And I I programmed that. I, I was programming basically. I thought, me, me. I just I just try something. I got an Ed Tasm cartridge and I tried this and the other. And all of a sudden, I met some friends and I got into the C sixty four scene. And I was like, "Oh, the coca, you're up in the attic, up in the attic." Um, got into the C sixty four scene, and but my son is now nineteen. But when he was about fourteen, fifteen, maybe five years ago, he was like, oh, Benjamin, let me show you something really cool. I've got this old piece of hardware in the attic. And let me show you how this works. And we play some games. And he's like, mm, okay, fine. Uh, and as soon as I bought my original machine out, I was like, yeah, now I'm done. Now I'm going to push that to the limits with the C64 you know, like with music, stuff like that. So when I got an MC10, I thought, yeah, okay, I've done some stuff on the Coco. Um, and let me put that into the MC10. Yes, it's a very limited instruction set. It's a very limited instruction set compared to the 6809. We can do that. We can do that. You just have to. Use your noggin. So, yeah, my first thing was like, okay, let's try some music. And, yeah, okay, let's try some vet graphics. And I think the limitation to the machine itself is what pushes you to say, well, I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to accept that. I, I, I will persevere and I will find a way so that's just my two cents I mean does anyone have any questions about that well I know like you pushed you did some of the vector graphics stuff we saw in your demo like rotating cubes etc that you animated um, and of course using the limited resolution that the MC10 native supports um, when you did your multi-voice sound we were actually almost sounding like you're using like you know different waves to get like percussion instruments and, and other things like that I, I'm, I'm, am I correct in presuming you're using the programmable timer to help that run smooth? Or are you uh, using all CPU counting cycle, hard code type stuff? It depends which demo you're talking about because I did I did an IRQ timer with two voices, but there was no percussion. Um, and that was IRQ timer because then I can do, um, like I'd done an MC10 demo with fire and all kinds of plasma and 
just in text mode, plasma with two voice music and stuff like that. That was an IOQ timer. But no, the recent ones are actually hard coded. They're actually hard coded without the timer. Okay. And then also to carry up a question that Darren Autry was asking about earlier during his presentation, he, would, he said he would really like the sound command to run in the background. Now, since you mm -hmm. actually have a programmable timer in the MC10, which the Cocos did not, we had H-Sync and V-Sync, which are pretty coarse differences between the two. And of course, Tandy wired the wrong IRQ to the one. Um, but is there, I don't know if you're familiar enough with the MC10's basic. Could you hook something in to allow the sound command to run as a background with the IRQ timer so that basic could actually continue on? If someone could give me a pointer to how I could hook something into that, I, I don't know if you have. Well, okay, I so I, I did that uh, one time, and I don't think it was correct because I, what I was using is that there's a there's a feature in the uh, MPU where you could have it call itself, like mm -hmm. it can. Uh, so what you do is while the while the sound loop is uh, running a delay have it exit and call itself back after like 10 cycles or something like, and then while it's, while it's doing the 10 cycle or while it's escaped this sound routine, it's actually just the timer is going to recall it back. So instead of just sitting there doing nothing, it'll go do something else. And it worked, but I, I lost my code. Is there, is there a way to like on the Coco is the way to do a, like, um, Diffuser or a, a user. Yeah, there is. So there's a user built in. Yeah. You can use user. Um, you can also patch into the um, tokenizer. And so, as you know, those little tokens, yeah. There's, a, yeah. there's a patch for it. It, it calls out to a spot and address okay. 4200 ish. Um, then, then, I then, say, can then I, then I would say, then I would say, then I would say that yes, a a, a sound command, um, and possibly with multiple voices, because I've only experimented two right now, but I can do up to eight. Uh, but the code gets kind of hairy. Um, but possibly yes, if you had a user command, you could have a background sound player in Basic, which is. I've done this for the Coco 2 as well uh, on Dave Bruce Moore's games. Yeah. When I did it, I could do two voices. So that sounds yeah. like something that would, you know, that'd be a nice patch. I was talking about, you know, what patches are distorting it too much, but that would be a nice patch to have for like people like Jim Gary and Darren Ottery to not have a game pause while having a sound effect going. You can keep the game playing type thing. You could do it might. It might slow a little. It might slow it a little. But there were certain 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 basic functions was making it bog. It depends, yeah. like yeah. Like but a set I, would would definitely interfere, say like I, loading or I I don't think it would I don't think it would bog massively. Oh yeah. Um, Depending on the instruction mix, yeah. I thought I there mean, were a couple of places it disabled interrupts to steal the stack pointer in the basic. Mm, it might well do, Alan. It might well do, um, but that'd be workable. <laughs> so, something I'd just say really quickly is, at the moment, um, I'm, with Dropship, there's sound happening in real time. It's not good sound, but it's but it's happening in real time, and I use it to uh, after the graphics are drawn, I do the sound so the graphics don't flicker as much. 
you know, so there's a little inherent delay there, but I kind of use it. So if there was less delay, that would be awesome because you could do more cycles and, and have more things going on on the screen. But I also yeah, did so mention, I mentioned it to uh, Darren Atkinson as well, um, just on the off chance he might incorporate it into a future there, revision. Who knows? There's there's a command dispatcher in the uh, MC10 ROM where every before every command is executed, it is uh, you could interrupt it and then steal the control, copy the code and change it any way you want. If anybody's familiar with doing that, it's pretty easy actually. But uh, yeah, maybe I can just try and load something up there, which is the, the most recent code I just posted today, where everyone's got a C10 file, word file, and everything else. I posted it on the uh, Facebook chat. Maybe we can just try and load this up and you can listen to it. Sure. So give me two seconds. I'll just um, minimize this window and try to find it. It's emulated for now because my MC10 is sat in a box. Yeah, but I think that's an interesting concept. If, if, if somebody could hook it into basic or hook it up into the hardware timer that you know interrupts and does the sound sampling at a certain rate you probably have to do fairly low frequency to not uh, or a sampling rate i should say so that it doesn't slow basic down too much but you should be able to do and you should be able to even do like little white noise sounds like an explosion sound that doesn't stop the graphics from moving type thing um, with that mine was boring i was just doing it with the sound command <laughs> like like so you could write sound one comma one sound uh, uh like two comma eight you know whatever they would both run at the same time it was because I, as I did it and I realized it was working, I thought, I wonder if I could do two sounds, if I could write sound and then sound and they would overlap and it, it worked. Um, but it, it was only working on the emulator. It wasn't working on the uh, hardware, like the real thing. What happened, and, when you, uh, what happened when you tried three? I didn't. <laughs> I, I, I actually, I actually uh, got confused because what you're doing is you're, you use an SWI, a software interrupt, and then you you know you got an RTS which which brings you back to the code you were in, but you have to you have to um, pull that or yeah pull it off the stack and replace it with your code's address so it hops to your code, and then when you're done with your code you got to put that that original RTS back, and then it you can get confused you know. So uh, I, uh, you know how when you get your code kind of like it's partially working and then you, uh, you're supposed to save it um, when you're doing TASM or whatever, you know. And so I, I, I did an edit that actually uh, ruined my epiphany. And then I saved it over the one that was working. But now I have a better understanding. It's, it's not that it's, it's not the concept is there. It's not really that difficult, but um, if you've ever destroyed your code or had a hard drive crash or a USB go go down on you and you lose a lot, oh, yeah. yeah, it's it's heart wrenching. <laughs> Can't go back to it. You got your demo ready there, Simon? Or yeah, let me see if I can share my screen. Don't forget uh, to click share sound. <laughs> forgive, forgive, uh, forgive the uh, masses of icons on my screen. Now I'm a bit of a weirdo, but. That's the way it is. So share screen. Uh, which one are they? No, I can just share the MC10 screen. Yes, I'll just share them. Just make sure you click share sound, otherwise it won't be here. So 
What's share sound? There's a little checkbox when you do the share screen. Mm. Okay, we'll I find see. out soon enough. I see we'll it. find out soon enough. So YouTube, load binary file, browse, stop object. How do we hear it? Or we did. No, we're not. It's real quiet. Yeah, we're not hearing the sound. I had to set. Um... Oh, there it goes. Commodore music. Is it Commodore? Uh, it's an X-Spectrum, actually. <laughs> and yeah, just for those that aren't for, familiar with the MC-10's hardware, it's only got one bit sound. It's yeah. it was a six-bit DAC, so doing multi-voice on one bit. I mean, that's like, bit. like Apple II hardware level. And square wave. It's awesome, Simon. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just thought, okay, I've done that on the Coco. I thought, of, yeah. I've done it like I could have died. No, just port it to the MC10 just for the fun of it. And I posted the code earlier today on the Facebook chat. So anyone can have the assembly code for that. And if someone wants something with a timer or something, I'll definitely do that. I'm, I'm just here to help people. Well, it does sound like there's some interest in getting you know, a background sound hooked into BASIC, which I think some of your routines, especially the ones that are using the, the timer IRQs built into the 6803, might be useful for that. I also have a question from Tom Eric Anderson in the chat. Does the 6803 have a speed-up poke like the 6809? I don't believe it does, but you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't. It does not. Okay, so you have to do it the old-fashioned way like I did with my Coco and just replace the clock crystal with something faster. No work clock the sucker. Can't even do that. <laughs> it, it, then you have to get a multi-sync precise. monitor to sync it properly. <laughs> you could, Yeah, it's all precisely timed to the video signal. Everything is locked to it. Yeah, yeah, the Coco's that way too. We still did it anyway, though. Simon, <laughs> what's the, what's the percentage? Of discovered a, a way to switch the um, key debounce a little bit, which gives you a little bit of a speed up if you've if you're um, using a lot of keyboard input. Well, that's, that's for basic. This is for, that's for uh, basic though, yeah. 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 Well, James Diffin, when I get his presentation at the end of the stuff here, he's got some optimization basic he's been doing too, so that he'll go into in, in detail. Sorry, Ron, you had a question? Yeah, Simon, how, how, how much percentage of the processors being used with that music? Because you used to, <laughs> when you did it on the Coco, you could say that, you know, only like 14% or whatever. Yeah, well, the Coco, the Coco Two voice music, especially the one I done for the Coco First, was like about forty percent CPU. But this, uh, because it's one bit, and because it's such a fast sample rate, um, that's literally using all of the CPU. So it would only be good for like a title screen or something. Yeah. But the other player I have. Um, which I presented a couple of weeks ago, the other player I have will give you 50% CPU left for two voices. 
but it's not as complicated as this one because this one also does drum effects and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think that's where you'd want like title screen. You want to go like all out and do it as you know as, as robust as you can. And then if you want something like you know Darren was mentioning about running in the background while you're doing graphics and some other things, you'd probably want to use a simpler one. Yeah, and I think I think Curtis at the end of the day, uh, in, in 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 say a game situation, you could actually cut it down to like one voice because you can interleave, you can interleave, and make it sound like more. Yeah, like some play command demos used to do, because you can switch at the highest tempo rate and you can kind of get that warbly multi-voice effect with it. Yeah, and then you probably have about, I think, about 30-40% CPU usage on the sound, which will give you like 60% overhead to do your program. But and I had a question for you, technical programs, because I'm not super familiar with 6803. I do know it has a program under a timer, which I wish the Cocoa 1 and 2 it had. Um but it has less registers and smaller ones in certain cases. Is it faster handling an IRQ than a 6809 would? It's got ABX. It's got ABX, right? And it, of course, it's got the stack register, um, which you can actually hijack as a register if you want to. But it's got ABX and AB combined to D, just like the 6809. But all offsets. Like we do like minus one comma X. Well, you can't do that on the 6803 because it's all offices are positive. Um, but the IRQ sequence, yes, it is It is a lot faster because you don't have to stack. You only have to stack A, B, X, PC, CC. So it's kind of so, speed-wise, it's between like the 6809's FIRQ and the IRQ. It's kind of in the middle between those. It's kind of middle ground, yeah. It's kind of middle ground. And how fine is the timer uh, in the uh, 6803? Like how much controller do you have? As, uh, you know, how fast it fires on? You can get it down to pretty much what you want, you know, because it was using automotive applications where you have, where you have uh, injectors firing and you have, you have to control the spark and stuff like that. So it, you can get it down to a pretty fine. You, yeah. You've got a free running timer, a free running timer, which you can read. Um, mm -hmm. I don't use that. What I use here is the output compare register for that. But you also got an input compare register. And you have um, the funny thing on a Coco 3, because oh, my God, I would love, I would so love a timer on a Coco 2 or an FIRQ on a Coco 2 that was yeah. for the RS-232 <laughs> or the cartridge port, right? Because then it would have been a wicked machine. Yeah, FIRQ on the H-Sync would have been awesome. That's yes, how I like, to, I like to retaliate for the jokes about the MC-10 by saying it has a timer. I would totally agree yeah. with that. <laughs> it does have a timer, and I tell you what, that was that is what actually makes it fantastic because it has a timer. Two thirty-two C, which it completely ignores. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the uh, the uh, the serial port on the MC10 totally sucks, right? Because that's not actually connected. Some are not connected. There's no IRQ on that. So the CPU could actually, or the <laughs> MPU, whatever you want to call it, because it's a yeah, micro MPU. microcontroller, um, can't actually do that. But 
you've got an input compare, an output compare, and you've got a free running timer. But the funky thing is, and this is funky because you have to acknowledge that timer in a special way, and you have to reprogram it for every cycle. It's like a single shot thing. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you were mentioning that because unlike the gimme, which will reset the timer, restart once you eat the yeah. interrupt and, and if you flag feed, it as red. If you feed something into the uh, to the gyme, I'm going to call it gyme <laughs> because that makes sense to me. I'm going to call it gyme. But if you feed something into the timer on the gyme, then, yeah, that would just loop and loop and loop and loop and it will trigger an interrupt. But on the... 6803, 6800, 6801, whatever you want to call it, HC blur, right? It will not re-trigger unless you reprogram the timer. So some of the speed gains you've saved with less instructions, et cetera, pushing on the stack gets taken up because the fact you have to reset it every time an interrupt's actually triggered. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, you have other instructions like roll D. So you can rotate the D registers. You don't have to do like a LSL A. Yeah, followed by rotate. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so you, there's a lot of there's a lot of trade offs. There's a lot of trade offs. I mean, the thing I would have loved to have on the MC10, and again, why did Tendi do that? Was that the um, V-Sync was connected. Yeah. The V-Sync on the VDG was connected. I understand why they didn't connect the last address line on the VDG for the P modes. I understand because they only had a 4K RAM, so you can't display a 6K screen. That I understand, but why the heck didn't they connect the V-Sync? Yeah. And to be honest, the Dragon 64 has a bit of an issue too, where I, if I'm trying to remember this and Karen correct me in the chat if I'm wrong, but I think from what I understand is that HSync works on the displayable part of the screen, but as soon as it goes into the borders, it shuts it off. So if you want to do an HSync timed sound yeah. routine, it'll yeah. go like triggering every scan line and then it'll skip 40 scan lines as the raster's going back up and not trigger an interrupt at all. And then the Dragon 32 did not have this problem, just the 64 did. So it seems to be shortcuts 50 are bound. Scan lines, 50 scan lines are blanked out. Right, so if you're doing an H-Sync music player, you're going to be like, Bleh. Because what they did on the Dragon 64 was actually take an NTSC machine and instead of acknowledging or, or even instigating the last 50 scan lines on the PAL machine, because it was like an NTSC, NTSC box, um, they just put a delay line in. They just put a delay line in to get past those 50 so they could display the next frame. Yeah. But the Dragon 32 would acknowledge every single scan line, just like the Coco 2 does. I mean, a PAL Coco 2 acknowledges every single scan line. Um, so why? Why? Just why? <laughs> yeah. Now, that's, that brings up another question for the MC10 being sold in, in Europe and maybe Alan and some of the other people can uh, attest to this or, or answer the question. 
Is there much hardware differences besides the video being PAL versus NTSC between the you know the North American MC10 versus the uh, the PAL version? I'm not aware of any other difference. Okay, so they didn't do anything funky like we we're talking about on the Dragon here, where they just decided to disable page sync for 50 scanlon. I got another question for Simon. I, I couldn't answer. I couldn't know the previous question from Curtis. I couldn't answer that because my my MC10 is an NTSC box plugged into a PAL TV, so I've got issues. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, go ahead, Ron. Well, um, does this MCX board that plugs into the back with the extra memory and stuff, does that have a uh, chip in it for sound? Uh, Ron, I, I would not know that because I don't have an MCX board. I'd love an MCX board, and I'm going to get one. MCX. But... Not according to uh, the page at Zipster's site. It doesn't seem to be any sound, just uh, ROM and uh, static RAM. Okay, because yeah. if, if it had a chip with sound, then um, it would be more dynamic where you could tell the chip to play stuff, and you don't have to um, be generating music on board. Basically offload it. Yeah. 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 yeah, same as we're doing with sound chips on the Kojo. Do you think that's coming up? He made one um, called the Supercut, which had By a whole Ed. bunch of things. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but the current one doesn't have any sound on it. Okay. Yeah. And actually, that brings up one question before we go into the next presenter here. Um, th there was two upgrades that are, were fairly popular. The MCX one twenty eight, I think, was the first one, and now we've got the MCX SD or thirty two SD. Do you, do you think the do you uh, for all of you panelists here does the MCX thirty two SD is that kind of taking over from the MCX one twenty eight or is there still unique things in the one twenty eight that are preferred over you know thirty two? They're very similar. Um, it's a trick question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because because the only thing you have on the one twenty eight is you've got the MC server, and every time you load something, you have to turn it off, turn it back on, reload it, and then load something. So at least the one that I've been using. I've In noticed, words, yeah. I've noticed a difference. Uh, the MC, the original MCX, defined uh, memory enough that I could fit uh, my conversion of a Calabeth and fit it all in and use oh, the, yeah. and use the advanced basic commands to yeah, do all the high res. But it won't right. fit. It won't fit. It seems in the um, the MCX SD Calabeth. Right. So that's because it. After uh, the screen memory, you know, it starts at 16384. Anything before that, the only thing that's available is one page of video. 6K is in there. I don't know how much more. I think it's about 6K. And uh, on the uh, one that, the 128, basically all the memory that's possible is available. And were you using large? Yeah. Yeah, I was using the large uh, memory configuration. So Is or it like... Isn't it Actually, like no. I was using the middle one, I think, or maybe, oh, okay. or maybe even the basic one. I can't remember. I think the maybe I was using the the very base one, but it it came up with something like about twenty eight k, whereas the SD comes up with like twenty six or something like that. I don't know why. And that that missing yeah. bit just means you can't run it. So. It actually has some different um, command structure with the um, P mode and P copy as well. So I wrote some software True. for the 128 that was, you know, using P copy to move, say, page eight 
to page one and that doesn't work anymore. It's, uh, you can, I think it's got three 6K pages. I think that's how it works. So, so P, P copy four doesn't work. Okay, so there's actually basics or differences in the basic extensions yeah. between yeah, the two. Yeah, there's not much of that. Like that's the only that's one of the only things I've found. One of so far, yeah. One okay. of the things that annoys me is I've got the full screen project for the MCX one twenty eight, and about every other version, but for the MCX thirty two SD, um, I have to rewrite it. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I've decided to rewrite it differently, basically, because I'm tired of having to go into code I can't see and trying to figure out what's going on in order to patch in, which takes many hours and days sometimes to do to find exactly what you need to do, especially when you're, blind, you're running blind. Um, so, but the one thing, like, one thing that you can do with the uh, SD is you can load video. And this is running the, uh, the uh, where is it? Oh, there. Like that's, that's loading. Uh, so you're loading graphic images like directly through the SD? Kind of streaming that's, uh, that's Coco VGA. Um, yeah, and I just load in a picture at a time that's modified slightly. And, uh, yep. Cool. Anyway. Very cool. <laughs> so I, uh, wanted Kieran. You, I wanted to show you a couple of more things before my slot is over. Yeah. Okay, go ahead Kieran, and we'll get to up. Kieran's question. I thought, or do you want to do Kieran's question first? I had to. I had to uh, mute my sound because loading a C10 file would blast your ears out. <laughs> so okay, well, we'll, we'll do yours first, then we'll do a Kieran's question. There you go. I'm going to share my screen. Uh, I'm going to just do VMC10, and uh, this was the demo that kind of blew Steve Bjork away. Nice. And that is real time. So you're calculating? Yeah, real time calculated. Cool. So that was the first one. Uh, so let me reset that. And let's just uh, binary file browse. Uh, which one will do now? Mm. Sorry, I uh, my memory fails me. <laughs> memory fails me. Yeah. It's a big club. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to show you something else. <laughs> I wanted to show you something else, but um, it's like, mm, yeah, okay. I saw my victims like, yeah, okay. What the hell do I want to show you? Okay. We got a couple questions in chat now. We've got one from Sixty, which we'll cover here. Um, and we'll also one from Tarek Andrew Gunderson. And then I think we'll do a commercial break before we go over to uh, Robert's presentation. Just to give people, you know, a bathroom break and a breather type thing. So the first one from Sixty, does the PAL version run faster, as in does it similarly derive from the color subcarrier crystal, which is a higher frequency for PAL? And that's something we noticed on the PAL Cocos and stuff too, the 50 hertz versus 60. So is that something that any of you have ran both versions know of? Interesting. 
That makes sense. I haven't witnessed it though. Alan Kieran. or Simon, maybe, or have you guys compared? I don't have a PAL version to compare with. I haven't, okay. I, I haven't looked isn't, entirely into how it's done. Isn't the Alice a PAL? I've got uh, it's no, probably it's, CCAM. It's CCAM, which is kind of PAL like timings. Okay. Because I have that, I could run them side by side. It'd be interesting to find that out because I know the Dragon made some. It made some difference to some games ran faster because if you say you were basing something on the VSync interrupt, it would only happen fifty times a second. So sixty, the overhead was a little bit less. Maybe you can post that sometime. The video. Yes, that'd be cool. And then uh, Tom Eric Anderson, and I don't know if you guys know the answer to the question, but his question was: since there's been a lot of talk on the Coco versus Dragon, was the Alice a licensed version of the MC10 or an unofficial clone? Licensed. Was like yeah, Satandi sold it to Matra Hachette. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and then they I'm kind of extended it on their own afterwards. Um, yeah. Hey, there was an older uh, Kieran question also about MC10 owners to desolder and place the CPU. Was that a common thing? Wouldn't be in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and your hair thanks you. Yes. Replace it with it. what? Another one? Yeah, like the a Hitachi. 603 upgrade or something like that. Yeah, the Hitachi. I, I guess one question for you panelists here that have real MC10s. Um, how many of you have done a 603 upgrade? Anybody? It's an oh. issue with the ROM, the ROM patch, which is beyond me. I, I, I bought the chip and was going to do it, but, but looking at it online, I can't remember who it is, but somebody had said, you know, the ROM would have to be rewritten. What is the difference? Home should be fine. Yeah, don't know. There's, if you Google it, you'll you'll find there's a there's a bit of um, a bit of chat. About so there, there's two versions of the sixty-eight hundred three. There's a six three hundred three. Yeah, Hitachi made one, kind of okay. like a six three hundred nine, where they added a few extra instructions. It has a native mode that runs less cycles per instruction, etc. It's back compatible. I mean. The way to try that will be to put the six three hundred three instructions into the emulator and run it on the emulator. But there should be nothing 6803 that doesn't work on 6303. Yeah, the only thing, I, I think you'd hit the same problem we hit on the Coco. If somebody used undocumented instructions to do fake no-ops and stuff like that of certain cycle counts, that did break because now it's triggering as if it's a real yeah, instruction. They, they only added the tiny number, and there are actually no useful undocumented instructions on the 6803. Well, there is. there actually is one that I've discovered, which is a zero, is a nope. NLP. Of course, if you're running from ROM basic, then what's the advantage of changing the CPU? You've then got to rewrite the ROM to use these magic instructions for the Cocoa. You just run um, patched OS 9. You know? Because the CPU is pipelined, so a load of the instructions are one and two clocks faster. Ooh. Yeah, it has a native mode similar to 6 or nine. So you just turn that one mode on and then bang, everything's running fast. It's so. not even a mode. It's just always like that. Oh, it's always like that? Okay. Yeah, I wonder so if that, maybe that's the reason people haven't, haven't used it because like, if you're saving to cassette, if the instructions are running faster, you're going to higher frequency. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that might bite you and your games will be like a few percent out. I think the, the biggest problem though, you'd have to desolder the original CPU. Yeah. That would definitely be my biggest problem. With it. <laughs> I'll try it. 
Cool, because I mean, I, I can see that like on the like when we run native mode on the Coco because our disc controller has a stupid, very precise timing for the halt line and all that stuff. It actually does screw up. It's writing, trying to write and read the controller too fast, and it, it gives you I/O errors. Um, and then cassette, of course, instead of running at fifteen hundred baud, it's running at like seventeen hundred baud or something like that because the timing loops are hard coded. And I could see maybe the MC10 basic having problems with cassette files. If, if you're going up real cassettes, like the actual waveform is going to be faster because it's writing it and reading it, trying to read it faster. It would run fine on its own if you saved it on 603 native and loaded it, you'd be fine. But if you tried to take an old 6803 based one, they may not match. You may not be able to load without patching. But you know, the SD probably would eliminate that problem too if you're loading everything up the SD. Is there is there such a thing as an all RAM mode where on the MC10 where everything's dumped into a RAM and you can change the ROMs and stuff? You know, like you can do it on the Coco 2 or 3. I think you can do it on the, in the MCX128, but on a normal MC10, no. Yeah, you don't have enough RAM to do that because you only have to, up to 20K. And then the MCX SD, that has 32K RAM for basic or 32K RAM, or what does that have on it? I think it's 32, but it's not all available. Oh, okay. Oh, Simon, you find your flame? Or is that somebody else playing that? It must be Simon's. That's Simon's. Like Simon's. Play that every Christmas. <laughs> how does um how does Lost World Pinball do that with the graphics screen? Is that is that what you know? It's a twenty k game. Originally came out for the MC ten. Uh, graphics screen looks fine from basic. It must patch. It must move. It must move it into RAM, right? The, so well, my screen. understanding, you guys can correct me that the hardware wizards here can correct me if I'm wrong, mm. but basically the way the MC ten is set up with the VDG is that basically the onboard RAM is the only thing the VDG can see. So you're on board 4K. You could use a graphics screen that uses up to 4K RAM. And unfortunately, it jumps between you know 3K straight to six. So you can't use PMO three and four, but you can use PMO two and under. Is that is that correct? Well, all I know is when you when you use a poke command to switch it into say PMO one, um, you can see the basic interpreter and all of that stuff doing its thing on screen. So. This is this is on a stock MC10 with 20k pack. I'm talking. I think those are just uh, hooks and uh, storage yeah. points being used by Basic. So I suspect if you're running a machine language program, that stuff's not there. But I don't think you see the ROM of Basic. Yeah, the ROM is. You, you don't see the ROM. Yeah, you just that's just the um, the interrupt vector and then some local Basic variables that didn't fit <laughs> in the 128 bytes in the. On, on the onboard uh, MC, uh, the uh, CPU. So I, I had a phone call <laughs> right when you guys were answering my questions. So can you dump, uh, can you do all RAM? You were saying you can, but you can't, or? Uh, no, you, you can't from the sounds of it, not with the, this, the stock ones. There's not enough RAM to, to duplicate it. I think I got that right. You guys correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. What was that again? He was talking about the 64K RAM mode we have in the Coco 2 and the Coco 3, where you can basically oh. duplicate the ROMs into the RAM, and you don't have 64K RAM no. there to but do the that. Only, with, so The only thing you yes. can do to do that is you can load the ROM 1.3 with, with your expansion pack, if you ever heard of that. So some, was, some, guy, some guy moved the ROM, the whole 8K, into RAM. You got like a few K left, like 5K or something by the time it's all done. And you could modify that, that then 
but then you're using most of your RAM for the replacement ROM and you don't have as much for your basic programs. Well, you do have more than the 4K it comes with, without the expansion pack. So that's kind of at least interesting. That was somebody yeah. in Australia who made that. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. It was done back in the 80s, too. Yeah. So it was it gives you all kinds of high res commands and other fancy do stuff. Doesn't um, I don't no, think so. The, the ROM, just, like you guys have. Oh, it just allows you to use the graphics. As soon as you go into graphics modes, they work. They're, yeah, yeah. they're there for you to do whatever you want with. Yeah. Brian Pollock, I think. Doesn't um, the MC10 handle things in 64K like the Coco? As far as uh, the, you know, the processor is a 64K, you know, based. Yeah, you've processor. got like you've got a 64K address space with a little bit of it stolen for I/O at the bottom. All right. So um, why wasn't there any upgrades to 64K? instead it's, of 32k and then 128 well, okay with the m6128 you can actually do that and put the rom in ram but that's a very modern thing it'll give you 46k for basic and its max configuration the mcx so you can do it with the new stuff yes okay yeah, matter but, of, the, i the mean MCX... killed the product before anybody did like third-party expansions and stuff the MCX yeah. automatically copies it to uh, RAM. The, uh, um, the ROM. The, yeah. the ROM to RAM. But it did, yeah, the, especially the 128. I'm not so sure about the SD30, the SDX32. Does anybody know? I don't. So was the original MC10 using static RAM or dynamic RAM for its 20K? The, the uh, this is ironic. The uh, the the 4K is actually dynamic, and the uh, expansion pack is no. The the 4K is static, and the expansion pack is dynamic. Oh, so it was that's a mix. funny. That's not yeah. They culture. mixed it, and and it uses both. It adds the the static to the dynamic, which is unusual. So you get 20K. Yeah. Uh, Mark Siegel said that the 16K mode can be all RAM. With assembly language, I guess you can switch the ROMs out and just use all the space. Yeah, if you what? disable the the hooks into basic and stuff, you can totally take over the RAM. Some Coco programs did that too. I'm yeah, hungry for a donut. Except for the interrupt vector. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Simon's donut. Uh, donut teaser that it's time for a break donut. here, so we go grab a donut. Donuts. <laughs> donuts. How many frames per second? Uh, too many. That's a beautiful graphic. And that would be Looks Darren great. Atkinson's work. Darren Atkinson took... Oh, yeah, that's right. Coco 2 Donut, which is obviously based on my Coco 3 Donut from the um, Coco Fest. And I converted, converted it. To, I converted it to Coco 2, and Darren just took it and ran with it. So that would be Darren's work. So I just thought I'd demonstrate that as well. That's one psychedelic donut. That's a thermal view of a donut, right? <laughs> yeah. Fresh yeah. out of the, <laughs> the deep fryer. <laughs> but that little machine can be plenty fast if you know how to program it. Yeah, no, like you were saying, like the limitations you have to program for, that's part of the challenge. I mean, the fact that you can only use graphics modes essentially 3K and less, you know, a little bit lower res, like this would be the equivalent of P mode 1 on the Coco, means that you have less to move around so you can make your games proportionally faster because there's less bytes to push around. 
Anyway, yes. um, unless there's any last questions for Simon, I think, and we'll just, uh, while I'm chatting here, if anybody in the chat room has any last questions for Simon too, or if anybody in the panel does, uh, I think we'll take a bit of a commercial break and yeah. then we'll come back with uh, Robert's presentation. So I'll no, give it about five, the, 10 seconds if anybody on the panel has a question or if anybody in the chat has a question. Well, more just to say hello. I think, you know, I think for most of us, we've all been on the same Yahoo board for, I don't know, for how long. Um, so it's finally <laughs> good to meet you, Simon, at least, at least virtually. Thank you, Greg. And you too. Okay, here we go. You are watching Coco Talk, the world's leading weekly video podcast featuring a candy colored computer. We spread the love to the past, present, and future for all models, including the original colored computer, the Coco 3, and the world renowned exclusive French Canadian Coco 2. Radio Shack. Hi, this is Eddie Zervinsky from beautiful Quebec City. Vous écoutez. As you're enjoying Coco Talk, we also want to remind you about the Coco Discord server. This is a place where people come to connect, to ask questions, to provide answers, to share information, and to socialize. So when you're done, why don't you head on over to the Coco Discord server and we'll continue the conversation there. The easy to remember link is discord.cocotalk.live. See you on Discord. Coco123 is the Glenside Color Computer Club community newsletter that's been in publication since 1985. While the Rainbow Magazine may be gone, it doesn't mean you still can't have a cool Coco periodical. Head on over to the Glenside Color Computer website at glensideccc.com and then click on the Documents link to view all the past issues of the Coco123 newsletter. Not only can you read all of the past and present issues, we'd also love to hear some submissions from you. So if you'd like to send an article, a column, uh, something to talk about, maybe even a program listing, send an email to glensideccc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. The Coco World Map is a cool community resource where you can view coconuts from around the world. Head on over to map.cocotalk.live and see where your fellow coconutians happen to be living on the planet Earth. If you would like to submit yourself to be on the Coco Map, send an email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live and we look forward to seeing you on the Coco Map. Hey guys, it's Stevie Stroh, and if you've been watching Coco Talk for a while, hopefully you understand that everyone is welcome to join this show. You don't need an impressive resume to get on. You just need to enjoy the Coco and be willing to talk about it. There is no wrong way to Coco. There is no wrong way to be a fan of the Coco. There's no wrong way to be on Coco Talk. You just have to want to talk Coco. So if you would like to join us, then reach out to us on our Discord server, which is discord.cocotalk.live, or send an email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live, and let's get you on the show, and let's talk about the Coco. Hi, I'm Tim, and you're watching Coco Talk Live. And I'm playing Daggereth online like that idiot from the book. Uh, can you can you dial back on the condescension there as you respond there? It's time for everyone's favorite segment. 
Who's new to Discord this week? Texas Foosballer. Hi, my name is Jeff, and I am in Texas. I love playing games on my old computers and I love maintaining them. I would love to get more into coding and back into demo creation. I have always wanted a Coco and am looking to buy a Coco 3. NML32. Hello, my name is Mark and I love retro computers. I was first introduced to the color computer a few years ago on the Mr. FPGA. I also have been learning a lot about this neat computer by watching Steve's YouTube videos. Wondering Monk. Hi, I am Connor. As the older systems are getting a bit rough to get hands on, I am currently looking at the Coco 3 FPGA and Mega 65 computers. Hoping to get information on the FPGA class systems and see what the new elder looks like. Cybrius. Hi, it's me, Greg Dion. The previous bios were edited for time's sake. Thanks to Melly, Boysontech, Paul Fiscarelli, Terry Stagee, and the Coca Talk patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. At discord.cocatalk.live. And we're back. Yep. And I'd like to thank Gregion for doing the most optimized intro on Discord I've ever seen. <laughs> that was compressed, man. Welcome. <laughs> to, to the point. <laughs> anyway, on to our next presenter, which is Robert Sieg. And uh, well, welcome to the show. And I, I know you've done a ton of stuff lately and been a lot of experimentation. We're probably going to have to have you on for a full-length interview at some point here because it's way too much to cover in 15 to 20 minutes. But I'm sure you got some interesting things to cover, so take it away, Robert. It uh, looks like he's stepped away. <laughs> <laughs> he just left the building. <laughs> this is a professional is. show. There he is. Hey, Robert, you're on. Oh, hey, Robert, you're on. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I did a nice intro intro for you and the whole thing. I didn't even notice you weren't at your desk. <laughs> I had to go out to the garage. But did you know that there was a laptop version for the MC10? No. <laughs> My kids made it, see? Awesome. Cool. <laughs> oh, well, well played. That's one of those really low power displays, too, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, complete with duct tape. Handyman secret weapon. All proper Revenge. projects have duct tape. So it, it <laughs> says red green. It comes on instantly. Can't find your handy. Yeah. Can't find your handsome. Should at least find you handy. Yep. <laughs> I don't know how many MC tens I've got, but there's three. I got another one with the Coco VGA, and I got two or three more in the other room. I think. Why? Now, Robert, are you involved with the Coco VGA as far as the redesign of the case? Because I know um Brendan's been putting up, you know, some roughed out, you know, he's trying to sketch out how to how to make a taller case to put on so the Coco VJ fits. That's I think that's the best solution. Just put some standoffs and then add a third piece in the middle. But mine has the the uh, keyboard on the outside. Okay. You, you've also got MC some extra 10. ports on the side. The ports are well, first one was a mistake, and then the second one was right because it was it worked. The first drilling worked, but this, but the, it's really tight. Basically, is what it comes down to. So I had to move it again. It, it makes for a nice cooling port now. 
I'll, I'll throw out one question to you that I'd actually had earlier in the week from people when they found out uh, about the, the Coco VGA for the uh, C10. Does it fully support all the modes or is it still limited to a 3K graphics screen? Okay, so I just got code from Brandon Donahue that actually adds, he, he used the, uh, he found, they found a way to do the V-Sync about three different people, I think. Uh, was Were you involved in that, Simon? Uh, I would be guilty, yes. Yeah, I thought so. So uh, Simon and Donahue and and the work of uh, that game that that had the uh, the little snowman on it. Oh yes. So they had to uh, uh, Christmas rush. Christmas yeah, Christmas, Christmas rush because because he was get yeah because his main character was invisible so they had to figure out why and stuff like that. Yeah, so, Christmas rush. I also provided. Uh, John Limbo with the code to do the synchronization. And then Ed Snyder also created his uh, that block game with the block that uses a V-Sync at the beginning uh, with human interaction. Yeah, human human driven V-Sync. Yeah, because you gotta you gotta it's interesting that they can even do it. It's pretty amazing. So I'm assuming that it must use that IRQ timer we were talking about earlier. You just basically have the person specify when that sync happens and then you know when to tr- start triggering it every Simon equivalent would be the right years. person to ask on this. Is that yeah. what you're doing, Simon? Come the on, timer? Are Yes, you- it's a timer. It's a timer. You literally time the frame because you've got uh, 262 scan lines of 57 cycles. So you've got 14,000-something cycles per frame. Um, you just have to figure out the start point to start doing the trigger, then you just trigger every 14,000-whatever cycle. Yeah, so what you do, Curtis, is set up an IRQ, and you change a mode, say, from um, CSS0 to CSS1. And you say, okay, can you make this not just loop around the screen? Can you make this static? Can you make this orange bar static or can you make this orange bar disappear out of the border um and when you've done that you've got a fix on okay i'm timed to what would potentially be a v-sync cool. that is cool yeah, it's pretty that, genius that's, method that's like, there isn't one it's like logically determining you have to be in zinc uh v-sync then Uh, sorry, I'm trying to answer the chat. I said, I said it's a it's a logical deduction. It's a logical deduction, yes, because you have to if you if you look at the if you look at the timing on the machine. Um, I'm saying 57 cycles because, um, of course, a, a an NTSC signal is four times as much as that because the clock is divided by four. So every single scan line has. Um, 57 CPU cycles. Um, so you set up a timer and you say, okay, fine, I'm going to have 57 CPU cycles and I set up a timer and I'm going to introduce a band of a CSS that's different from the normal CSS. In other words, the orange, you know, where CSS is one, you've got orange background or something like that. And, or you do the green versus white on a graphical screen, yeah. Yeah, and you have the user actually push like the arrow key until this band stands still because then you have a fix on, okay, fine. That is the timer value I need to use 
form, having this outside the actual visible area of the screen, because you've got 262 scan lines on the screen, the whole screen, but you've got 192 visible scan lines. The portion you're seeing, the green portion you're seeing with the text and the graphics and everything else is 192 scan 192 scan lines, but the whole screen is 262 scan lines. And on parallel, it would be 312. So what you're doing is actually saying, yeah, I want to get outside this border area and I want a fixed point. So you are actually triggering the timer at that fixed point because you have set a datum point. Yeah, so the, the timer IQ is being used as a virtual vsync interrupt basically once you figure out the time and when it's going to be in the border to trigger and then you just start doing it you know every equivalent of 60 hertz after that exactly exactly okay i mean take take it away robert okay um it says i cannot share while other participants are is sharing mark are you got the sharing locked out or uh hang on i just step away i'm coming back <laughs> Oh, yes, apparently I still have it from the commercials. Okay, there you go. So, okay, so um, this, uh, this little thing here, yeah, it's flipped. It is. Oh, it looks good. Wait. Wrong. You look like Kilroy peering over the top of the wall there. <laughs> <laughs> so, just want to show you this short animation, which you guys have probably some of you have seen, I'm sure. That's cool. You're mixing text characters and semi graphics for an animation. <laughs> okay. So, the way that that's achieved is. is through uh, the program, uh, the MC10 graphics tool. And uh, so what um, I wanted to show you, I'm gonna find my executable here. There it is. Is this is the, this is the MC10 graphics tool. Can't see it. Yeah. I'm you can, share the screen yet? Oh, I didn't do that. Let's see. Let me come back. I will mention that uh, Lance, and I'm hoping I'm not his last name incorrectly, Schaffhausen, says, no, that's a screen share when you're actually literally holding up a physical screen for us to see. <laughs> <laughs> it's old school. Yeah. No school. Is that working? Yeah, we see your Zoom, and now we see your tool. Okay. Yeah, so this tool, um, you could load a, I call it an MT, MCT file. That stands for MC text, I'm presuming? MC10. Uh, oh, the T's for 10, okay. Yeah, and let's see if I can Okay. 
here. This doesn't, uh, let's see, it's here. And file system of a genius. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> but um, so anyway, it's kind of irrelevant. What I really want to show you, though, because it's going to take more time than I want it to, is that you can take you can take and draw the picture yourself. I'm going to have to reboot that. Some kind of error occurred. I don't know what that was. It's because you're doing a live demo. What's always yeah. happens to me? <laughs> yeah, it actually had a. This thing is run rock solid for three weeks. I'm going to demo it. Bang, it crashed. Yeah. Actually, that was an error I've never actually seen. Okay. So, yeah. Same thing um, happens so anyway. to Bill Gates. Yeah. yeah, the famous blue screen on Windows 95. <laughs> Beautiful. So, let's say uh, we'll go with say purple. And we'll pick a color, say white. And then we'll go up here. You can go default background color. So who made this program? It's me. Wow, it's nice. So now you can just take your, uh, you select your graphic that you want, say like this one, and you go like that. And then here up here where it has this little play feature, you go to the next screen and you can uh, do more and then you go to the next screen. Oh, so you can do animations between screens. So, yeah. So that that's how I, if you get that, that's how I did that whole thing. And also I got these little arrows here. Also, okay, there's a lot here. So you can copy this screen. If you got a complex drawing, it's hard to redraw it. So you can paste that to the next screen. And so now I've got this one, this one, and this one, even though it didn't move, I can make it move. I can nudge it with these little arrows up or down. So I'll nudge, nudge, you have nudge. To draw it again. So I don't have to draw it again. Yeah, see? So I just go like that, that, like so. You can't select as a group, though, and nudge them all at one time. No, just, just, uh, just line or part. column. Because like a lot of the reason why I did that way is because most of the time it's just part of the drawing you want to move. And yeah, like you it, might have some background you were on remain static while, say, yeah. your helicopter is moving across a building or something like that. You want the buildings to stay. Yeah. And uh, so, like, here is uh, uh, has an option for basic or machine language, but that's not it's not implemented, but I want it to be implemented. And then so one what you do is you can um, you can say create strings here. And then you go over here and say show basic list. And this is the basic that creates that series but if you you also want to add one second add code to run the data and then show basic list and then so this is the this is the uh, data that would draw what we just did and this is the uh, functions that would draw that data now if you did a whole bunch, it would still work. And that's how I did that whole war scene. So 
how did I, the, the way that I got from this basic data to uh, assembly was I have another program that I can't, I'm not going to dig it up. It's going to take too much time to find it. But what it does is it uses this basic code to generate assembly. And then it, in, using the, v, the virtual MC10, you could output text as print. So it prints the assembly. And eventually I'd like to do it in here. And this, well, if you click this, it'll open um, my TASM. So, and it actually, it actually assembled, automatically assembled a test file just now. Because it says at the top here, it says assembled pass one complete, assembled pass two, number of errors zero. So there's some dummy file, you know, called test file in there. And uh, it'll probably come with a long list, yeah. So yeah, here it is right here, test bin. And your um, the test bin would be what you could execute. And the text test text is what is in there as the as your assembly instructions. So, okay, does it, everybody understand what I just said? All that stuff. Well, basically, yeah. what you're having is you're having animation frames that you're then converting either to basic or to semi language to actually generate them on the fly based on yeah. your interaction with the GUI here. Yeah, and the the step to do it with the with the virtual MC10 was just a weighted not not I did I haven't done it on here. I could actually output it output this data directly to assembly and then and then the idea was by oh no hello it's like yeah. what, it's like what Paul I lost my speakers for a second oh. Like, well, oh, can you hear us now or yeah okay sorry simon no. you had a question or just a comment no it's like what paul fiscarelli and i do with uh, the sprite compiler where you have the actual oh. uh, virtual machine integrated into your tool where you can actually compile and execute from the tool itself so i i'm liking i'm liking where you're going robert i'm liking where okay. you're going <laughs> cool. Uh, so the the link here was this was kind of wait not that okay the open C prompt that was kind of tricky to find out how to do that because it it auto once that's done I can I can automatic after you do your animation which is super simple anybody can do it right you'll be able to do your animation then you can play through it whatever it is you can you just one frame at a time once you're done. Then you can click that uh, um, open C prompt, and it'll probably be like and compile, and then that output is directly compatible with the MC10. So it'd be super easy. Anybody who can write BASIC will be able to do it. And, and do you plan on eventually having it so it automatically fires up the emulator and runs it so you can test it? Or um, yeah, that would be neat. Uh, I think I tried that. That's a that's a little difficult. This is actually VB6, so it might be kind of limited in that regard. But once you have your your bin, that's fully compatible with the uh, with the MCX SD32 or 32SD. I would say so, to you, uh, Robert. I, I would say to you, uh, contact uh, Paul Fiscarelli on that because hmm. 
we didn't have a way to insert a binary into, say, main BCC, uh, anything else. But Paul Friscarelli figured it out, and that's also that would be cool. VB. That is also VB, so we can actually run something yeah. from the IDE. I, I should I should probably say that you could probably open the the V, the virtual MC10, but as far as auto loading code into the virtual mc10 you cannot do that i don't think because it's not uh it doesn't have that feature basically in the program so the closest thing you can get is to have the virtual mc10 open and then you just go to go up into the file and and load your binary and uh it might already be defaulted to the correct folder and everything that would be pretty convenient i'm pretty sure paul fiscarelli will find a way yeah well that would be great so um Reach out to Paul Fiscarelli. So now I just wanted to share that kind of like that whole view there. Uh, another thing that I'm, I won't show you, but if you've seen Blink, that game that I made, or partial game where you, you're moving a pixel and you could fall down and explode. Um, does anybody remember that? I think we covered it, but I, I yeah, so much stuff on the show. I don't remember stuff. Where you're, you're, so, go ahead. You're, is that when you're going around through kind of a virtual world and there's uh, of uh, semi graphics for stuff? Yeah, yeah. It's like flaming yeah. pits and other kinds of things. And yeah, there's not. I mean, that might be your imagination. Yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, I don't think they're actually flaming, but they could be. Um, they, <laughs> I just they, remember it as yeah, being kind of Dante-esque. Yeah, they they do look like they're flaming in your mind because they're it's red, you know, and it looks like a lava or something down there and yeah. you fall into it and it blows up yeah so uh that okay what that is is i call that the big map and basically it's about 10 or 12k and i have another basic program that i use on the v the virtual mc10 where you could take and load that hunk of uh that 12k map and then you can you can go in and edit it it's an editor basically for that whole 10k and then the the idea is that the Blink um, game would actually make it so you could custom make pretty much any game. You, know, you, you could make your own uh, map levels with that. So that's kind of a work in progress. And then I'll go to this now. Any questions about that particular thing? I'm not really showing you that. I'll do. I'll, um, Curtis said I could do a, a better presentation, say, in January, was it? Yeah, we will do a full interview with you that we can go through like a whole bunch yeah, of your projects. In to be detail. honest, I, I probably have like, it's just so, it's crazy how much stuff I got. But it's, it, it I'm a kind of like a, you know how you have a, um, what do they call that when you work on projects and, you know, you have that one, you have the one project you're working on. You brainstorm. As soon as you get it you're like on to the next you know you're like okay i did that i'm on to the next and if you don't if you don't have like really good organizations and and um you know as far as like documenting what you did then you have to go back and try to remember what you were doing you have to relearn it yeah, <laughs> yeah. spark of insanity spark of insanity yeah okay so in this one i have uh i found these uh game boy uh tile designers and this is what i use to create that that screen that loads the mario screen and the uh commodore 64 text if anybody remembers those the mary um, one i do remember because we actually had that on the show i remember that one 
Okay. And uh, so you can go in here and you can you can modify the uh, the palette to match the MC10. And actually, this this has a mode where you can output it as data, uh, just sheer data. Um, and then you can write. There's a small program you can write to load it into the MC10. You could actually do this, use this easily for assembly. It'd be pretty simple. Of course, you're not getting paid, so it takes time, though. <laughs> um, and these are some pictures that I screwed. I did a. Took some real serious time doing. So this is an existing tool for Game Boy developers that you've adapted the palettes, et cetera, for the MC10 and creating a four-color mode. The MC10, so yeah. you can actually use this existing tool to edit yeah, like, sprites, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, you can make your own sprites. And then here is a, this is just one of the, you could do, uh, let's see, your tile size, you can change it to, Eight by eight, eight by sixteen, sixteen by sixteen, or thirty-two by thirty-two, and um, your choice. And then also, um, there's ways of uh, outputting the data that you you'll have to. Um, I'm planning to make a tutorial on that or write a instruction. It'll just be easier because it's a little bit tricky because they have um, different processors and formats and stuff but once you figure it out i think the way that i figured it out because there's almost no information on it is i i created a block graphic that was just zero one two three four five six all the way through 256 so when i loaded it into uh this great program here called hexplorer anybody use that that's, that's a hex a great, editor if i remember it's a great hex editor it does all kinds of stuff and it, it's even compatible with certain kinds of emulation and it's set up to help you out a lot for a lot of different purposes. That's actually how I made the Coco 3 uh, graphics and and uh, graphics for the MC10, all kinds of stuff. So this hex, this hex editor is really nice. It's called Explorer. So anyway, by loading that 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 block of sheer binary data, you can you can see how the uh, the map um, yeah, the mapper is laid out for the Game Boy, and then you can you can interpret it for the MC10 quite easily, and you can you can change it to the most simple form you need, you know, and that makes it so it's easy to do. Um, then I wanted to show you like a map that I created, which could be implemented easily on the MC10. Oh, cool. So it has, there's two programs. One is the font creator or the sprite creator. And the other one is, is the uh, map. You load your, you load your, your font. Uh, um, your tile set. And then you, this actually, yeah. you, your tile set. Yeah. you create the map based on the tile. Yep. Yep. And you create the map based on the tile set. Exactly. So for this sample uh, map here, which is pretty, pretty big, I mean, obviously this would be multiple screens scrolling across on, on an MC10 in, in the actual 128 by 96 mode. How much yeah. RAM does this take, like for this tile set, for example, and the map itself? Well, it's about, uh, I think it was 30 to 50K, but you don't have to load the map in like that. You don't have to load it into a graphic because you remember the full screen project. What I did is I created a, a um, um, so the, 
the graphic screen is represented by a text screen, which I move into memory somewhere, which is actually 512 uh, bytes. And so anything that displays the uh, letter, you know, the letter A is in that one byte, but it also displays graphically in one spot, but it never uses more than the, the memory on the screen and that 512K. So you could kind of do the same thing with this person. So like easily. a key might be an A and a rock might be a B and a diamond might be a C. Right, right. So it only uses one byte per graphic in that, in that way. Now, a question for, for basic programmers here. I, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming that the MCX-128 and the MCX-SD32, because they have sort of extended basic built in, I assume they have the equivalent of get put commands. Is that correct? A what? A get put command for doing graphics blocks? No. I think those are missing, actually. Those oh, okay. There. I, mean, I was thinking this would be perfect. You could load this into the get put array, and then you can actually just dump these on basic with put. But if it's well, and the get put is inherently really, really slow. So you really wouldn't you really wouldn't want to use that. Matter of fact, with, uh, I think it's, is it James Diffendaffer's work? And I think Simon's familiar with it. And, with the basically you 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 I think you you like roll the data onto the screen from a I think it's from a push pull scenario or you put it on the stack and just it's fast the method for doing it anyway. And uh um if you do it that way. <laughs> but so if this you're is more a, meant for ML programmers or maybe a C oh, cross yeah. compiler. If, if you're in assembly, I mean if you're using assembly matter. If you if you're a lot of people are into efficiency, you know somebody like what Simon's doing, he's going to be worried about clock cycles a lot. But if you're just a basic programmer, you're going to be in heaven because everything's going to be faster than you could possibly imagine, even if you're not that good at writing it. You know, <laughs> I'm sure Jim can testify to that. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I like the fact um, that you actually managed to adapt a tool for a completely different and, and a bit more modern platform, and it actually works fine in the MC10 for designing maps and tiles. So you can create an entire, you know, yeah, if anybody, assets if, for it. If, it. if anybody wants to play with this, you can, I can put a link up from my, uh, from my uh, what is it called, uh, Google Drive, because I've got it up there. Right yeah, there. I see there's some requests in chat already for that. They were wondering if they could, is it available for download? So yeah, there's definitely some interest. Okay. I can uh, I'll that. put that up later. But the uh um yeah, and all this is actually compatible with the color computer as well, so obviously pretty useful. Any questions on that? Have you actually made a game that uses it yet? No, I haven't. Uh, but I'm, like I said, the closest, okay, like the, the closest game, the, probably the most complete game I've made that was the most impressive was the, was the diamond run with Jim, you know, uh, then I made a version of it that uh, was pretty hard. And I think, I think he really liked that one. Didn't you? Oh Yeah. <laughs> Not puzzle games. <laughs> that one was fun, uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's. So do you, you consider yourself more of a tools developer? Like the game writing isn't something you're that interested in, I, or, or maybe I, it's a I collaboration. Wanna, okay, I like doing 
uh, I like the idea of doing a game. I've been trying to do games, but I get you know distracted with the graphics and stuff like that. So, um, but eventually, I hope to get a good game going. But even if you get a great game going, you still got this problem with sound, you know, on the MC10 because you're going to be going like, okay, every time I pick up something, it's got to stop and go beep, and then it actually just locks everything up. So, kind of, it's one of the dilemmas of writing a game, you know, is uh, is having a good sound while you're playing the game. So I think there's a, with this new S, uh, the SD system that we've got, uh, some of these uh, barriers will be lifted, I think, pretty, pretty soon. Because um, cool. the, you know, the SD card technically on the uh, color computer, uh, the two, color computer two or three, is actually a little more, you know, because it was an actual system for that system. The, the MC10 is not as constrained because it's like completely free of that, which is interesting, right? Do you know what I mean? Not, not quite. What, what do you mean? It's, it's not as constrained. Um, so there's a, there's a mode in the, uh, in the, uh, the MCX 32 SD called the GR, the GRA graphic file. So that's, I think it's six K. Um, exactly 6k that you can load it doesn't care what it is you can load anything in there so it'll just load a binary file arbitrarily it could be a audio file it could be have to be really small but it would be you can look at anything it's a it's basically but in we go to the coco suddenly you've got to do all kinds of stuff to get that file over there you got to convert the file make it compatible you've got your so in other words you know that the first, I think it's like, is it five bytes that you got to have on five? Oh, bytes? you mean like the the, the pre headers, like the five, yeah, yeah the load in yeah. address and yeah, size of that. the block and all that stuff. So, so for all the, kinds of file formats that you have to right. follow. Yeah. Now on the when you load in the graphic area on the on the uh, thirty two uh, SD, it don't care. It doesn't care at all. You can load anything in there. It doesn't need the I, I will say the SDC does have a mode called streaming that was actually put in at Snyder's request where you can actually tell it to load or link up to a large file in SD card that's not a native Cocoa file. Like we use it for sound demos and stuff like that or, you know, movie files that have mixture of graphics and sound. You can just tell it, start blasting me bytes and you just load a byte, load a byte, load a byte and it doesn't care what format. If the thing can be oh. two gig long for you care. Oh, nice. And then you can just stream it across. There's a new streaming protocol in the later versions of the SDC firmware that support that. And Ed's done a few demos that, that do that too. So we do have a kind of a way to do that. Okay. The uh, So when I found that out, I was like, well, I could, could I just take a, a BMP and load it in? And I, you know, you could take a small BMP, load it in. If you've seen my BMP converters that that do the converting from the BMP to the to these kind of graphics. Um, that's another thing that I kind of got lost in for a while. <laughs> yeah, because I, I can see that being really useful if you want to do a graphical adventure game because you have access to the entire SD card, I'm presuming. You could be loading in like graphical scenes that you're not restricted by the amount of K of actual RAM you've got in your MC10. You could just load in the next picture and the game itself could have like five mega graphics. You could just blast in it gets difficult because you can't you can't load in a big huge file you, you can only oh, no you load that. in a chunk like here's you know scene Just for the, room one yeah and here's the scene for room two now in the upper memory you can load in but you've got those same rules that you got to deal with you know the header the header and the 
um, those header numbers have to be there and the, has to be a valid binary file. But in that 6K, you're free to load whatever. It just loads it like a graphic, a binary graphic. And yeah. um, so let's see what else I got here. I like sprinkles on my donuts. <laughs> sprinkles on donuts are a sin against God. <laughs> yeah, donut seems to be the unofficial theme of today's show because we've seen Simon's bouncing donut. Now we've got uh, welcome to donut talk. Just show you a couple more graphics here. Did you get this uh, fascination with graphics? Because when you first got your MC10, graphics was such a hard thing to get working on it. Yeah, I did. When I first got the MC10 and I found out you could switch to those high-resolution screens, I was just enamored with the idea that you could do text on those screens somehow. Right. And, uh, yeah. So back in 2005, I started doing that full-screen project. Yep. And... Uh, um, Hopefully, I can. I'm, what I'm planning on doing is I'm planning to do a different print command that you can load in instead of doing a whole modification of the whole system. Just load a print command in that will you can just leave active, and then that way you can do like um, um, to find the print. Uh, we'll just say um, see. You could do like cg3 print or cg um whichever mode you're in you know yeah. and uh and then it would be willing to print on that screen you know your your you whatever you want like text or sprites or whatever that'd be awesome a, that's a pretty common experience for mc tenors i think is that when you first got your machine and realized it couldn't really do graphics very easily then trying to get it to do graphics became kind of like the the search for the Shangri-La. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all poke this and poke. It's like, it's like getting the original 4K Coco where you had set reset graphics just like the MC10 does. Yeah. But they had this little section, the technical reference section, the end of the original big color basic manual, the second edition, that tells you how to poke it to turn on like 64 by 64 for color. And at the time, I didn't understand any of that stuff. I just blindly typed it in. Oh, wow, high res. And that's all I could do. it. And you try to poke stuff on the screen. It's so friggin' slow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember using some of that to try to get graphics out of the MC10 and getting stumbling, uh, you know. But doing the extension to basic, like you're mentioning, Robert, where maybe you have a special version of the print command you load into RAM that you can link into yeah. the basic interpreter to say, I want to print this sprite tile, number five or whatever it is, at this location on the screen, and then to blast it on you know, fast with the ML routine built into the command itself. Yeah. Then you could write a basic game with graphics like this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the, what, I, what I, I have two different ways I would like to do it is that in, you know, it's um, two bits per pixel. So when you, uh, when you, let's see, okay, so you, it'd be nice if you could do your, your sprite per pixel. So it'd be smoother when you're, you know, printing your graphics. And but if you if you move four, you'd be moving four pixels over if you moved per byte. So someday I'd like to make it so you could just define like a horizontal uh, vertical resolution or a print at, you know, however you want to look at it. 
Yeah. I mean, the two ways that we usually do it on our end is that uh, if, if you, you can write in the shifting routines, which greatly slows the graphics down, which is why get put, if you use the G option on, on basic, on extended basic on the Cocoa was quite slow because it's happened to manually do the shifts of everything to get it to move. Obviously, yeah, the vertical is yeah. not a problem because that's just byte offset. Uh, or you yeah. you de- you design your tiles. You've got say like say if you're doing the two two bits per pixel four color mode. If you want to move two pixels at a time, you might do one that's aligned to the first half of the byte and do a second set of the tiles aligned to the second half and overlapping. And that way, you can actually print them fast because you're doing you yeah, just have to I, mask it on with an or type thing. And there's one more complexity: is that do you make it so it just bumps the edge and stops, or do you have it cross over? To the other side. Yeah, I, I, most games. If you're doing like a, like you're showing on this screen here, where you have a map that's larger than the physical screen, obviously you'd you'd stop it as soon as you hit the edge. But yeah, I could see some certain cases you want it to wrap. Yeah, I probably first for the first one, I'd probably stick with just bumping the edge and go from there. The I do like your problem. tiles, though. I mean, for four colors, these look actually quite impressive. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, those are fun to finally have a um, nice little art program you can use to just create a, a sprite like that. And we'll get into it when we talk, start talking to some of the other game developers like Jim and, and Greg and stuff here on the MC10. It'd be interesting to see, do you guys have your own little utilities for editing graphics like this, or you just hack it out with hex codes or actually literally drawing the pixels you know, one at a time through basic, et cetera? So um, we'll find out. I think that's all I got for now. Okay. Any questions from the chat? I don't know if Mark's been keeping track of those or um, any questions from the panel here for, for Robert. I definitely right. do want to have you on for a, a full length interview to go through some of the other projects you mentioned to me during our pre-call and stuff. Cause you've got a lot of stuff you've done and some Cocoa yeah. stuff too. So that'll be a more wide ranging interview. Yeah. And the uh, Alice 30, uh, Alice. Yeah. yeah. Alice 32 and the, with the SD 32. And then we had one qu- or one comment from Fabrizio Caruso, and uh, he was wondering about if Alan Cox will be has. A, we were aware that Alan had written the C compiler, and actually Alan himself will be covering that in his segment there. So we'll we'll get into that because he talks about he's doing some development for C on the MC10, um, which I think this graphics editor would be perfect for. I mean, if you can you know, embed the data, you can actually write C, so you can get that speed between basic and machine language, but do some pretty decent stuff with. Yeah. Uh, Dave and Sharon Beery and Dave. Dave's done a lot of uh, Cocoa Three graphics lately that he's been doing. He's been working on some games as well. And he said those four color graphics look great. I totally agree. Thank you. Any further questions from the panel, or should we go on to our next guest? One. Did you have a question, Ron? Or no. one. I think I. I really. I've always enjoyed watching. You know what what Robert's been up to, <laughs> um, you know, I get to see all the cool little animations and things. Um, you know, it's a, it's a side of artwork is a, or art, I guess, is something that, um, I've never really kind of branched out into and just to see the create the sheer creativity of, you know, getting those things going. So, yeah. And working with such um, a limited palette and being able to pull off yeah. graphics like that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Always. I've always appreciated it. There's a couple of games I have been working on. There's that, ironically, that one pandemic <laughs> right before we got hit with a pandemic. It's all your fault, Robert. <laughs> that was crazy. 
And uh, so I've been working, I, I had worked on that one and I'd like to make that a little more, uh, it doesn't, it's like buggy and it's not working right, but that one could be really fun. It's got, matter of fact, it's got like, uh, uh, it just uses SG4 graphics, but it, it each graphic is like a code for something like green is like trees growing and it used as a resource and the yellow ones are like gold. And, and then it's got like a, um, a parser that goes through and, and, and finds people and, and does a multiplier to multiply the people and change the, uh, and if people get too congested, that spreads the, 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 um, you know, the disease. And, and then you can, you can, you can, uh, mine, uh, gold and, and lumber, and you can, you know, do things to try to offset this pandemic. I'll probably have to add things like masks or something, huh? <laughs> social distancing between your characters yeah. and toilet toilet paper hoarding yeah <laughs> which which makes it so the trees are less like, yeah like you're, like, you're cutting down trees to make toilet paper yeah sounds like settlers <laughs> of Catan <laughs> also I just got mentioned from our private chat here in the zoom uh, Simon has to go so I want to thank Simon for coming on and showing some of his MC10 demos and yeah. talking about the sound routine etc so. right by the way, that that game was called something else, and I think it was Jim that named it Pandemic, <laughs> wasn't it? Jim, didn't you come up with that? You're muted, Jim. Maybe I can't remember. Yeah. We're to blame both of you think, for the I actual think you suggested pandemic. It, you said you said I think it would be better named Pandemic. I, I think I don't know what I called it. Like who knows? I want plausible but, deniability now that we're in an actual <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> I have oh, no yeah. independent recollection yeah. of that event. <laughs> I have no recollection yet. Well, I don't remember. Well, I don't recall. But writing, okay. writing, a, writing a game is a huge challenge, you know. So, yeah, I'm discovering that with any, mine. Anybody who has actually completed a game, porting a game, I've ported a lot, you know, games is a little easier, but not that easy. Like, look at the proficient, the, how proficient jim is my god jim's a machine i mean he's he's he's, the the software mc10 equivalent of ed snyder he's a cylon or something and he's he's just generating the code you run into all kinds of problems it's uh and then you have to you get stumped and you have to just uh work on it and because every basic you know from different machines is just slightly different yeah subtle nuances and some of them are not so subtle some of them are like you know a blunt instrument to the side of the head yeah, like that chess game. Uh, I did a, I did a, um, I think I transported uh, the same version that Jim did, and he got through it. I think mine was working, but it, it, there was some bugs, you know, like it wasn't hundred percent, you know, it was pretty minor stuff. But uh, yeah, that could be quite the challenge. So uh, I'm hoping someday to get a more impressive game done. I've got one called Gone Fishing. I don't think I've ever shown anybody um, where you're supposed to, you know, you uh, gone fishing, you know, you go fishing and you go into the shop and you're going to buy like bait and get different kinds of poles. You can upgrade, you sell your fish and get more money to buy poles and to go back out and fish. And uh, so that's the idea. I don't know if I've shown anybody any of that, but it's partially done. Well, maybe you'll have that one uh, ready to show off in January when we have. <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> okay, Both I don't see any other questions from the chat. Any other questions from the panel before we go on to the next guest? Going once, going twice. 
and we will have you on. We'll we'll arrange the actual dates here. I'm starting a book for January right now. We've got one tentative book for January 15th ready, okay. uh, which is a rescheduled due to some uh, medical emergency, which I'll mention later on the, after the special part of the show is done. Um, so next up, we have Greg Dion. And of course, Greg's uh, Pac-Man uh, version for the MC10 was this week's game challenge. And Greg actually came on to Sloopy's live stream on Wednesday and chatted up with the uh, people playing the game so they could all blame him for dying constantly. So, <laughs> yeah. so welcome, Greg. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's... We're not where are they. We're not where are they. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think it's, for me, it's a special treat, I think, just to just to be here and just see everyone, at least virtually. Um, you where know, are you? I'm in Boston. Oh. Um, so that's where, that's where I'm my, I kind of was, Grew up here, and it was a uh, fun little experience for me. Um, so yeah, but it's a treat, though. I, I think I talked a little bit about the Yahoo years in the talk, um, but you know, uh, we all kind of came out of the woodwork, probably around I don't know 2000, 2003, and just you know over the years, we've kind of chit chatted and exchanged ideas, and sometimes argued, and <laughs> um, you know, hopefully, hopefully politely. <laughs> um, and it's just a it's a serious treat to see to see people actually in real life um, or virtual life, I guess. Um, so for me, it's it's kind of cool. Uh, anyway, um, I did prepare 15 minutes worth of material, and it probably will turn into 20 because you know I I like to present as much as I can, and I'll I'll try to talk fast. If hopefully uh, you you can. Uh, hear my hear it through my Boston American accent where I I kind of rattle things up too quickly, but I'll try to keep my R's properly pronounced. <laughs> All right, so I'm nothing gonna, from Cuba. Yeah, I'm going to attempt to share my screen, and I hope it's the correct one. Um, I've never attempted to do this, so we'll see if this works. Yeah, it should show you previews. You can select the window so we can see it in the thumbnail. You should be able to tell which one. Right. So let's yep, see. There we go. Micro Coco so, Talk, Greg Dion. You got it. All right. Well, sounds good. So I'll try to make sure I can move back and forth. I'll jump right in it. I called it the Micro Coco Talk as opposed to the Coco Talk because <laughs> this is the micro color computer. So this is the Micro Coco Talk. Um, Makes sense. So let's see. So I think, as most of you know, the MC10 was introduced in 1983 and promptly discontinued in. 1984. It was a commercial flop. Um, and in the, I think it was like November of 84, I kind of was, I always wanted a computer for a long, long time. Um, and so I, I saw one that was dirt cheap and I said, oh, if I put that in my Christmas wish list, Santa's going to give it to me. So um, Santa saw that uh, it didn't have many games and it was a really good opportunity for me to learn. My father was in the technology and he could program and whatnot. So he he put two and two together and he said, ah, this is the machine for my son. Um, so I put some hair on his chest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And don't so, get distracted by playing games all the time. You'll actually have to learn to write your right. own games if you want to play. Exactly, them. exactly. So Where, where'd you get that picture of Euland? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I stole it off the internet. <laughs> I didn't doctor it. I should put a little MC10 in the in the sack. But yeah, true. <laughs> and anyway, I did get a memory upgrade for it. So for me, the the MC10 that I'm familiar with is the 16K version. And I apologize for all all of you who had 4K versions of it. And I haven't really been supportive of you. 
mostly because for me, the, the 16K was the, the my childhood machine. And so the nostalgia factor is strong. Um, so anyway, my dad really, really wanted me to learn math. And he, he loved computing, like a mathematical computing. So he had me, you know, at my young early age, I think of 10 or 12 or whatever, you know, he had me doing geometry problems, you know, so in this case, you know, it's a ladder of a certain length, you know, uh, rests on a square box of a certain, you know, side length. And uh, how high can it go if, if it touches the wall and the, and the ground and the box, right? That turns out to be a, a quartic equation that you solve and you get a number and you feel great. Yay, number. Or I could play games, right? Um, so you see micro checkers here on the right, which is a much maligned game, and, and rightly so because it, you know, some of the uh, design decisions are a little bit questionable. Anyway, games won out for me, and true to form, I I took the little basic programming language that came with the thing. It was a little manual, it was very well written, and I started writing my own games because there wasn't any games. Um, so uh, I made a program called Laser Zap and Airwolf. Do you remember that TV show from the 80s? Yep. Um, so I made one of those. And those are lost to posterity. They're on a, they're decaying on some uh, tape as we speak somewhere in some attic, somewhere in a back recess. So I don't uh -huh. have them anymore. Uh -huh. um, but anyway, those are the, my childhood games that I wrote. Um, and then, you know, as I kind of went on, I, I started learning a little bit more about the machine itself, right? You know, it's one thing to have the, the manual there to teach you basic, but it's another thing to poke around, literally, no pun intended, um, with your machine and see what you could do. And, you know, with peaks and pokes, you could have um, additional characters that you wouldn't have gotten had you just been using the pure basic. Um, so, you know, that uh, a, reverse, a reverse video zero, that you can only get that through a poke. Um, and then, you know, as it poked a little bit more, and I... I intruded into areas of the memory which were completely not documented and I got this very weird looking screen staring back at me and then I realized I could make games with that so I you know made a little helicopter game in SG6 mode um, for those of you who know what SG6 is it's the it's the graphics mode of the uh, 6487 that lets you have you know a little bit more you know three uh, six six characters in a semi graphics mode. Yeah, it's similar layout wise to the Tier City Model One, where every graphics character was a right. two by three instead of a two. Right, by exactly. Three. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, so, and then of course, I like many of you, I <laughs> I uh, had type in programs that I got from a from a magazine. I didn't have Micro. I would have loved having a Micro uh, that the folks in Australia had, um, but you know, I had family computing, and every every month a new issue would come out with even fancier computers than mine. Um, but the type-ins still worked on my machine for the most part. And then, like many of you uh, who play with the MC-10, you, and, you know, if you got a hold of a Lost World pinball and you were confronted with this ridiculously rich-looking graphics. And I was like, there's something going on here that I don't know about because the basic manual has didn't tell me anything about this. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I knew enough back then to say, well, this is probably something that assembly let you do. So I, I did what any, any kid would do. I would say, well, maybe I'll learn assembly language programming. Now, if you look very carefully, this is the 6809. The, the COCO is a 6809, and this is a 6803. The instructions, well, they're not quite the same, right? 
So, but I think, you know, with the patience and the, uh, of, uh, you know, I think a 13, 12, 13 year old, I went and I systematically determined the differences between the two. And then I ended so you did up trial and error to learn a semi language yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the and, I mean, and that's seventy-five percent of the instructions are identical, right? But that's a really good few, book. They're different, right? So I wrote my own assembler um, in assembly, <laughs> um, and I did a split screen so everything nice. would fit. Um, so I could have thirty-two lines as opposed to just the sixteen. And uh, hmm. so this is the instruction set that I'm familiar with. You know, there's no the immediate mode. I didn't love. I didn't like the little pound thing. That that was crazy to me. So I wrote it myself and a comma was kind of like, look this address up. And you'll see that the instructions, even though the 6801 doesn't use this instruction format, well, because I had the 6809, these look like 6809 instructions. So um, all my assembly up until the Yahoo error was written in this form. Um, so I, you know, I have a, have a certain 6809 in my brain, but you know, only a six eight zero one in my <laughs> the, on my fingertips. So, so you you made up your own mnemonics basically for the six eight zero three, not based right. on. Right. And I didn't original. I didn't know the difference between an undocumented opcode and a real opcode. So I used undocumented opcodes, um, and so that that may come up later. But um, we had a question in the chat actually on the previous slide. There's a oh, six. Sure. is asking pull n. I'm sorry. He was asking about the pull n instruction on the lower left there. That's basically just pull nothing, right? So n is for nothing. Um, so basically, it just uh, increments or decrements the stack. And I think I'm my brain is blanking which way it goes. I think this says the stack pushes up. So push nothing, pull nothing. Just basically, don't incur the extra time to actually write to the stack, but just reserve a spot. And pull nothing means take something off the stack, but don't. Don't waste a register with it. So that's pull in. Um, LCC should look familiar. That's load of condition codes. That always loads it into the A register. Um, and SETI searches for extraterrestrial intelligence. Is that right? Uh, the set it's S E I, right? So set I was the. And I guess I guess I was pretty close with the mnemonic. Um, but anyway, so that's kind of the. So it's a split screen, and I had you could type in and you could edit on the fly. It's kind of a self-modifying program. So if you root over it, you could clobber it and it would self-modify on top of it. So good good times. At any rate, so what did I do with it? Um, so there's, you know, of course I was in high school at the time, they had science fairs and, you know, I was fooling around with a calculator one day and um, there was an old textbook and it told me that if I took one minus one third plus one fifth minus one seventh plus one ninth, yada, 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 then I multiply that by four, I get pi, right? So um, anyway, I kind of was pulling, fooling around and I realized that after 10, 10 uh, turns, you know, I got 3.041. And then after 100, I got 3.131592. And then more and more and more, right? Because I said, well, gee, well, what if I just, you know, just add the, the number to it and kind of played around with it. And then I saw some more digits repeat and I said, well, I don't know, maybe I'll make a program out of this and make a science fair project out of it. So I did. Um, and basically what I had discovered was a relationship between the Gregory series expansion for pi and the Euler secant numbers. Um, you know, I didn't have any of the mathematics at the time to be able to understand that. Um, but, you know, I did, I did know the, ser I, the series was coming out. Um, I was able to kind of reverse engineer that. 
And, you know, you fast forward, you know, 20, 20 years later, you can actually look at what I, what I kind of stumbled into right on Wolf Farm Research. Um, it was by um, Borwin and Bailey. And those guys, you know, they're, they're famous for being able to compute uh, the one billion gajillionth decimal of pi without actually computing the previous numbers. So um, they're pretty good. But they actually mentioned the thing that I kind of stumbled into in their paper. Um, the next year, I did something a little bit more fun, I, um, and it did better. I got, you know, the, the other one was an honorable mention, and this one was the third third place, um, where I said, you know what, I'm going to do my science fair project on tic-tac-toe. So I did, and I, you know, used lots of math names, and I said rotational invariance and things like that, um, and, you know, made it learn, kind of self-learn, you know, how can it do a winning game using the MC10. And so I... You know, I had that and I presented it and I did better and I felt really good. But, you know, both both of those projects lost to the potato battery. Um, oh, so. I hate that potato battery girl. <laughs> so at any rate, so, um, you know, it's kind of a lesson is that it's more about your presentation and more about what you say and how you use it than the actual stuff itself. It was a it was a cruel lesson to learn in life. And. You know, maybe the, the potato battery, I'm sure, is a lot more useful than tic-tac-toe. So, um, any rate, I fast forward to the Yahoo era. This is where I met, you know, pretty much a good number of people on the panel. Um, and, of course, you know, this is the part where, you know, my computer wasn't, the MC-10 was kind of on its last legs. Um, it's the only computer I owned until the year 2000. And then, um, you know, I it started to lose its its peps. So, I needed a replacement. So uh, Chris Mien, and I hope I'm saying his name right, um, you know, he had a little uh, thing for X Windows uh, that'd be not not Microsoft X, but, you know, the good old MIT X11 Windows um, by the Athena project at MIT. Um, anyway, it's, it worked with that, but the timing was not quite right. But um, James the Animal Tamer came out with a virtual NC10 uh, for XP. And that's what I used. It was great. And if it hadn't been for this, um, quite frankly, I would probably never looked at the MC10 again. Um, it was really that for me, that was what kept the fun alive. Um, so I really, you know, shout out James, if you're watching this. Nice We're job. not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> and I think when we did our pre-call, you mentioned like his actually had a full debugger in it too. So it was like really yeah, well, good. I, yeah. I, I exchanged the source code for, for Pac-Man, <laughs> for the debugger. So he went and put a debugger in. Um, so anyway, to talk about Pac-Man, you know, I, at the time I had access to a ROM image um, from the actual tr true game, and I was able to reverse engineer that and figure out how the monsters moved. Um, so, you know, being a good MC10 user, I poured it all as much as I could reasonably do and put it into the MC10. Um, so if you look, you'll see that the basic shape around the monster pen is preserved, although I clearly didn't have enough room to do the full maze. Um, but, you know, most of the other things were emulated. So the, the timing, how the monsters leave the pen, um, the, the attack strategy, I'll talk about that next slide. Um, you know, the corners where the monsters go, um, you know, the timing of when the pellets arrive, when the, when the, when the fruits show up, um, the safety, you know, if you... If a ghost is underneath, I don't know if you can see my, my mouse. Yep, I can see it. Um, the, the ghost won't go up the T. They'll never go up the T. So here and here in Pac-Man, here and here, the ghosts will not go up the T. Um, so you can kind of 
hang out there nice and safe while a monster passes underneath you. So those are emulated. Um, that'll help your Pac-Man game. I don't mention like when we, as we had this game as the, the the game on challenge this past week, there's some of the people that do play a lot of arcade games and are much better at it than me. A few of them actually commented that the, uh, the map, the patterns of the ghosts and stuff seem to be quite close to the arcade. And obviously that's because you had based it on the real arcade. Game. Right. Exactly. Yep. So, and then, you know, the, the buoy, which is uh, when you can go right through a ghost at certain key periods of time, that's also emulated. Um, you know, in the real game, you could actually, with a certain set of initial moves, you can actually go right through any ghost. Um, and there's a there's a page that explains all that. I won't get into that, but um, it has to do with the timing, the watchdog timer, and um, you know, every every so often, it just it runs out of juice, and it just you know, it just you you can get a free one, <laughs> you get a free pass. Um, and then the cruise elbow, when you've eaten up enough dots, the red ghost will speed up and come and get you. Um, and uh, the cornering's the same, so Pac-Man goes faster around corners. Um, another piece of trivia is that in the attract screen, um, the you know your your the Pac-Man will follow the pink the pink ghost. So it, so in the attract screen, you see it moving all around. That's just a blind algorithm just tracking the pink ghost. That's what's making Pac-Man move. Um, so a little bit more fun for the for those of you who don't know a little bit of trivia. Um, there's more notes at the Game Internals website that I have listed here. But you know the basic idea is that um, the red ghost, the blinky, will will tra track you exactly where you are. Um, the pink ghost kind of looks two dots or four dots depending on the dip setting of your machine. You know, in the direction you're going, will target that. That'll be the spot it tries to go to. And then the inky, the, the little blue ghost, basically will try to trap you based upon that point. So it says, well, where's red? Where's the target for pinky? Well, I'll go diametrically opposite that and go right there. And the idea is to box you in between red and blue. Right? Um, make a quick turn, and then it just goes off randomly. But um, for the most We're part, successful. it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous when it's close to you. And then Clyde basically... You know, as soon as it gets within eight dots of you, and literally eight dots, he does, you know, X squared plus Y squared, no square root, but just, you know, within eight dots, um, it'll track you exactly like red until you get to that radius, and then it goes and retreats to its own corner. So, you know, if you take all those rules um, and put them together, then this becomes a safe spot in Pac-Man. So if you go straight up and look up, right, then... You know, and for certain cases, that'll be a very safe, stable spot for you to be, and the ghost will just go around you. There's a similar, similar rules will make this particular spot, the lower left, be a safe spot. Of course, it'll be have a lot of setup in order to get it to that. Otherwise, it'll get eaten. But um, if you can get it into that, then these these ghosts will loop around in that little circle and be trapped in there based on the rules. So. Um, I know, so you're much better at the game than the rest of us because I can see all the bonus shapes you got on the side there. And I don't think I ever <laughs> saw some of those before. So, <laughs> yeah. so um, anyway, so here's the complete list of those things. Um, the sounds I thought would be kind of fun if I could give like a little voice sample. So when you hit the cherry, you're actually hearing me say cherry and then strawberry, beach, pineapple, apple, galaxian flagship, bell, and key. Right. So that's my digitized voice right there. Um, and that's what you hear theoretically. I don't know if you could hear it, but um, if you ever listen carefully, you'll hear it strawberry or, or cherry on the, on the opening boards. 
Um, and the sound wasn't done with any timers. The sound was done in line, cycle counting, good old fashioned way. Um, so the, the game I had originally had a different idea for it. Uh, it's basically going to be Pac-Man battle of the sexes. So Ms. Ms. Pac-Man versus Pac-Man. Right. And so it was a two player game. And so they would kind of, you'd have one person kind of really scrunched next to each other and the scouts on or not to, and to, to knock the other player's hand off the keyboard, but um, they would both be comp- uh, trying to get their fingers in this little narrow MC-10 keypad where one is controlling Ms. Pac-Man, one's controlling Pac-Man. And um, so if you if they kissed, a little magical heart would appear um, and all the ghosts would turn blue and you could eat them. But if you ate the heart, then you're the one who didn't eat the heart would turn blue and you could eat that person. You could make them lose a life. So it was a... A little bit of that and you know you could get points for kissing the others derriere if you wanted to um so uh there's a little bit tongue-in-cheek um i never completed it but you can see the idea in the intermission so you'll see the first one where they kiss you see the heart show up and then if you get to the other ones you'll see that you know miss pac-man comes up eats the heart and then decides to completely eat uh pac-man now that sounds like a good game yeah, that, uh, you should complete that one. That sounds interesting. <laughs> maybe one day. Maybe I mean, it's a hobby. It takes takes forever. To have to have to start a GoFundMe for MC10 games. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, maybe maybe in a few years. Maybe when because I'm then, or something. Then somebody will go. Okay, hey, I could make a little money. Yeah, maybe, yeah the next um, game I did after. So I, as you know, I exchanged the source code for Pac-Man with uh, James Tamer for a debugger, and so he gave me a debugger. And so what did I do with it? I went and made obnoxious textures. So Obnoxious Tetris was a game that I had played in college where basically it gave a critique of your play as you were playing it. Uh, it would taunt you, it would yell at you and do things. So I, I kind of stole that idea and tried to make it you know, go with uh, Tetris. There I am using the interrupt and you can see it not so cleverly disguised in that little red area. That's where the interrupt shows up um, on a stock MC-10. And here's the basic routine of how it does it. I'm not going to get into it, obviously, but, you know, the, the sounds that you hear, I'll actually explain what they are because I'm not quite sure they're completely audible. But um, if you get uh, all four, you know, in a Tetris, hopefully you know how to play Tetris, but when you get all four uh, blocks, then you hear Arnold Schwarzenegger's hasta la vista, baby, right? You hear him in the background. And if you get three, you know, it says, I'll bet you think you know how to play this game, right? And um you know, if if at the last minute you do a slide and it does a good job, it'll say, nice slide. Um, and then, you know, if you make a mistake where it's clear that you have a lot of space underneath the block, it'll go, uh-oh, right? So it, it has a little bit of smarts in how you play. And then, of course, the random taunts, like there's a, you know, which, which digitize a little bit differently and a, and a wah-wah, Debbie Downer, and then a nanny-nanny-goo-goo. And then a ah, and then a, a meow, and then a and a quack. Right. So um, those are the sound effects I added just for for giggles. And um, uh, I think a lot of people found them annoying. So I think most people play it with the sound off. Um, but anyway, it's a fun thing, and this is kind of more of an exercise in how you can use the timer um, and use uh, use background, you know, use a background uh, sound while you're still playing the game. So for Pac-Man, you didn't do that. You actually just inlined all the... Pac-Man was inlined. And the, the, if you'll notice that if you 
if in the beginning of the game, when you if you hit the fruit before actually eating a ghost, or um, then uh, the sound will be a little bit better quality because the the alignment of all the monster movements is different as soon as you hit a power pellet because they go into a random sequence of moves. And then, you know, back to our good old Yahoo community. Um, you know, I think it's Jim, I think was probably doing a lot, a lot of games and I, I would play them of course. And, you know, and then some I would play and I said, you know, maybe I could write a routine for that. So, you know, here's three of his games where I, you know, take, took something and tweaked it. So I loved his jeweler game. So I made a little assembly routine that could quickly search for three in a row, you know, three to diagonally and say, okay, that's a, that's a match and return. And then I made a little line drawing routine for, you know, a maze game so that it would go render quickly. And then I'm not sure if I did this or someone else did, but I, I, I might've done it, which was, you know, adding a, a, a fast way to draw. When you hit the return key, it'll show up as a green line, but, you know, to move, to make a quick animation where trees move up, um, you know, you could replace that with a pure, pure blue characters. So anyway, it's just a couple of things. So um, Jim seemed to be open to machine code. And I said, well, you know, his style of programming is really, really close to assembly. Um, how you think the way he lays out his memory, the way he declares things. And I said, you know, maybe I, I, I could try maybe taking my hand at, you know, documenting some of the things that I did. Um, and then maybe, maybe he'd learn or, and then, you know, make it hopefully that anyone could use. Um, so, you know, I made a, assembly tutorial, you know, basically with a memory map of the MC-10, how the instructions worked or <laughs> as best as I could describe them, and some of the graphics modes, um, the, you know, how, how you turn them on and off, how you can read the keyboard from assembly, um, how do you toggle sound, the little bit timer, and how you use timers. Um, so it, it used the shareware TASM, the TASM assembler, um, that came bundled with VMC-10. So that's how I got onto the TASM compiler was that's because what James Tamer did, he, he bundled that with his thing. And so TASM became kind of my de facto go-to for, for assembly. I know there's other people who use different assemblers, but anyway, because of that decision, I, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of became my assembler. Um, so Jim tried it. I think he tried it with his son, I think. And uh, well, he, he tried it for a little bit and maybe it didn't quite so work out quite so well, but I think Robert, Robert did. I think, I think Robert, I don't know if you, yeah, I've been used. I use it as a reference. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it I'll get there have... when I retire. It's my retirement. And he, he's actually got some sound routine in there that I haven't quite figured out yet, but, uh, yeah. which is nice. Yeah. But, you know, when we, when we do the sound in the background, they'll definitely, you know, be pretty much verbatim taking what I have here and making a little routine for it. Yeah. And then say, well, if I couldn't, if I couldn't get Jim to do assembly, maybe I could bring assembly to Jim. So, um, so I made a, I tried to make a, a basic compiler and I thought I would keep it simple, right? You know, restricted to integers, one dimensional arrays, you know, blow off string concatenation. Um, and, uh, and I said, okay, well, I'll try it on Jim's programs. I think I had one where I got a clean compile on the thing but it just was a mess, right? It, everything, the math needed more than 16 bits to be accurate. I needed signed math, uh, two-dimensional arrays, you know. Uh, Jim stopped using a variable name after next, and it's like, okay, well, now I need to use the stack to keep track of the last 
variable. Oh my goodness. And, and data, uh, oh, oh man, it's like, all right. If it'd be like a whole project, right? All his work that took years to build, you'd have to rewrite every single one of them. I'm like, yeah, he's not going to do that. <laughs> it's like, he's, he's making new games. <laughs> um, so a failure right there. Um, and then I had a more, I'd say, well, maybe I could try a more structured thing. Maybe that would work. Um, so something called a crib compiler. And this is a little crib, crib notes and crib sheets and, um, and things like that. And it's kind of more styled on visual basic um, using the old percent sign for integers. And I never really got around to finishing that. I, I kind of had it in the works, was going to do it. And, and then disaster struck. Um, my, uh, my laptop completely died and I lost pretty much everything. So, um, for reasons which I'm not all that excited about, I ended up going Mac. Um, my whole house went Mac. Um, and that's a whole discussion in and of itself. I'm not a huge Mac fan, but you know, it, it, it did the job for us. So um, that's where I'm at now. But what happened was I could no longer run James virtual MC 10 anymore. That was on XP. Um, I had a at, at work. I had a Windows 10 box, but at the time it didn't run on Windows 10. And the the TASM compiler that I was using, well, that was also written for XP. There was no upgrade, so I needed a new emulator and I needed new tools. And you know, James Tamer wasn't around. He was he was off on Yahoo Answers and <laughs> doing other things. Um, and but he did come back later and he did port it to Windows 10. So, you know, James, if you're watching, you know, thanks. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, I ended up using Mike Tin's JavaScript anyway. So I took it and, you know, he, he had something's released. And so, you know, I kind of put a little bit of stuff into it and I tried to make the sound a little bit better. Um, and then I forked it and started putting some more stuff. How do I get the cassette IO? And then I took uh, James Tamer's quick type. He has a little quick type and he used to put a TM on it. So I'm, taking his TMs, taking it on my mention of his quick type, which lets you just take in any text program and just dump it right into the, to the machine um, in line. And eventually I'll really add a debugger and uh, maybe emulate his little sensible keyboard layout so that, um, you know, when you type in the, the letters and keys, they actually are the ones on your actual keyboard and not the layout that's of the MC10. Um, so, you know, so I wrote, I rewrote the TASM compiler. Well, I didn't really rewrite it. It was kind of an emulation of it because I don't have the actual source for it. Um, I put it on GitHub and it writes uh, C10 output. And I tried to make it, you know, so that other people could use it. So basically all the stuff on Yahoo, the machine code that we had at the time when people wrote assembly, I tried to make sure all that would compile with the compiler. And I think maybe there's just one or two that don't compile. Um, and I'm not really a macro person. Um, I use the C preprocessor for macros. So apologies for you. <laughs> for those of you who really love macros, I don't, I don't tend to use them so much because I use a C processor for that. Um, and then finally, you know, I got around to making the basic compiler that I, <laughs> from, I don't know, some 10, 12 years later. Um, and basically the goal here was just to make the thing work. <laughs> And, and just work with Jim's programs without any modification at all. That was the goal. Um, you know, and Jim had lots of cool tricks over the years, like looking at peaks and pokes in different places and 
um, certain quirks of the way that basic worked. So some things obviously I couldn't do because, it, um, because the machine was a little bit different um, with the layout of how I chose to do things was different, but you know, for the most part it worked um, except uh, sometimes when you compiled it, the program would get a little too fast to run. So that's a good anyway. problem to have though. That's a good problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so the philosophy was just to, you know, recycle the print input sound and keys and just recycle the ROM routines because they're already written and it keeps the memory size small. Um, make your integers three bytes, not two. So that way, you know, you're less likely to have rollover problems or overflow. Um, and then, you know, emulate floating point with fixed precision. Um, it's very rare that people are using huge numbers, you know, or very, very small numbers, unless you're my dad and want me to <laughs> do math on my MC10. Um, and then, you know, give a little bit of hints for when, you know, when the compiler can't figure out if something's an integer or a float, it'll give you a warning. Hey, I promoted to, to, to float here and it's better off if you use an integer. Um, and then, you know, a couple of niceties, like being able to switch between the, the virtual machine versus a native uh, library calling technique. You know, one is will give you, you know, a better memory performance. The other will give you better speed performance. Um, and then, you know, some basic debug things. So, you know, the, for the compiler, I think I only got a few slides left here. Basically, it's just your typical constant folding, strength reduction, um, data propagation, numeric type propagation. Um, detecting when you have an integer versus a float and pre-compiling all your data statements um, so that way you don't have to convert them on the fly. Um, and then my favorite, the geriatric if-else, um, <laughs> named after Jim Gary, because that's a pattern that he used. Um, <laughs> so um, making a specific optimization for just that particular branch structure. Um, and strings, basically, you know, the, the, the fancy thing there is that string constants don't manage them. They're just in memory. Single character strings don't manage those either. Um, just use the string descriptor itself to hold the value. And then a user reverse descriptor when you're storing your strings to memory. So that way, when you do garbage collection, it's super fast. So um, is that is that if else the, compatible with the MCX? Is that where that came from? Uh, the, well, I'll let Jim, Jim probably can explain the, the rationale no. there. It's that there is no else in MC10. Basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, so. exactly. But in the, in the. Right. So, so what did you say there? Right. Oh, so generic. if you look at his structure. You oh, know, okay. On, Using it numerically. Right? Okay. Got it. Yeah. So you make a predicate and you go to your, the, the else clause here, and then you can do your consequent, you know, after the statement. So it's a very. So that's using, using the on as a, if. Else. Right. Okay. It allows you to pack a line, yeah, yeah. like you have an else. Yeah. So anyway, I promised I'd be quick. Interesting. So, um, you know, the data statements, if if all your values are numbers, it'll crunch them all into numbers. If they're all integers, it'll compile them down to integers and it'll optimize it that way. So future stuff for the compiler, you know, maybe I would do constant propagation. I have a, a sandbox with constant propagation. It's in progress. It's a little too aggressive. Sometimes it optimizes out variables it shouldn't, so I'm not releasing it yet. Um, and then maybe do some more stack-based um, structuring so that way I can reduce the code size for larger programs. And then of course, you know, for your Coco fans out there, allow the else statement as well. So that way it'd be easier if you ever wanted to <laughs> do that if then else, you could port that 
pretty quickly. And then if you're a Coco programmer, it's a little helpful tip. Um, you know, the, the basic will scan each line for an else if you're in an if statement. So if you want to make those fast, um, uh, keep that then clause very, very, very small so it can find the else very quickly. Um, I think I'll bet you a nickel. That's probably one of the reasons why the basic is slower in, mm -hmm. um, in the Cocoa than it is on the MC10. And then, you know, I have little places for all the examples. Um, you can go there <laughs> or you can just watch Jim's presentation. And then, you know, I will eventually get to the MCX. I, I always feel bad because, you know, I think Darren has put a ridiculous amount of work into the MCX and it's really yeah. a, a great thing, but yes. you know, he kind of let me know that, you know, certain things, he needs certain things in order for his stuff to work. I need, I need a, to use a, a, a backslash R instead of the, backslash R, backslash N, or the backslash N, because that's what the MC10 uses. It uses the the, the backslash R as its, as its return character. Um, and I was using fgets, um, it's the old C, and that only listens for uh, backslash N. So anyway, I got some work to do there. And then I also was cheating. I used the fact that the pattern at uh, um, 128 through 256, I was using the fact that those always return the same elements, um, but nope, uh, he's, he's got RAM there. So um, I've got to figure out how to make that work for that. Um, I don't have an MCX, so I, I I don't know if I'll be able to emulate his other instructions, but maybe one day. Um, you remember we were talking about having uh, like a, a Patreon or something for you, you know, to encourage game, right? Well, maybe we should actually just pull together and get you an MCX and send it over to you. So you <laughs> well, that would be great. Although I, I think I remember, I, you know, I, of course I would never, you know, <laughs> demand, but you know, if, if, if Darren did ever choose to release his source code behind the actual basic, that will help me out. Cause I'll, so I'll know how to emulate it correctly. Um, and then, you know, I think for the near future, I'll probably have a JavaScript debugger. Um, so that way I can at least debug my own stuff. Um, and then, you know, I, an old nod to the TI-994A, there was a Hunt the Wumpus game. Hopefully I'll get around to doing one of those, probably in assembly. That'd be cool, because actually we, we just had the Hunt the Wumpus game for the Coco 1 and 2 ported over. Um, New Blanchard Schultz sold it as a cartridge. I'm trying to remember who the author was. He's done a few ports. Uh, I can see his face, but I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Yeah. But yeah, we just had a Coco 1 and 2 version of that just come out in the last year or two. Yeah. Based on the uh, ti 9 yeah, so basically, that, I think that's that's kind of it. So I don't know if you have any, you know, if people have questions or whatnot, or I'm happy to entertain them. Um, you know, if you ever do want to get into talking about the compiler, that gets pretty technical pretty quickly. I don't, I don't know. know I, that, I, I have a desire to. I have a new desire to play the Pac-Man, knowing how much effort you put into all that. <laughs> <laughs> Had no idea. One question I have on the compiler, because obviously I haven't used it myself, is how much of a speed up do you get and how dependent is that speed up on what type of functions you're you're doing in the basic yeah, program? Well, I think Jim is actually probably a better determinant of that. I think, you know, depending on if you're using the native versus the, the non-native mode, uh, I think it's anywhere between 4 and 10x. Um, oh, but I'll let Jim to keep me honest. I, I've, I've only used the one mode, the uh, the slower mode, I think. And I think four times would be right about right for that. Uh, what I've noticed. So the slower mode is the one optimizing more for size versus speed. Is that correct? Yeah. Does the wampus taste like chicken? 
I don't know. I think the wampus eats you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you, you shoot it with an arrow and... Uh, and yeah, I, you have I to forget. smell the wampus in the next room, if I remember correctly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, Greg, what do you program in your uh, languages? For for MC10 development or for... Well, your knowledge, just, just your knowledge of programming. What have you used... Like, what do you write TASM in, for example? Do you write that in C or C++? C++. I think, you know, I'm kind of more, you know, for my own personal use, I, I use Unix. Um, it's kind of my preferred environment. If I had Windows at home, I probably would be using Microsoft. I'd be using Visual Studio, um, you know, because I used that back in the day. So that's a tool I'm familiar with. But, you know, for, for the Mac... When you, say, when you say Visual Studio, which portion of it? It's pretty big. Uh, Visual Studio C++. Eventually, you know, oh, eventually C++, learn, okay. I'll eventually learn C Sharp someday. But Would you do Visual C++? Is that the one you're talking about, Visual, or or uh, just the DOS box? I mean, the the C prompt part. Yeah, of well, it. I think I tend to I tend to like the 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 win the Windows or we call it command line interfaces. I like command Windows. line, which is the yeah C prompt yeah. part. Okay, um, that's the hardcore you know like DOS. It looks like the yeah. old DOS. Version. Yeah, and I did I did muck around with VB6 back in the day as well. So, mm. um, okay. so I am familiar with that. That's the and that's that's like the funnest one ever. <laughs> VB6 is lovely. Yeah. So I I moved on for for those that like ease of use anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I moved on. I think when .NET came out, I think I was doing other things. So I never actually got into .NET or the C sharp or um, you know I. I use v Visual Basic for applications as well, which is very close to VB6. So, um, see, they, the the heavier programmers that programmed with VB6 used to complain because it wasn't uh, considered to be a true programming language without, uh, there were some restrictions. I, I can't remember what they were. I mean, I don't know that much about it, but I, I know well, that it's they Turing were, complete, so... Um, so you they want, <laughs> what's that? It is a Turing complete language, fortunately. What else do you need? <laughs> oh, a Turing, it's Turing complete. I got you. Yeah. That's, that's what I felt about it. I, I didn't, well, and I think the, one of the problems was, is they had some security issues with it was why they mm -hmm. had to redesign because it was getting, you know, with as windows is always getting hacked, yeah. you know? So that's yeah. part, partly why they dumped that whole thing and redid it to, to .NET. Yeah. For security reasons. Yeah. Greg, can I ask you a, a call back to the Yahoo group question? Somebody I remember made some kind of mini reverse Polish notation kind of simple machine language thing. Does that ring any bells for you? It does. It does. I you mean like fourth or something or yeah, like a, a kind of a kind of a minimalist fourth or something like that. Yeah, I know someone was asking about fourth, and I went and looked it up. Um, and yeah, I, I. I know he got the RPN working. I'm pretty sure he did post it. Is yeah. Is that preserved anywhere, do you know? MEW3. And I think the MEW was the, the, the acronym of his name. <laughs> um, Mew the third. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I know it's in that. Or I believe it's there. Um, okay. I hope it's preserved. I'd love to go back and look at My son had a fun time poking around with that thing. Yeah. Well, speaking of your son, uh, Charlie also said to say hi to you. Oh, oh hello. hello in the chat. <laughs> oh, nice. 
Now, Greg, I was going to ask you, like, you, you don't have support for the extensions that Darren Atkinson done to, for basic, for, you know, kind of adding extended basic MT10. Mm-hmm. Have you and Jim talked about maybe doing some high-res graphic support, but native to your compiler? You know, I think, you know, I, I think that's kind of, as, as you go, I think the the goals of the compiler was to be as true to Microsoft, you know, color basic as possible. Um you know, yeah, from a compatibility standpoint, but are you thinking of extending it, I guess, is the question, and keeping the compatibility with the original? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know which is better. I think there's obviously some limitations um, when you use the microcolor basic, you know, and you you kind of line numbers. It's not structured um, using of the stack when you're um, doing four next loops. Um, that's probably not something I'd like to, to move forward with, I think, because there's a lot of overhead when you save and load to the stack. And so I think if I were to do it um, and try to make it as lean as possible, um, but also still, you know, be, you know, (laughs) um, you know, useful, (laughs) um, you know, I think I probably would try to move it more towards a structured language um, and maybe go from there. But, you know, I, I think something that Jim wrote on his blog was that, you know, I think, and it's a theme that we've been hearing today, which is that, you know, there's a challenge, you know, to take something so limited, say, as micro, microcolor basic and make a useful program at, with it. Um, and so, you know, everyone kind of gravitates to their own little puzzle and, and solves it in their own way. So it, it's, you know, if, when you make tools for other people to use, you, you kind of have to make sure that they really will use it because it'll take a long time yeah. to build and you might build it wrong. And, you know, there'll be a back and forth to actually make it work. I don't do high res. So no point for me. Well, you did. You did a caliber. That's true. I'm just joking. Yeah. I, I, I I, I've taken end. some of Jim's games and made them high res <laughs> yeah, with the full screen great. project. And it's kind of fun because, you know, he's got all the work's done. And all you got to do is, yeah. is uh, with the full screen project, you, uh, what was the name of that game with all the puzzles? I had like 50, 50 puzzles and the guy like does a, kick and the you push the rocks pit Sokoban something game or? it's a pit pit game oh pitman pitman yeah. Yeah. yeah that one i did a graphical enhancement of that one and uh that's fun and then that that one space invaders one that you did oh okay it's, yeah. a, it's just a 4k thing but yeah, yeah in, it's 4K. in the when you put this graphic overlay that I did on it, it, it looks pretty good. It was like pretty impressive. Yeah, the reason I was asking is because obviously, Greg, you've done some machine language games yourself, like the Tetris and then Pac-Man and stuff here. Mm-hmm. So you obviously have some good knowledge of how to optimize 6803 code for doing graphics. So if you wrote extensions to basic supported by your compiler that Jim could use, he could write something that's almost, you know, towards machine language speed from a basic right. game. If you put in your own simple instructions maybe all integer based to keep them isn't that isn't that what you did with your compiler hasn't he he's done a bunch of compiled games with your compiler right yeah yeah but but they're all using semi-graphics for oh okay because you're not doing high high yeah in order to support so yeah in order to support some of jim's tricks i had to keep the basic variables right smack in the middle of the graphics page um oh okay right yeah. yeah So if, if we if we waive that restriction and say, okay, now 
Which graphics page Jim, are you? Hope you like to rewrite all your programs. Um. <laughs> are you are you going? Um, is it is it in the uh, SG six or yeah, SG six will work too. SG six will work. SG six yeah. is not not wrote on top of. It was because uh, SG six occupies the same memory space as SG four. Right? It's just yeah, you're changing modem VDG, right? Yeah, it's still just yeah. five hundred twelve bytes. Okay. So it sounds like if you wanted to do a high res graphics support, you might oh, have to base it on I, the MCX basic. But Darren, did I think it. I was thinking yeah. RG. Yeah, the MCX basic. I mm. think I'll bet you a nickel. Darren's figured that out. Um, I haven't. I don't have an MCX, but that sounds like something he would do. I'm, I'm sure he's probably figured out how to get the variables out of the graphics page and let you do. Now the C. Fun. If you do CG six, that's where you, your variables are on that screen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. CG anything. Yeah. RG, RG and CG. Yeah, game okay. over, right. There's some smaller screens, those two. By the way, the what's the smallest the smallest screen that's still usable for graphics is like uh fifteen hundred K, I think. Yeah. A lot of people don't use it or really know about it too much. What's that? RG one or whatever or there's some other weird little modes. In yeah, there. I can't remember. Like the Coco had like 64 by 64 pixel is one yeah. example. Yeah, that's, that's not, one of them. Not I even think, supported yeah. basic, but it's uh I can't remember if that was a pure VDG mode, if that was a VDG slash SAM combo required mode. Yeah, if you give me a minute, I'll I'll scrounge around for the um the modes. Because I do I did put all that in the um in the assembly tutorial, all those modes and Darren Atkinson, when he made the uh, port where he uh, made that version of Asteroid taken from the Coco, yeah, yeah. Starblaster. had it one of those lowest of the black and white modes. Uh, but the MC10 has a problem with timing that sometimes, depending on how you turn it on, it comes up and there's snow on the screen. Yeah, yeah. You yeah and then if you if on. you come up, a, you hit the hit it right when you turn it on, you don't get snow. So it's 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 got is this that related to the lack of vsync thing. Just yeah, yeah. It's something to do with that how it comes up, and you know, uh, you can't even hit the reset bar just to try to get to it. You have to like turn the computer off turn and off on. And then you oh, might wow. get get a get a snowless the, screen. It's a the, it, co the Coco VGA does not suffer from that. So no, no, it always comes up clean. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know it had that that issue. And you have to actually yeah. power cycle it to fix it. Yeah, it's weird. It's just one more of those kind of annoying limitations. It's kind of, it's kind of like the color issue on the color computer when you have to keep clicking. Yeah, which phase yeah. you powered it up on? You have to keep hitting reset. At yeah, least I think it's the, the same 3. type of thing. But I think he chose the black and white mode because it was nice for the asteroid aesthetic, and uh, so he just said, yeah. And you can well, get a you can get a slightly higher res with less memory too, because with only one vector yeah. pixel, you can get a one twenty eight yeah. six and half the size. Yeah. Let me share. I, I'm a little concerned. You guys were talking about the pandemic game. Look what happened. Now you're talking about an asteroid game. I'm a little <laughs> concerned. <laughs> Oh, yes, no. the MC10 That's is the true. linchpin of history. <laughs> yeah, there is a big asteroid on its way here. See, duck on it. It's huge. <laughs> People right. thought it was a doorstop, but it's really the linchpin of history. <laughs> Beware. <laughs> Who are you calling an asteroid? Did any of you folks ever see that demo? Who did that where if you just wave your hand over the top of the MC10 and have sound kind of playing? Yeah, that's the last yeah, the Fairman MC10. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Was that John Lurie? I can't remember who did that, but yeah, we yeah. had that on the show. 
Yeah. Oh, here we are. Yeah, those modes there. So these are major mode two. Into the black and white, you have the two different color palettes. Black and white are green and dark green. Ooh, great contrast. <laughs> so you can get 128K, 128 uh, yeah. pixels across. Yeah. And then uh, the color versions are here. Yeah, because basically the MC10 natively supports, with their neck, this basic P mode zero, one, and two. <clears throat> Duplicated from the Coco, because those wow. all fit in 3K or less and fit on the yeah. onboard RAM. CG3, uh, I think, made the most sense to me because it's yeah. kind of equal spacing left and right, so the pixels are square. So it's easier yeah. to make games with those. Yeah, Nick so Rennie it... does that on his Coco 3 games. He likes picking modes where the pixels are squared. Like he doesn't like using, say, 640 by yeah. 200 because it's very narrow pixels compared to the height type thing. Yeah. And then SG6, the, um, the, the, the pixels are square on SG6. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Can you no, go if back I remember correctly, you guys had mentioned there's a bug in the SD6 because it's supposed to support four colors, but there's some... Well, you can see all these lines here. You see all the lines above and below, the red and the blue? Mm -hmm. Can you bring that one back up? Sure. Yeah. Well, I was going to show you the line, the, yeah. uh, the, the trace that, that you should <laughs> you should use. Oh, you're going to show the trace that causes that, yeah. Yeah. So, the culprit. Yeah, so I think it's kind of, you know, how they chose to lay it out. As you know, the, the top... The top bit was unwired because you know if all you have is 4K memory, it makes no sense to wire that up. So that was kind of left unconnected. Um, and then the data, kind of the the modes here, the the different modes for the chip. Um, so if if they had chose a better or a more easy way for you to actually change these things on the fly, um, then you could have gotten the different colors. Um, I think it's the a slash S pin, I think, and the inversion pin were tied, hardwired to the upper two bits. So if they had floated those and let you put them somewhere else, then you could have gotten the full the full color palette instead of just red and green. I saw red yeah. and blue. Yeah, you would have yeah. four colors. Yeah, well, I mean, it, technically you can do eight colors in SG6. It's yeah. just the way that the MC10 wires it. Yeah, like really the net. If you're... If your field width was 10 bits and not eight, then you'd get everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the neck has eight. great modes in that. I mean, it does, you know, you get all the colors, you get text. Um, yeah. So you can't fix it by hardware wiring it? Well, you, I mean, it would take some work, right? I think you need 10 bits all at once, right? So you have to read them in somehow. It's like, like if you upgrade the onboard RAM to do 8K and you connect that extra missing address. Yeah. Line you can actually get the like, PMO three and four working, but that requires modifications to the motherboard and stuff. And, and a lot of people don't bother doing that. I know Stevie got it done, uh, I think by Ed actually when he got his uh, composite Snyder. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't enable it, but you're then you're limiting, you know, whose machines your software will work on to yeah. a fairly well, limited set willing to do that. It, it'll still work, it just won't show the whole screen. Yeah. yeah. At least it doesn't lock up, you know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, all because basically the the last uh, what is it two K doesn't show. But doesn't it, it wrap just, back it and redisplay? The, it wraps yeah. the top two yeah, K. This pin is always low. So always depending slow, on how your program, yeah, depending on how your program runs, it you could it could still possibly be usable. But if I remember correctly, the four K Coco One did that too. Like if you put it into a mode that took 6k would just display the entire ram of the computer as as a as graphics 
and then wrap back and do the same thing over. So you could watch the interrupt timer, you know, going twice on the screen for the original location, then the wrap isn't, version of it as well. Isn't that kind of a useless thing that you, it just keeps doing that? Mm -hmm. It's like stuck. Isn't it just get stuck like that? It's on, pretty. On it's pretty, yeah. <laughs> well, you can disable the timer if you take the machine over and ditch basic entirely, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a feature. Can you go hey, back to can you go back two screens on your slide? Which one? The, to the to here? One more. This one? Uh no, one more, I guess. This it's one? the one with the with the high res the CG stuff. Yeah, yeah there. So the CG six is how many K? Is that the six K? That's six K. Yeah. yeah that's that's 6K. the mode three on the code. And yeah, because... does does the G does the number equal the K? Is that just coincidence? Like a CG three three K? Yeah, roughly. Good question. Good question. And CG one is 1.5, so I guess that might be what they called it that. And then CG two is how many K? That's about two K. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. CG two would be the one point. I can remember now. One point five. So we got to round up. <laughs> and the CG one is one K. Or seven sixty eight bytes or something. I can't remember. I'd have to figure out the math. Greg's the math wizard here, obviously, from his uh, high school days. So, so the mode that we don't have is the CG eight, basically. CG six. You guys don't have that one. Well, you have well, a CG six because it's six. It doesn't fit. It's not. It's not. It's not eight K. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. an RG6, and RG6, uh, which is a 6K. So the, the CG6 mode, I just wanted to say this, that the pixel was actually twice as wide as it is tall. So the, Sounds right. the yeah. mode back to the CG3, like he was saying, is the, the pixels are perfectly square, yep. which is which is nice. When you're doing like I'll, I'll say cg6 is one of the most popular ones using the drag and the pal dragons because of course artifact colors did not work in pal so if you wanted the highest res possible then you would pick usually you know pmod 3 slash cg6 but when you the problem is is that if you're using an editor that has perfectly cubed you know perfectly square pixels and then you transfer it over it gets uh it goes from this to like yeah, this it compresses you know? it vertically yeah yeah. Now, back then, of course, you didn't have any of those tools. You would just you know, program it for your computer, whatever it happened to be. And yeah. I, I never realized until years later that the pixels weren't square because <laughs> that was yeah. just what I was used to, right? It was, yeah, I mean, it's I color. That's I all that I need. Either. Well, on TV, it's a little harder to see also yeah. on a regular television. So, yeah, I have a thousand questions for Greg that I can't organize them. Yeah, we'll type him. Well, type when we have up. Greg on for an extended interview, yeah. Robert, maybe we'll have you on for asking I'll write, some questions. I'll write him out in advance, you know, <laughs> or something. But I found it very organized. Uh, I could use some of that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad it was useful for you. Nice job. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I, got like a comment from, uh, I got a comment from Kieran in the chat here, and this is concerning the CG6 stuff. Mm -hmm. He said, um, let's see here. But then mixing text and semi-graphics would have been impossible or need some trickery anyway. I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to there. Uh, but when you go to CJ6, it, it kind of replaces some of the text yeah. characters with semi-graphics, well, I think. It's, the way it's done is that you can, you can have anything you want so long as you switch fast enough, right? And there have been people who play games where they'll, they'll, there's no uh, sync to the video. Uh, but basically, you know, the way, the way the chip is laid out, right, the, the modes... If you look at this, this kind of tells you everything you need to know as long as you understand the 6847. But um, 
basically you can put the the way the MC10 is kind of set up is that you can put it into any particular graphics mode and basically <laughs> that's yeah. kind of it. You can't yeah. swap quickly. Um but you know if you play games and you um and you can keep cycle counting and you know exactly where you start which you can't on the MC10 but um if you could then you could actually have a whole bunch of different uh, resolution modes and I think I think it was Robert I think had a demo of that, I think. Um, yeah, we've definitely done it in the Coco. I mean, Musica 2, for example, has the yeah. hardware text screen on the top and then P-Mode 4 on the bottom. I'm yeah. sorry, the other way around. Because it has like a graphic representation of the notes and then some text using the hardware text of the DVD. Yeah. So. Um, what, what's, think, what are you talking about? Mixing modes on the same physical screen. Yeah, being able to quickly change the oh. mode. Yeah, in the same screen. I was fooling around with that a little bit, but it's it's uh, tough to do. But not having VSync, that would make it difficult because you have no idea where it's going to yeah. kick in. Somebody yeah, but, did a uh, demo of that a few years back. Um, he's one of the Brazilian Cocoists, I think, or something. Did an MC10 version of a mixed screen mode showing that it could yeah. be done. But you, you had, had to, to sync it. Yeah, you, you had have to, to manually, manually. Manually sync it, but then you could have the top with just text and the bottom being graphics. Yeah. But using a lot of power to do that. Yeah, I was, timing, timing I was uh, <laughs> flickering between two modes. That's what Simon wanted to do, is to flicker between two modes to gain some more color. Yeah. But you have to use VSync. Yeah. I think a lot of people would use RG6. And the fact on NTSC machines, um, you know, if you'd made them kind of one pixel wide. I think it would shift blue or something like that. And if, yeah, red, blue artifact like we do in the Google. Yeah. Um, so that that also, I saw that myself when I was a kid and um, I never exploited it, but I was like, huh, I could I could do something like that. So the the Coco VGA has the uh, artifacting. It just, mm -hmm. You just go into that screen, it's artifacted. Yeah, yeah, that actually works in the lower black and whites too. On, on well, even what, real uh, hardware, like Double Back uses one twenty eight by ninety six, I think, and it does artifacting even on the real hardware, and then also on the Coco VJ. So yeah. theoretically, you guys could use one of these modes we're seeing here, and doing odd and even pixels, you could actually get color through the Coco VJ. The you know the black, white, red, blue. Here, I'll show you an artifact screen here. That's. Well, that's, that's, that's just screen sharing. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Manual mode. Yeah, so that's got what colors are in there. It's I was puzzled by this because Curtis was telling me it's like a six pixel, a six bit pattern. Yeah, there's like you got the basic raw one like VCC originally did is just black, white, red, blue. And basically odd, even but, or double. But but it, there's subtleties. When you're logical, you're like going, well, how are they getting more information into a small, you know, like it can only hold what it can hold. So it's not actually as easy as, you know, you have some limitations. Yeah. Well, it's like NTSC stands for never the same color twice, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, Greg, thank, thanks for the presentation. Uh, the, the compiler is the part that industry me the most because that, that just opens a whole bunch of games that people like, you know, Jimmy refused to re learn machine language. Um, you know, have an opportunity to write something that takes a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's all my <laughs> fault. <laughs> many, many uh, basic is pretty slow, so that really, that really is pretty uh, cool. And the, and the fact you've made it so backwards compatible that you, there's only minimal changes, if any, needed to convert a program to run at four times the speed oh. or even up to ten. 
Um, actually, there's a question for Jim, and Jim will be the next guest to kind of feed off of Greg's yeah. presentation here. Is there a reason you've been picking the optimized for size versus the optimized for speed? Is it because the compiled version become much bigger than the original basic source? Yeah, or? I just didn't. I, I was trying. I was just most interested in getting it, making it, uh, making sure I didn't blow the top off a of memory and then the, the game wouldn't load into a regular machine, right? So that's why I was sticking to the lower one. But as well, like uh, he said, sometimes the speed is so great, then it's just becomes, you have to recode the game a little bit to try to slow it down. Just add in some sound statements to pause it every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there are limits that way. So... Uh, dealing with even higher speed is a, a, a challenge for the future for me. So. Yeah, I think it's easier doing that, though, because at least you know you can make a game that requires a certain amount of speed. And if it's going too fast, you can add delays or add in flourishes, you know, a little bit right. of animation or something. Going the other direction, trying to speed up a basic program, you've already pretty well optimized yourself. Trying to get it to run faster so the game is playable, that's much, much more difficult. So. Yeah. it's a good problem to have. Any, any further questions from the panel here? I've just been kind of monitoring the chat and other than uh, stuff from Kieran. And I don't see any other questions for Greg at the moment. We'll get more into Greg's game too when we get into the game on challenge part of the show. So, Sure. If there's no further well, uh, questions. I, I do have one question. Okay, go ahead. Tetris. Uh, um, obnoxious tech Tetris, was it called? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, where do we get that? Uh, you can get it on the... Um, Ooh, good question. Uh, it's, it's in my repo. Yeah, it's also on the MC10 site. Okay. Just go to www.mc10.com. It should be there. Okay. I think that's Actually, the 4K version. Though. Though. Is that, when did you release that? Oh, 2006. Oh, okay. So there was, a, there was another Tetris that somebody did, or is that yours too? Where there's uh, no, 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 no. I think I only did that one. Only did so. You didn't do an, an, an on obnoxious. I did one for 4K. I did do a Tetris for 4K. I think, I think that's, that's the one, the one, I, one, on that's the one I used. I think the 4K one. Yeah, that has. And then I was unaware of the obnoxious Tetris. Yeah, interesting. I've got a video okay. out of uh, 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 just made of it to demo it a bit on my uh, YouTube channel. Yeah, I think we featured that's, it last week, actually. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Apologize for the for the noise pollution. <laughs> <laughs> my son loved that one that was his favorite game <laughs> could i uh share screen for a real quick minute and then back yeah and then we'll get on to our next guest okay here. all right this is a picture of uh a hardware hack i did can't see anything yet oh yep, there it is that's my wife can you see it yeah yep. mm-hmm yeah, there's an MC10 under that little shelf I made. And um, I had a model one, you know, keyboard. Google one keyboard, yeah. Yeah, so I, I hooked it up to the MC10, and I made a program, like it says on here, it says, we here we have my wife Elaine taping, typing on a keyboard I hooked up to the MC10 because she didn't like the tiny keyboard. <laughs> I said, heck, nice. this one I added wasn't much better. It was the yeah. chiclet one from a Coco One, and I think I made a program to type and print to the printer like a typewriter for the DMP 110. <laughs> and here it is, 1984. Nice. Yeah. That's it. I love Send that to me. We need it for the repo. Might need a little <laughs> contribution. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, <clears throat> thanks again, Greg. And we're, we're planning on hopefully having you on sometime in January, February, something like that to kind of get into more detail and go through your entire mm-hmm. MC10 uh, history in, in, in much more detail and go through some of your games and stuff too as well. And further into the utilities, et cetera, assemblers. But uh, we wanted to have you before Jim Gary here is our next guest because Jim has actually used your compiler a fair bit lately. We've seen quite a few compiled games from from Jim, and I think he wants to kind of parlay off that somewhat and go through some of his own stuff as well. So, Jim, take it away. Okay, well, I'm going to share my... Um, can people see my, uh, my slides? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And okay, I will mention, so- Jim's featured on our show almost every week, and he's featured on every single episode of the Coco Crew podcast because he cranks out so much stump- stuff every week or month that we constantly yeah. have to update yeah, why don't you guys have a bell? <laughs> my bell, a bell. <laughs> okay. Yes, I know. I, you know, my hobby. I'm just going to go through it because I think people just know me as somebody who makes uh, lots of programs. Uh, but there is some uh, there is some coherence to the madness. So I'm just going to try to lay that out for folks here a little bit um, into the main areas of of what I do when I program. Uh, the first one is just trying to get speed out of basic to create arcade style games if possible in basic so you know like frogger up there uh i'm using lots of uh fancy techniques to try to just get some speed in semi-graphic four uh graphics going uh to allow a kind of a recreation of an arcade game but using only stock basic uh, you know, doing the same thing. I've created a game like Penguino down there in the bottom right. Um, and, you know, it's just an exercise in trying to squeeze as much speed. And then Alan Huffman is doing a great job at kind of uh, documenting all of those fancy techniques. Nice. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, you know, I've stumbled on those techniques myself over the years. They've driven uh, Greg mad, obviously, all kinds of techniques about using on go sub on go to, uh, to try to uh, speed game logic, you have all of your main loop up at the top. You just you jump to your main routines above that at the very top of your code, and you can get a very tight amount of sp- and, and speed out of basic. So basic, that's one area I just love doing, and I've tried to create arcade games uh, that kind of uh, uh, highlight that. Uh, the other main thing I do. Uh, Again, it relates to you know what Greg is doing. He's uh, provided me with a small machine language routine that I can put into a basic program that pokes itself into memory that allows me to to access uh, a, a line draw routine for uh, semi-graphics six mode. So you can see that line draw routine rep kind of um, demonstrated in this game flywheel here, a simple um, car. Uh, racing game where you're going around a track and you have to, uh, you know, avoid the cars coming towards you and stuff like that. But you can see his line draw routine is very fast. It's very convenient. I've, I've used it for games that uh, draw through two, you know, three-dimensional uh, uh, mazes and stuff like that. And, uh, nice. and it's uh, very helpful. Uh, but uh, like you mentioned, um, Curtis, uh, when I was a kid and I first used the MC10, um, one of the resources I had for that was the simple basic manual for the Coco one that had all of that fancy stuff at the back of it about how you could try to, uh, you know, use 
bit math to uh, poke stuff into memory to get graphics out of it. But it actually gave me the the basic things that I needed to know to to uh, basically do that in um, in uh, for semi-graphic six as well. So I had my own semi-graphic six modes. You can see a nine hole golf here. I'll just try to get it going. As opposed to uh, Greg's line draw, sorry, they're all going at once. Uh, I had a mode in basic that actually allows me to plot semi-graphic six pixels and that that's it moving as fast as it can there on nine hole golf. And so some of my games still use that. And, you know, I'm kind of proud of that, figuring that out when I was a kid. Um, so all these other games here, X rally, for example, are just using semi-graphic six mode to tr and, uh, you know, they've just used very large, uh, strings that are defined with the actual characters in them, like the MC 10 allows you to do, uh, which then allow you to just basically uh, use the string handling uh, routines to to maneuver around like vast areas of string space that you've defined. So you, you do like a mid string, for example. To yeah, yeah. So that's what's going on in X Rally here. What I've done is I've just used the strings that uh, create the graphics, but for semi-graphic six mode, right? So... In that mode, you have red and blue pixels on black, but you also get two solid characters from those undefined areas where all the lines normally are. You get a solid dark green character and a solid light green character that aren't just kind of uh, a bunch of strange lines. So you can actually get uh, what are effectively almost four colors, depending on what you're doing, out of the semi-graphic six mode. Red, blue, and these two solid uh, full characters, uh, dark green and light green. Um, so that's kind of been an exercise uh, in that trying to explore MC10 capabilities. Uh, we were talking about as well how you don't get all four colors. I've converted games like Fruit Panic down in there in the bottom right uh, from uh, Japanese NEC PC 601, uh, 6001 uh, games that were actually in four colors, uh, just translated them into into the two-color mode and then brought those over to the MC-10. So the other thing I do with my basic programming hobby is uh, I go out there and I try to find very obscure but, uh, you know, significant basic programs that you, you know, that maybe have been essentially lost because uh, they only exist in the form of, of scans in... Uh, you know, uh, magazine scans and stuff like that, but you can't find them in the repositories of any of the 8-bit computer systems anymore, uh, or they're just really hard to, to get hold of, uh, to find running copies, and then to work up a copy that works in the MC10, and then using Mike 10's uh, online emulator, put that up so that people can have access to these important but rare uh, programs and see them actually running and be able to play them themselves. So I've got a whole project where I've been basically trying to find programs like that. Uh, I'm not sure if people are aware of that, but that's a big thing that I'm doing. So games like uh, Shoplifting Boy there from Japan, I don't know if you can find anywhere to actually play that on the net except mine. Uh, uh, Space Freighter Nostromo, a similar thing. It's a game that I don't think you could find anywhere on the net. And play. Yeah, and Robert Allen Murphy's actually working on a Cocoa version, I think, based on yours on that one. 
yeah, yeah. So he stumbled upon my thing and, uh, you know, he's kind of, uh, you know, intrigued by that interesting program because, I mean, some of these games were really influential in very subtle but often forgotten ways. Like apparently Space Raider Nostromo was possibly what people uh, in the kind of uh, informal game history uh, strain of things uh, call the first survival horror game because it has these elements of of the uh, the opponent disappearing, which creates heightened sense of uh, of uh, anxiety and uh, and fear and so forth. So it's considered at the beginning of that genre. Similarly, space you know Star Trader by Kaufman has you know been a hugely influential program because it was probably one of the first games that ever was multiplayer, and it's it's the game that starts all of these kind of uh, uh, virtual reality space trader genre and everything like that. It was it was multiplayer because uh, it was developed in '72 on in BASIC, but for mini computers. But what you could do is you had a space you had a game save feature where you could save the game after a, twelve people could play. You could put in twelve people, but each person could save the game at the end of their turn. So what people did was they'd save the game and then they just wrap it all up, send it to somebody else by email. They would take their turn, save the game wrap it up. And that had never been intended to be be a way it was used, but because of that, it became, some people think it's probably one of the first games that was multiplayer where you could play a game, you know, across the, the ARPA net or whatever it was at the time. So, I mean, you can't find that game hardly in any working form. So I've brought it out so that people can play it. Heiko alien, same thing. People call it, uh, the, it's definitely the inspirer of the game space, the, the cabinet game space panic, which inspired apparently the whole platform genre. Right. But it's not known and you can't really get access to it. So here you can mazes and crazies was a, an example program for a very influential type in book. Uh, again, can you can't find it. It's an RPG kind of game. So that's the kind of thing that's also a part of my hobby. Uh, another aspect of my basic programming is uh, 10 liners over the last few years. The number of competitions have started up on this. It's just yeah, there was questions about you entering that again this year uh, from yeah. one of the commenters in the chat for Brizio. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, just, uh, just the whole genre. I, I mean, the whole area of uh, competitive coding is kind of fun. There's coding contests and, and you can make uh, try to make a game that, you know, can win some, some some recognition and then 10 liners is a, is a kind of an interesting exercise so i've made games you know like night blitz and uh, slapshot here for those kind of contests again you know i'm trying to get speed as well using all my speed techniques uh and uh excuse me 70 graphics uh, for graphics and uh, allow you to do a lot of speedy things because really all you're moving around are text uh, characters and uh and if you can use the built-in text features of BASIC, it can really allow you to get a lot of uh, speed out of those things. Yeah, 48K RAM is normally an Atari guy. He's got his own Atari Twitch channel, actually. He's, he's one of the judges on the 10-liners. He's judged quite a few of your games in the past. Right. So, uh, yeah, he said to shout out some kudos to you, too, because you're, well, like he says, and we say, you're, you're a machine cranking these suckers out. So Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, they're, I mean, the MC10 just allows you to do that. Um, finally, the major area I think I'm involved in in my basic programming is just porting and recoding commercial games to try to fill out the MC10's 
software library because like many MC tenors, uh, we were start we we all started off uh, impoverished for software, uh, desperate for the games. We all had to learn programming. We all had to to figure it out to try to create our games. And I'm just kidding, carrying that on uh, in my midlife uh, as a kind of a basic hobby. So um, sometimes I use the MCX like on a Calabeth there. Uh, I don't don't make a lot of MCX programs, but every once in a while, I came across some code. Somebody had ported it from uh, ported it from its Apple to they ported it to MCX format, um, which is a two fifty six by uh, uh, one twenty eight uh, basic graphic mode. So I was able to take that and then just to crunch it into uh, a mode or to uh, present that in a mode that MCX uh, basic will, uh, will render. So a classic, uh, game, uh, by Lord British, his earliest version. Yeah. This is uh, pre Ultima. Yeah. Of the Ultima series now available on MC 10. And then once I had that done, you know, just with a little bit of tweaking of the code, adding a spaces where, ba- you know, Coco basic needs it. I'm able to take a game like that and put it uh, also on the Coco. Right. So, uh, I was, a able to do that and that was a lot of fun a game like uh adventure here though is not i'm not i'm not taking a game uh a, a code that exists i'm just recoding a game by examining it and looking at it uh, this case the classic atari game adventure here i'm using lots of uh, string handling characteristics to kind of get you know that partial view and the uh, certain of the map areas animate all of those uh, enemies and because you can just embed strings so easily into uh, uh, MC10 Basic, you don't have to use string and CHR. It allows you to just save memory because they're just defined at the beginning of the when you load the program, and then they don't take any more memory as long as you don't manipulate or change them or do any string handling with them. You're just viewing them; they just stay in memory. Uh, and since you're using the actual uh, semi-graphics for characters, uh, you can do a lot of uh, a lot of uh, fancy work that way. Yeah, that was uh, one that really impressed me because you actually did like the the, sh- the shading where your flashlight type thing can only see certain part around you. Now, I do yeah. have to ask you: Do you did you support the transmolecular dot? And you have a hidden message saying "Program by Jim Gary" that shows up. Or? There is actually. Uh, um, I've uh, I, I there is a yeah there is a hidden dot somewhere. Uh, there are uh, ways to maybe figure out where it is and then take it where it needs to go, and then you will see the uh, you will see a hidden message in a hidden room. Yeah, cool. Pretty much the same way. Now, I, you know, to try to get people to play my uh, manky games here, I actually ran a contest over the last few years where I gave away a mug uh, called the uh, Type In Madness because Type In games are really my main main thing. Obviously, um, I don't know if I have a mug of the around. I saw somebody earlier. I think uh, Darren had one sitting on uh, his desk behind him. Uh, to try to encourage people to play my games, they can win one of those mugs. And uh, I, I remember putting Adventure up, but nobody got. I said, if you get the dot, then I'll send you one of these mugs. But nobody's ever got it. So uh, these are more just exercises for my own pleasure, obviously. Um, so other games that I've made, like you know, the, the monster that ain't the uh, Sheboygan cr- is just Crush, Crumble, and Tromp, but uh, basically. Uh, recreated by using the original game that it was based on, uh, the monster, the creature that ate Sheboygan, uh, the board game, and then translating that into basic. Yeah. 
I've, I've translated other games like Force to Doom, obviously, which uh, you can get if you go to, um, oh, what's his name? <laughs> Who made Force? Bruce Moore, oh, right? Bruce Moore, so, yeah. Yeah, so I don't I don't distribute it, but if you go to his site, uh, you can get an MC10 version of that. Uh, sort of Fargle, an early uh, uh, game in the genre of um, of uh, dungeon crawler type thing. So it's yeah. it's like a Temple of Asphy era. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've actually talked to the guy who uh, who made the original. He's given me giving me his imprimatur to, to to distribute my version of that for the MC10 based on his. Um, is uh, um, code for the uh, VIC-20. So, um, oh, and finally, that compiler games. Uh, these are where I'm trying to use Greg's uh, compiler to take games that uh, were just a little bit too slow but needed a, a little burst of speed to become an actually playable arcade uh, or otherwise. And... Uh, so scramble there uh, needed a little bit of pick me up, and now I think it's a slightly more realistically uh, playable arcade style game. Uh, puzzle games that do a lot of processing, like Swell Foop, uh, Mahjong. Uh, my son was able to come up with a very clever algorithm for uh, teasing out that you had a winnable uh, turtle at the beginning of every game, but it still took about two minutes, three minutes, two and a half minutes uh, to uh, generate a turtle for you. If you're a hardcore, uh, you know, MC10 basic guy like me, that's fine. You're going to wait for that. But otherwise, it's a total annoyance. So having Greg's uh, compiler just allows it to become actually a, a quite enjoyable playing game. It makes a turtle in about, you know, 20, 30 seconds, and then you can get going. Of course, you're stuck with the limits of Semi-Graphic 6 Nightmare uh, uh, there. But uh, that's part of the exercise is uh, trying to make a game even though you're using pixels that are as big as your uh, as big as your head, uh, and uh, and that's fine. Uh, it drives uh, Stevie nuts. I know that <laughs> to look at these kind of <laughs> grotesque marvels, but uh, for me, that's part of the fun of it. The MC six eighty forty seven is you know that green is is like burned into my brain. Uh, trying to make games in semi graphics for like uh, the free cell I just made there, where I was able to take code from somebody who'd made a uh you know uh, a very uh a nicely programmed uh version of quick basic with no line numbers and then to totally mangle it back to an 8-bit game where you've put line numbers back on it, it i mean it's a it's a great sin but uh i did it and you get you can get a wonderful program for a, a computer that never had uh, you know all the uh, all the games and and programs that it needed and, so quick uh, question on your compiler yeah. games. Are you generally using the compiler to create new games that you knew you just didn't have the speed before, or are you going back and, and compiling a bunch of your older games because you were never satisfied with how fast they ran in the first place? Uh, for the most part, uh, the, the you know, I'm going back into my library to try to take games that were just about there. At, like Load Runner there was just a bit too slow um, in basic. I mean, as an exercise, it was kind of, you know, playable, but give it that little burst of speed. Now it can actually, with a little bit of timing stuff, like I said, uh, to get it uh, operating smoothly, you can actually have a kind of a reasonable version of the of the game Load Runner. Um, but once he, uh, Greg brought the compiler out, I actually just, you know, I I just started programming for it. So a game like Closeout there, 
is actually just a game that I kind of thought, well, you know, that might be actually quite enjoyable to play if it was actually fast. So, uh, you know, I made it up and then uh, and then compile it and Bob's your uncle. So same thing for free sell. Those are just made with the compiler largely in mind. Cool. Anyway, um, so some people might have an, some questions about uh, my uh, my speed. Uh, it basically comes down to uh, James uh, Tamer's um, uh, quick type feature. That is like the most amazing liberating feature uh, I think in the for me of the MC10 uh, world. That that uh, emulator just allows you to uh, code in a text editor and then. A second later, your code is in the machine and you can run it and see what the heck it's doing. And then if a problem comes up, you just switch over to your text editor, make a change, quick type it back in, and then you can see what your changes have done, right? So uh, that's a really useful feature. Uh, but the other thing that has allowed me to kind of have speed in making programs is that, you know, I've got some tools here where I've got a simple um graphic editor for semi-graphics for it's not like roberts it basically just allows you to do a few basic functions and do stuff on the screen but another nice feature of james tamer's emulator besides the quick fun type function is the ability to just l print or l list straight to a text file so you know once you do that you can like create semi-graphics for uh, graphics on a screen, and then you just hit, you know, uh, print the screen using an L print. Uh, we don't have a print number two, but we use L print in the MC10. And then all of a sudden, you've got a little output of, you know, 32 character strings by 16, and it's your whole screen for you, right? And so if you want to like create characters, you just create some characters. If you want to create a whole screen, uh, you create a whole screen, and then it's there. You cut and paste it into your text editor, and then you're ready to go. No grappling with string commands or CHR dollar sign nonsense. You just have your strings there for you there and ready to go. Uh, and so if you want to create animations on your screen where you're like basically just printing different screens to have stuff going on in the background, and then kind of print it, printing your sprites and, uh, using the print at command, you could do that. And so games that, you know, so sometimes I think if I was to do them on the Coco would take a very long time to figure out, you know, how to get all of the graphics up. I can have something done in, you know, a very short period of time. So there's me just kind of picking up the strings of the smiley face there. It took the smiley face took me a minute and a half to draw on my editor. I hit the, hit the print button and then, and then there I have it. Right. And there I'm, I'm ready to just code. And uh, so, uh, you know, of course, I have to turn on the uppercase there to get it all done right. A few seconds later, you add line numbers and you can reprint the screen, basically. And, and you can assign them to a string or something like that, too. You can assign it to a string or you're just going to take a little part of the screen. You have to be able to learn to read the rendition of the uh, the semi-graphics four characters in, you know, standard ASCII. But you can usually figure it out. And I have all kinds of little keys that allow me to to know which character is which actually. And so you can create little sprites effectively very quickly just by using this cutting and pasting method. And uh, you're not dealing with a lot of memory, you're not dealing with a lot of, uh, of overhead. And so you can get games working very quickly. So 
basically that's the kind of key to the to my uh, my speed and method. There is the quick type feature, the L uh, L print to text file feature, and uh, and you can get a lot done very quickly. Anyway, that's it. Cool. Well, you you've done so much stuff. I mean, over the last few years. I mean, how many programs have you converted, written? Etc. Over the last while, uh, I've got little counters on my uh, my web pages. Uh, it's uh, it's over five hundred certainly. <laughs> that's that's probably from about two thousand and four to today. Yeah, because I mean it, it's it's amazing. We always comment and, and joke around, and I know the Coco Crew does as well of just how much stuff you crank out constantly, yeah. type thing. I think you right. just released a video here. Was it last night or this morning with your little just last night Dracula yeah. one? Yeah, the Dracula one. So I'm using these kind of techniques. You're just seeing me here, right? To, you know, drawing stuff up. I'm stealing stuff from ASCII graphics on the net and then turning it into semi-graphics four pixels and then throwing it up. I'm no artist, that's for sure. Uh, just take all of those things. But uh, well, well, since it is close to Halloween, I don't know if you have it handy, but if you have that Halloween one, I was going to show it off in the news, but I don't think we're going to have time for news today. So oh, if you have well. the one handy, it would be nice just to kind of quickly show people what it looks like, just because it's kind of timely for Halloween being next week. Okay, well, I don't know if I have it. Uh, I'll stop my share for that, and then I'll see if I can bring it up. In the meantime, if anybody has any questions for uh, Jim, yeah, I, I guess one question I have is, is, is how do you keep the incentive to crank out so many programs all the time? Like, how do you keep the drive going? Uh, I have that? a wife who loves watching curling, and so I have to sit there and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and we hang out together, but I'm not going to watch curling because it drives me nuts. So that's, that's basically the incentive. So the secret it's, to MC10 programming, curling with the wife. Okay. That, that's right. Watch <laughs> What to do while well, you're forced to watch curling with the wife. That's right. No, I, and the I MC10, like of course, is smaller to fit well in your lap if you had a little TV with it or something. Sure. <laughs> but of course, I'm, being, you know, I'm using the emulator most of the time. Yeah, I yeah. always check everything, that see if it works. Um, on the real uh, hardware versus on the real hardware it. afterwards, and there's something very edifying about that. Um, but uh, okay, so I've got it now. Yeah, because I mean, I'm actually planning on taking your Calibeth program and actually making a basic nine version of it at some point for the next yeah. level two here. Maybe bumping the graphics back up closer to the original level two version. But you, since you had the code already out there in basic, I figured that'd be a good base. Yeah. And you've done well, some I mean, OS9 stuff. I mean, we won't cover that on this show because it's MC10 related, but when we yeah. get you on for a full-length interview. I mean, I used to do some, as you know, I used to do some OS9, basic O9 programming, and that's a, you know another starting point for me. I used to do that back in the 80s, actually, in 90s. Sorry, the, in the 90s when I my sister, uh, who had the cocoa in our family, uh, gave me her cocoa. Started using OS9 on it. Um so let me just see here. Share screen. Can I just share screen to show something on uh, YouTube? Yeah, you yes. should be able to. Okay. Share sound. Okay. Okay. So here's the latest production. So again, it's just using. Uh, I, you know, I've just plotted the graphics using set um, and reset, but from uh, ASCII graphics taken from the internet. Add a little code to add some animation of bats. And uh, Bob's your uncle. It took me about half an hour last night. Um, 
moderator of the uh, Facebook group for the MC10 just said, hey, maybe we should have some programs for uh, the season starting now. Uh, <laughs> you know, so that's just a challenge for me. And then half an hour later, I can do something like this, right? It's not hard. It's, and it's not great. Anyway, it's just simple and stupid, but it's just uh, a way, a wonderful way to kind of uh, occupy yourself in the evening when you have a little bit of spare time. Yeah, and this way you can put your MC10 monitor up in the window near your door where the kids are coming for Halloween and just have that running in a continuous loop. Yeah, I do. I do. The, I mean, there's a that there's a cocoa there's a cocoa version of the um, of the pumpkin head that uh, that I've every year I do that. I stick the MC10 in the window and have that on a loop where it's just redrawing itself. The MC10 in Semigraphics Four uh, uh, version of a co- uh, of a um, pumpkin. So yeah, you get much comments from the kids on that. I've not heard many comments from that. I used to also go out with my kids to, to, to trick or treat. And I would take a, I have about four or five cocos in the basement and there's one that's kind of beat up. And I, I would like take the, um, the cord and I basically just uh, duct taped it to the one side of it and wear it as a keyboard and then put a box on my head with a piece cut out to be, a, be an eight bit computer. I did that for many years. And that was really popular. People used to love seeing the eight-bit computer coming down the street. Okay, we want to see pictures of this at some point. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Or your MC10 does windows. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so any other questions people have? Or Sixty uh, says, oh, the jack-o'-lantern thing that supposedly listens to the tape port. I'm not sure what he's referring to there. Yeah, it might have been taken from that. Uh, obviously, you have to strip out all of that other fancy stuff, but can't remember it. And then I'll, I'll ask a question that's kind of to you and Greg both there. So how much did you influence Greg's compilers? Like, like I know he's gone through a couple of iterations of trying to do a basic compiler. Um, and then you know, the first versions he did, obviously, there was too much recoding you had to do to get it to work. But were you directly involved with him on that, or have you given him any? No, he ideas? would just he would just periodically, uh, you know, uh, ask questions or uh, give a few updates, and I would say what I would or wouldn't be able to to deal with, and uh, and then uh, yeah, it's all his, you know. All I did was just annoy and inspire. So. <laughs> <laughs> like for example, you were mentioning uh, that you're using some ML routines he did for doing the line drawing and the semi-graphic six stuff. Like, is that something that he should put in the compiler and make a little like mini line command or something so you can incorporate that and speed up the rest of the program around it as well? Sure, that'd be great. I'd love that. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm just yeah. adding to your feature keep, Greg. Don't worry about it. It's no, cool. you know, Greg, I, I've not. You know, Greg has just been a great resource for me. Not just the compiler, but and not just the line draw. He did. A, I think he did a routine where. You could it would scroll the screen, but to a character color on the bottom line that was to your choosing. You could change the uh, the poke that was being done uh, for that bit of memory to any character you want. So, uh, a lot of my games where I'm using scrolling, uh, the scrolling method to kind of get uh, get some action for the uh, characters, like my border game going down. Uh, I used he he gave them you that routine and it just cleans up the bottom of the display instead of having that herky jerky basic yeah. uh, line draw going on. Uh, you get a smooth uh, you get you kind of get a screw, smooth scrolling going on, which is really great. And those are super super routines, right? Um, my X Rally game there uh, I, was it was Greg or Darren or somebody. Uh, I had it to a fairly high speed where you could move around with your car with the, the other car chasing you, but uh, somebody made a little machine language routine to allow uh, it to 
just plot all of the characters uh, for the, the screen very quickly. So there are hybrid games. I've got lots of hybrid games where people have taken pity on me and then said, here, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to add a routine. I think Greg did one for my like bejeweled game where it was just a painfully a bit slow and uh, came in and saved it by saying, okay, here's, I've just added a little subroutine that, that uh, actually makes it go lickety split. And it's kind of fun. So there's, there's a whole bunch. Yeah, out and there. to be honest, that's the type of stuff when you're first machining machine language, most people don't jump straight in and write their first no. machine language game from scratch. You do like, I need to scroll something in basics too slow. Or something right. along that line. You write a little ML subroutine that just does that, and then you know the rest of the game gets sped up by that much because that chunk is now taking one tenth the time or less. Right. So if I had any real discipline, I would go and learn machine language and be able to do those things myself. <laughs> the but fact well, you've cranked out five hundred games in the span yeah. of you know how many years, I think you've got some self discipline. You're not giving yourself right. enough credit there. Yeah. I just, I just find it easier. I just find it easier to do that and then make you know and then guilt other people out to try to like take mercy on uh, on my poor game. Like maybe you need more curling so you can learn machine language. I think yeah. Well, cool. for me, it's Gilmore Girls. My wife likes <laughs> Gilmore Girls. So, uh, you, Jim, I think you and I have that in common. We. <laughs> what was that? Uh, Gilmore Girls versus Gilmore curling. Girls. Oh, you have to put up with the Gilmore Girls, do you? Okay, very good. <laughs> Yes, but I think you know more to your point, Curtis. I think there's always some soul searching that you have to do when you start extending things. Um, you know, part of when you're building a program is you have to debug it. So, you know, if I start making routines that are only accessible from the compiler, then unless I give Jim a debugger, um, <laughs> you know, it would be really hard. I think to you know, just to give him tons of routines. And now he's like, he's no longer in microcolor basic. He's in some weird hybrid thing that yeah. <laughs> it's a Franken box of different ideas. Yeah, um, it depends on what your goals are, I guess, because I mean, basic yeah. itself, at least on, on the Coco was built to be extensible. I mean, yeah, color basic, then you hooked it into extended then you hooked it into disk and you hooked yeah. it into super extended basic with the Coco three, you're adding new features like crazy. So it's definitely not something, you know, people don't think about because obviously it was designed that way in the first place. But you're right. I mean, if you're trying to write for a common core MC10 as the machine was released, yeah, you know, you, yeah. You, MCX support might be going a little bit too far for some people. So anyway, yeah, I mean, so, part of my, yeah, the limits are part of the hobby, as somebody said earlier. Right. So, you know, eventually I'll get around to, to making other types of languages or, you know, I have a structured language, which I've been itching to do, um, where... You know, let's say I, I'm no longer around or I'm, I went off to Yahoo Answers where it was extensible enough where anyone could write a, a Sunday routine as part of the thing and have it mix, mix and match. So you could have the, the simplicity of basic, um, but for the little small things that you just need a little extra oomph. Yeah, you know, that's kind of more where I was thinking along, like not yeah. trying to write like a whole massive extension, but there's certain things like scrolling four directions, for example, is something yeah, a lot something of really games basic do. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So you're talking about a, like a USR routine uh, generator or something? Yeah, but without having to type USR. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can even make the basic keyword added to the you know the, the token table or something if you wanted to, or maybe it's just an exec whatever. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, there's the request today was uh, for a background sound um, that doesn't seem too hard to write. That'd be a, a good afternoon, I think, to to do something like that. Yeah. We had a comment from uh, Steve Rasmussen, alias Buck Owens, one of our major game players on all platforms, uh, both on the Amiga's uh, podcast network and their own. He said, there's a curling game for the Atari 5200. Maybe you could write a port of that since you have so much experience with curling here, uh, Jim. So. But, but will the wife watch it? <laughs> That's the real question. 
Except if you, then you'd actually be watching curling, not to get any, you know, coding done because you'd be having to learn how the game works. So, yeah. It's a terrible irony, but I don't actually like playing video games and never have. I, again, this is something that seems to be quite common with a lot of game developers. Nick Randy's and a bunch of others too. Like the only games they play is their own to test them. Yeah, you, you, you do and, as much as you have to. Except for a few exceptional games that sometimes kind of break the barrier. Dungeons of Dagger, that's a huge example in the Coco. A lot of coders really love that game and they did play that. But mm. game developers in general don't play a lot of games themselves, except that, you know, maybe test you know, that they're, they're trying to do a port. Yeah. I mean, the coding is the game itself. So that's the thing. What do you guys think of this book? Is it written well? I think so. The, the what, Holy Book, yes. It was? Holy Book. <laughs> for, for an intro to MC10, for an intro to is, uh, is, is the Coco, you know, one and two's manuals. No, I, for for a, a, a neophyte, no. I mean, it doesn't have all those you know friendly pictures in there with the uh, the you know the cartoon Coco uh, guiding you through. But it's it's it was useful. Did simple. the same people make this one as the other one? I have no uh, idea. Functionaries of Tandy somewhere, I suppose. We we did figure out who wrote the Coco one. It's a woman actually that wrote it, from what I remember, but uh, oh, really? I'm not sure. This one's missing some commands, though. It doesn't have var pointer, and it doesn't have um, it doesn't have exec. I don't think, and it or doesn't clodem. have clodem. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So. Yeah, but that would be. I mean, to use them, you need to know assembly. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> sort of, yeah. they, you know, they, this, they cut the. They drew the line. They said they didn't yeah. watch you taking your MC10 <laughs> and using it for illicit purposes like machine. Um, that's okay though, because there's missing parts in the extended basic manuals too, like some of the hidden substring stuff you need to do in play and draw are not documented. You had to, you know, take GWiz basic from the IBM PC, which was based on the Coco extended basic, and that's where they actually documented them. And those exact commands work on the Coco just fine. They just never put them in the manual. So yeah. that seems to be a common thing. Any further questions for Jim from the panel? And I'm checking the chat here. I don't see any other ones there yet. So, and thanks for showing off your little Halloween demo. I thought that was kind of cool. Everyone, catch the wave. Make more demos. <laughs> okay, now, uh, Alan, you're going to be up next, but I wanted to check with you. Did you want a break first, maybe for a bathroom break or grab a glass of water or something? Or do you want to go straight into your presentation? It's not really a presentation as such. I don't tend to do slides and things. And when I used to do slides, it was a kind of on thing, acetate that you stuck on a projector. And I don't know how that works with Zoom. So <laughs> it's more, you know, I'm quite happy just to go on with it. Okay, go ahead then. So, I mean, I actually started the MC10 by accident because what I was looking to do was to find a way of learning 6800 machine code. Um, and there's, there were various 6800 systems around and a few emulators, but they're all actually very complex systems that were re designed to run things like Flex and Disk. Yeah, like Smoke Signal Chieftains and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I came across the MC the MC10, which, you know, the fact it was a tiddly little computer with not a lot of memory and looked like a doorstop really didn't bother me because I, I started on the ZX81 which was also a tiddly little doorstop <laughs> and with an even worse keyboard. Um, and then I found there's this huge collection of software for this little thing, but there were no, none of the Scott Adams games for it. And it was possibly the only platform I knew which did not have the Scott Adams games ported to it. I mean, they've been ported to mobile phones, all sorts of bizarre things. 
Um, so it seemed an obvious way to kind of kill two birds with one stone. The, the, the Scott Adams games are, are very portable because Scott was one of the first people who realised that kind of the text adventure games, you can describe them very, very concisely in well, kind of a, a sort of simple programming language of their own. Yeah. And so in the middle of 1980, Scott published Adventureland in one of the computer magazines, which was an interpreter at that time written in BASIC. And it, it read a load of data in, rather than using data statements in BASIC, to use, to use less space by reading them into an array. And it, it ran them, and the, the numbers in the array decode to simple operations like the, the verb number, the noun number, um, conditions like is the, is the object in the same room as you actions like print a message put an object in a room so it's, it's very compact um, so once you write a, an interpreter for this thing for any machine as soon as you've got the interpreter all of a sudden there's all the Scott Adams games and the collection of other games because a lot of people took the kind of the Scott Adams design and his later article in Byte in the end of the end of 1980 and copied or created similar kind of systems. So the, in the UK, somebody called Brian Howarth also wrote games using the same system. Um, in my own background, I worked for Adventure International in the UK. So we were the UK republishers of Scott Adams games and a few others. So I already kind of knew the innards of it and everything. And I'd, were were you involved also with the arcade-style games? Because Adventure National did a lot of arcade-style games. But very sick, but the, the UK one, we didn't do anything with the arcade-style games. I think some of them were imported as was for certain machines. <coughs> okay. But it was really only the, the adventure stuff which we, we dealt with, porting it to British systems, the ZX Spectrum, that, that kind of thing. Or BBC Micros. And- BBC Micro, yeah, um, and a few others. So... From that, so I had all the bits from that. Um, and it turns out because the, MC, the MC10 is actually a really, even in assembler, it's a really, really easy machine to work with because it's so simple. And a lot of the, if you play with some of the, like the Commodore machines, you've got all the sprite, the sound generators, and all the rest of it. The MC10, you basically have one or two very crude graphics modes, very simple keyboard with a ROM routine to read it, very simple tape interface with ROM routines, and Although I don't use it, obviously there's the one-bit sound interface. See, so you don't actually have to learn a lot to, to program the MC10. So I knocked up a few tools to turn cross-assembled output into um, C10 files. Found the found the emulator, particularly um, Greg's em- the the VMC10 emulator. Um, and I thought you know, and started working on them and kind of got into it a bit taught myself the assembly language and from from that i've now been working on the second project which is a, a c compiler it's more aimed at kind of bigger 6800 based hardware but it can you can cross compile to c10 files for uh, a tandy MC, mc10 how much use it has i'm i'm not sure because the code is considerably bigger than machine code um, and the performance, sometimes it's almost as good. Sometimes it's truly diabolical. 
Um, so if you're starting to work with large, large integers, it's not so great. And the processor itself has only one index register, which is an absolute killer compared with, say, 6809. Yeah. Because you, if you want to copy things from one place to another, you either disable interrupts and steal the stack pointer, or you have to keep storing pointers back and forth in memory. So this is where it all kind of came from. Um, C compiler is probably late alpha. It, it's good enough I can compile a, a small operating system with it. I can compile a reasonable number of tools with it. Most of the tools work, but it is certainly not robust by any kind of standards yet. Yeah, because Fa Fabrizio uh, Caruso in chat a while before he knew you were on the show was mentioning about your C compiler, the fact that it supports a 6803. He's been using it himself in some of his projects. Yeah, he, he was kind of, he, I think he's the only other person on the planet who's actually used it for anything. And he does a lot He's of cross-platform like stuff too, right? Like he, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, currently, I mean, it, it, I build it and run it on Linux, but I suspect it would cross-build fairly easily on most platforms. Um, certainly, the compiler it's based on CC65, which was a 6502 compiler, is pretty portable. And it doesn't do anything particular. It does, doesn't do anything clever. I mean, it's just a command line tool. And an assembler I wrote and a linker I wrote to go with it. Now, does your C compiler itself, do you, do you have any library extensions or anything that support like the one bit sound or something, or is that something that's not in there yet? Um, I have some very minimal standard C library routines with it, that's all. Because um, there isn't really a kind of a C standard for those interfaces. So it's yeah. easier for someone just to write one in assembler and being C, you can call assembler routines trivially. I mean, you can just link it to an assembler routine and it will call it in the same way as C. Um, and the other problem you get, of course, is a lot of the standard C library routines are quite big. So yeah. on, yeah, I'm also you're, you're, you're doing KNRC, right? That's, you're basing it on KNRC? It, no, CC65 is a reasonably complete ANSI C compiler. Oh, okay. It's not entirely ANSI. It doesn't do floating point. And there's one or two other things that are not used much. It doesn't do. And probably um, mainly because no. of the footprint on the MC10 is pretty small. Um, I think partly footprint and also performance. And also because some of them just are completely useless. <laughs> I mean, if you look, for example, there are a lot of embedded C compilers that don't support bit fields because nobody in the known universe actually uses bit fields for anything serious. It's that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, CC65 was ANSI, so it's, you know, really the work I did was on the back end, basically. Take all of the 6502 output, turn it into 6803 output. In a lot of cases, it, it removed things that were subroutines on a 6502 and became inline code. The core of the compiler and, and the front end is all, is all from CC65 and pretty much unchanged. Now, is this C compiler something that people can download and try right now, or do they have to it, contact you to try it? Or? It's on my GitHub. So it's on uh, github.com slash etched pixels, uh, along with the, the things like the physics work and stuff and other, other things that I fiddle with. Yeah, I was going to mention, actually, I, you're you're one of the main driving forces behind Fusic nowadays, and Brett Gordon has worked with you on the Cocoa ports of Fusic. So. on the Cocoa port, yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons for writing the compiler <laughs> and one of the reasons for doing learning 6800 in the first place was to try and figure out if I could port Fusix to a 6800-based machine. 
And I, I've sort of done that, but it is most definitely not an MC10. I, I designed a CPU card for a system called RC2014. So it's got a compact flash adapter, 512K of RAM, banked RAM, and you know, two megahertz, two megahertz CPU. It, it's 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 not really quite comparable. Yeah. So the even MC with something like an MCX128, it wouldn't. You don't think Fusic would be portable to that, or you you would need some if you had an MCX128 and you had a fast SD card interface. You would probably sort of get away with it, but. It's it's never interested me because I have a feeling. I mean, it's like when I'm working on on the MC10 with the games. I think once you start adding all of the stuff to a machine, it's it's not the same thing anymore. I mean, uh, yeah, it's not the machine anymore. Just like Jim was saying. Yeah, I'd I'd rather just build a new computer like that. It's, it's why for, on the kind of the Tandy machines, I'm much more interested in things like the Tandy Model Four which was probably the first kind of mainstream machine you could have run that kind of operating system on, even though it would have been incredibly expensive to buy all of the, you know, the full hardware you would have needed for it at the time. So, no, I, I much prefer the MC-10 for playing little games on. And the fact, you, you, you can do something with it on an MC-10 in an afternoon and finish it, which on modern Which, which Jim does daily, so yeah. Yes, whereas you look at like, like modern game designs and they spend what, three years working on a game to release it. Yeah, with a team of like you know fifty people, yeah, it's, the it's, artists, it's like and musicians, and, yeah. yeah, it's like a movie industry. And it, you know, I, I started off in kind of with the early game stuff. It's just so much more fun. You can build all of it yourself, and the fact you can't draw doesn't matter because the graphics can't be good anyway. Yeah, I mean, so my art my art skills are truly terrible, but I can still write a, an MC10 game. Have you have you tried making your own adventure game based on the Scott Adams engine for the MC10? I am. Um, I did actually write one, although it got ported to a different engine before it was released, which was done commercially a long time ago. Uh, I've written other game engines since. I mean, the Scott Adams game engine is not a very good adventure game engine, but to be fair to Scott. He was doing this from scratch, whereas the modern designs are doing it by looking at all of the all of the engines and the evolution of engines over years. Yeah, and plus, so, class was meant for smaller machines like 16k RAM. You know, for the well, most the MC10 is a smaller yeah. machine. Yeah, whereas you know, like Infocom, they just you know they the RAM restrictions are are looser. Let's say Infocom was yeah designed for a system with floppy disks, um, and their game engine is also much more complex and slightly more yeah. powerful. Yeah. Um, I have I did start trying to put another game engine f- from a company called Level Nine, but I kind of got stuck on some of that, and it's one of those projects I've never finished and got around going back to. We have a question from Fabrizio actually for you. He said, "How about supporting the Alice thirty-two K and the Alice ninety? I think they have a different graphics chip." I don't think it matters for the compiler, except maybe for the addresses used, because the compiler doesn't know anything about how to do any of those. And the the limited I/O routines I have got call the ROM entry point, which presumably knows what to do. I don't know enough about the the Alice machines. Okay. And, and do you have any future plans for the MC10 besides the C compiler itself, which obviously is a huge project in and of itself? Um, I've got some adventure game things I'm, I'm fiddling with, and I may well port that engine to the MC10. 
Oh, cool. um, and it would be nice to resurrect one of the tools for writing Scott Adams games as well, because there were a bunch of those, particularly on the TRS-80, and I've not found any of them in an extant kind of form. And you're thinking of porting that to the MC-10 itself or, or just to get it you, re- I, I, You would need to port it to a machine with a disk drive, I think. Because while all the data, when it's kind of compiled down, fits into a 16K machine, I don't think you would fit kind of all the source data and the the game generator into an MC-10. Yeah, except maybe if you had the SD, you know, 32. Yeah, you certainly want the SD card for that kind of thing. I mean, the games themselves were built on a TRS-80 with, I believe, just floppy disks. And then I have a general question for the rest of the panel of the MC10 developers here. Um, have any of you had a chance to try a C compiler or have any interest in doing that? Since I know some of you actually do some programming in C. Maybe Greg or somebody. Or Jim. It's a, it's a long drawn out question. I think, um, you know, I think, I, I think like many people on the, on the Yahoo groups, a bunch of us were interested in making compilers. Um, and I think, I think there's been one or two times where people's pointed, well, there is one that already exists for the 6800. Um, and I have no idea where it is, where it lives. What there is a in. small C quote, a quote compiler quote for <laughs> the um, 6800, but it actually compiles to a virtual machine, which is then interpreted. Yeah. And which is one of the ways of getting around that. Unlike the 6803, the 6800 is short, some really quite important and useful things. Yeah, so the virtual so, machine is much more dense for kind of code size. Right. So I think for me, that was exactly the question that I was asking myself back then is, you know, would I, if I did make one of these things, you know, could I make a program, you know, a, a general purpose program that would be useful um, enough that, you know, obviously for very short, short things or solving little puzzles, it would be great. But for, you know, games that, that occupy, you know, more memory, uh, and by more memory, not a whole lot, you know, would it, where would I draw the line? So with the basic compiler, I kind of, I went and I said, well, why don't I, you know, try it both ways. I'll, I'll first try it first doing direct, you know, instruction, you know, do all the optimization, but then write instructions mm-hmm. directly. Um, and that got me far. That got, that got me really fast, really good code. But I, I, I couldn't, it was the code, the code size was too big. So, you, you know, by the time you, you wrote something to the screen, right, <laughs> you've lost a good chunk of your, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly one of the things that's difficult right. to balance. I mean, it it so, tries to generate shorter code and there are a whole load of, yeah people optimizations for it right so virtual but, machines are attractive for that reason is that you know you write yes. a virtual machine you only include what you use and you know and then you just run the machine and you have a much better chance of a bigger program running yes so, and you can actually write a virtual machine as long as you're not totally totally obsessed with code kind of size you can actually write a very good virtual yeah. machine on a six eight three because you've got jump comma x. Yeah, exactly. so you can keep doing Linux jump comma yeah. x and yeah. so just work through it. And like you said, you know, there's one index register and that has its own set of challenges. 
you either sacrifice interrupts or you <laughs> do the stat trick. Yeah, and um, that was some that was only fixed on the six eight HC eleven when they finally yeah, added a second. Yeah, they had a Y finally. <laughs> so yeah, so it's it was a it was a big question, and so I think you know if if I ever do go back and try to make something, it would be a hybrid. I would probably have. You know, I think what, what I'm thinking now is maybe a, a way to put an inline assembly when you need to, but the rest of it being a high enough level where the express, it's a very expressive language and so that's more dense. Yeah. Um, or, I think that's or it, where I would go. Yeah, I think on, on 6502 at least, I believe Aztec C let you compile the same code into virtual machine or into native code. Yeah. I don't know whether you could mix them. I never played with yeah, it enough. You could do them on the fly. That would be sweet, right? Because then you could get the benefit of both worlds, right? Yeah, so you can compile some of it for speed, some of it for size. But yeah, I mean, it's a problem with any small machine. I mean, certainly when you're working in 4K, you can't afford to waste memory on the vagaries of the of the compiler code. Yeah, like a huge printf library or something that would wipe out your 4K instantly, so... Well, that's a problem with all embedded C devices. Yeah, I mean, printf is about a kilobyte, so... Yeah, 512 bytes for your screen, a kilobyte for printf. <laughs> Sometimes a K and a half. Well, if it's well optimized, it's a K. <laughs> so yes, it is a yeah, it is a significant question with any small machine, and there are good reasons everything was written back in assembler at the time. Hmm. I, if you if you do publish it and you do get to the point where. <laughs> You know, feel free to send a note, and we'll—I'm sure—I'll try it. Um, yeah, I will mention too. Uh, we posted the link to your GitHub, Alan, on on okay. the chat there, which would have showed up yeah. on the stream. So people watching this later can actually hit your site and grab it to give it a try. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And I, I definitely do want to have you and Brett on at some point in the, in the New York to talk about physics. You know, mm -hmm. on the, the Coco side of things here too, because he's been yeah. heavily involved with that. With yeah. you too, well, so. I've also been building a, a 6809 board for RC2014 as well, so I can add 6809 to the collection on kind of retro hardware rather than relying on old dying machines for it where you you don't necessarily want to keep them running a lot. Yeah. Now, when I'll have a question for you on the General Inventor International stuff. So you worked for the Inventor, Inventor International UK, and you translated it to, was it just the MC10 you were kind of building it on, or were you also working on some of the other cross-platform? Oh, we, we never personally? We, MC10 was never something which anybody touched while I was working there, I and mean, it's kind of irrelevance. I don't think we even knew it existed, to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, oh. But, yeah, we ported to things like the Sinclair ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC machines. Was, you know, the, the more common part, ones, basically. Yeah, the, the, the more common UK machines. Um, and sometimes there was stuff because we, the UK was much more tape-focused than disk and cartridge-focused. Yeah. Yeah, we found that with the Dragon group, too. Yeah. So we were involved in some of the Dragon stuff as well. So when you when you did the MC10 ports, the Scott Adams Adventure National Games, when when did you do that? Like obviously much later, but when? when was mm, you started? I don't know. I'd have to have a look. Like <laughs> it was in the two thousands or even earlier? Oh, in the two thousands. I mean, it's yeah, because I mean VMC10 existed by then and stuff. Oh, okay. So it was kind of quite a it's quite a modern thing. I mean, I just wanted to learn the CPU and do stuff with it. Okay. And we thank oh, yeah, you for all your work. 
<laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and Fabrizio definitely thanks you for the C compiler because he's actively <laughs> using it. So that's uh, yeah. Well, he's trying to build, I think, the world's most portable games. Yeah, he's trying to support like 200 platforms or something, I think I heard him say. <laughs> yep. The MC-10 is one of his holdouts. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> Resistant, oh, but now it's conquered. <laughs> Very good. Yep. That's really cool. So I don't know. I don't have any other questions for you personally. Anybody else in the panel? And I'll kind of check the chat here too. If you have any more questions for Alan. Do you use the direct page at all? Um, for the compiler, I use the direct page for register variables. Okay. So basically where a traditional C compiler, you've got like extra registers and you could hint that certain things were register variables. CC65 did that with the zero page and I've just copied that for the direct page. The other thing I use it for, bizarrely enough, is loading certain common constants into memory because an indirect load from direct page of zero or one or one or two other constants is shorter than doing an immediate load. Hmm. And that actually, it actually, over time, it's actually quite surprising how much that saves you. Yeah, and a quick question, because I don't know the 6803 that well. Does it ever a readdressable direct page like 6809, no. or is it fixed at zero? No, it, it's fixed. But that's not really yeah, a, it's not really a problem for most users. The, the uh, immediate uh, generally the immediate instruction is one cycle less than a direct page instruction, which is one cycle less than an extended. extended. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you trade a cycle for a byte. Yeah. And cycle even on an MC10 cycles are cheaper than bytes. Yeah, I put most of my expression evaluation in the basic compiler in the direct page. Yeah. I, the other thing I was, I was surprised about, one of the things I, I don't do, but it's funny, you don't see in modern retro assembler, is that we used to take the hottest use of hottest point for use for a variable, and we would make that an immediate load. And we would actually, the rest of the code would actually patch that instruction to store the data to save two bytes. Like self-modifying code. Mm. Yeah, you're self-modifying the data, and it meant that one of your one of your loads was faster. And nobody seems to remember that trick anymore. Oh, they do on the six. I don't know. <laughs> A lot of our <laughs> RQ-driven sound routines use that. Good. Yeah, because it's like a two-cycle or whatever. I don't know what is a six hundred three, but a two-cycle load yeah. A immediate, you know, compared to loading yeah. it from a memory or oh, it, stack. It, it's a surprise. I mean, the the MC ten is a surprisingly fast machine. Anyway, I mean, the display memory is small. And the CPU actually does a lot in a relatively small number of clocks, especially when you're working with 16-bit values. Yeah, well, and compared to, say, like an x86 or a z80 or something like that, which, you know, takes how many cycles to do simple things. <laughs> well, yeah, um, but and some of them are, some of the differences are astronomical. So in the 6803C compiler, I can do a 16-bit add to a variable stored on the stack in two instructions in about 10 cycles, which makes Z80 programmers go a funny color when they count how many it takes them to do. Because <laughs> I think it's about 100 or more on a Z80. A lot of messing around, putting stuff in registers and things. So it's actually a very, very well-designed CPU. It's just, it's dense. It has dense <laughs> coding, which is nice. Yeah, yep. And the 6809 is considerably denser, but even so, yeah, it is dense. Yeah. I remember there was a good article about the 6502, which 
you know, that was the the choice of the bite ordering if you're a big Indian versus little little Indian. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered what would happen if the 6803 folks said, you know, what if we load in the the lower bite first and then the upper bite and still keep the same order, right? If they had done that, then mm-hmm. you could do your math faster because you could do as you load the first one and you could add the two bites while it's loading the next one. Yeah. You pipeline it that way. Um, which was the motivation for the 6502 to do the reverse order. They would yep. load the lower biting first, do the math, and then load the next one in, and the carry of the output would already be there. And it would can... certainly have made the compiler port easier because I spent at least a week of my time chasing Endian bugs in the compiler front end that just didn't happen on 6502 because of the Endian that's used. Yeah. I have one other question for you, Alan. I just thought of too. Um, as your, does your C compiler? Because you 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 mentioned the six hundred three, which obviously you are familiar with. Um, do you have any optimization flag options or anything on the compiler to generate six hundred three code to optimize for some of the improvements? It, it will it will generate six hundred three or six or six three hundred three, and it does know how to do the optimizations for some of the extra instructions. There's really only one which is is useful for kind of computer generated code. Yeah, other than the um, native mode, obviously, which is just cycle counts more than anything else. But yeah, yeah, not I mean, native mode, and, but and, the, the faster speed. Yeah, and and then, to be honest, you generate the same instruction stream for either. There's no specific optimizations you sort of look at. Yeah, because I, I know in the six three zero nine, there's certain instructions that you could do the same six eight zero nine instruction. It gets sped up a cycle, but if you do it a different way, you might gain more cycles. Like if you do an index with the W register versus say D the W in 16-bit is much faster than the D equivalent, even in native mode. So there's certain yeah. things where you would try to change the compiler to do something. I don't know if that's the same on 6 or No, I mean, the, the extra instructions are, it adds some bit, bit operations, which are kind of hard to use except in assembler. And one of the problems you have with the 6803 is your A and B, so your D register and your index register, the only way you can move data from one to the other is by storing it in memory and then fetching it back. And the 6303 added an instruction that just swaps the two over, which means you can swap them over, do maths on them, and swap them back again. Oh, okay. Um, which is then in 688C11. And your compiler currently supports that that feature? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, partly because the the... Kind of the boards I've been building are mostly six three or three. Okay, that's cool. Well, it's good to know that it actually has that support built in because then some people want to fiddle with the six eight zero three stuff. Who actually they already have a tool that can yeah. use it. So um, sixty says. So have you personally desoldered a six eight zero three in any MC ten? No. I have no desire to dismember my pal <laughs> MC10 because they're quite rare. Okay. It might have been done. Um, I think someone may have done it. I don't remember who. Yeah, I remember somebody was mentioning the 603. I think it might have been James Diffendaffer or something. Could be. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to make the live show today. We'll be playing his, his video. But... Any further questions from the panel? I think we're out of questions on the chat. No. Okay. Before it's nice meeting you. Likewise. 
So we have one other presentation that I mentioned before. That's James Diff and Dapper. Now he wasn't able to make it. He actually got called into work, so we wouldn't even be around to answer questions. Um, so I'll play the video for that. But I, I was going to check with uh, Mark Bosley here. Do we want to have a, a break first before we do that, and then we'll do uh, James's presentation right after that and go straight into the game on results and stuff. Um, <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah, I can run a commercial if you like. Okay. I need to refill my coffee because my throat's going dry from talking too much, which I'm sure you guys would prefer if I didn't. But <laughs> uh, let's see. We love you, Curtis. Keep it up. Yeah, don't don't say that, Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> After these messages, we'll be right back. Fletcher, I don't need that report tomorrow. Great, JT. I need it tonight. But JT. Fletcher saved $300 on her office away from the office. Radio Shack's revolutionary Model 100 computer. It's a word processor, phone directory, and dialer. It even communicates with the office computer. Fletcher, how's that report? Fletcher. Radio Shack's Model 100. Save $300 and put it to work. You'll go far, Fletcher. <laughs> You'll go far. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. On holidays, Uncle JT would entertain us with stories of his business conquests and his assistant who would meet any deadline that he imposed, no matter how ridiculous. Well, until she shot him in the face, that is. Hi, this is the award-winning Alan Huffman of Subby the Software, and you're watching Stevie Fall Off Cliffs. What's going on, guys? Stevie Stroh here, and I want to say thank you so much for being part of this adventure with us. It's been such a great experience in doing Coco Talk every week, and the support we get is just amazing. And so the fact that you watch and listen is all the reward that we need. However, if you would like to become a patron of the show and offer some financial assistance towards the production and hosting costs of the show, we do have a Patreon site available for that, and you can reach that by going to our website at cocotalk.live and clicking on the Patreon link. But just do us a favor and watch and listen to the show. This is not the Joey Serial Switch. This is the Joey Serial Switch. Control up to three serial devices. Order yours today at CocoMan.biz. Radio Shack, America's technology store. This Christmas, Tandy has a very special offer. A family color computer pack to take away at a very special price. This family computer comes complete with software and costs an incredible $449, a saving of $241.69. It's powerful, educational, and ideal for the young and young at heart. The easy way to start computing. The color computer family pack from Tandy. Get it while it's hot. Tandy, the biggest electronic store in Australia. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tim. Playing Daggerth like that idiot from the book. <laughs> You're watching Coco Talk. And we're back. Do we need another one? No, I'm good. Okay. Okay, so what I'll do is I'll play James's presentation, which is about 13 and a half minutes, and it's into his optimizations of MC10's basic. 
um, you know, including some fairly deep dives into it here. So I thought it'd be cool for the technical people on the panel. And then we'll segue straight into the game on challenge results and talk about them. We'll also be able to ask great questions about the Pac-Man game itself. And um, I did get some notes from James that he sent because he won't be able to make it for questions. So he's kind of trying to anticipate some. So I'll read those after the presentation is over. In the meantime. Hey, you guys seeing that? Yep. Yep. Okay. And let me know if I should turn the volume up or down. This is a summary of the Microsoft basic optimizations made to the MC10 ROM. This is by no means all of them, but oh, it is bit. kind of an overview. Oh. Microsoft Basic uses two functions, careget and caregot, for reading through a basic program. These sit on the direct page, and caregot is a subset of careget. Careget increments the code pointer using uh, self-modifying code. It reads the character from that address. It jumps to the ROM, tests the character. If it's a space, it jumps back and reads another character. If it's not, it returns with some CPU flags set to kind of identify what type of character it read. Um, the changes to the code, I moved the rest of the code from ROM to RAM so it doesn't have to jump back to ROM. And if it's a space, it's a short branch instead of a long jump, saving a little time there as well. Now, for caregot, it reads the previously read character, so instead of having to jump to this routine, I save the character we've read, and then I return with CPU flag set 4, and as I said with caregot, it just skips the incrementing the pointer. I've replaced the ROM code with three macros. That The first one, it loads the save character from the direct page, so we don't have to jump to the RAM and test and a bunch of stuff like that. It can just read that. For where it's needed, a simple test. Uh, the second macro will load from the direct page and test the character. If it needs more than that, it just calls the caregot routine with the third macro. This isn't used much, so it was more important to save space than to, to worry about it. When processing a token, it calls the RAM hook subroutine. That's basically an address in RAM where you can intercept handling of the basic tokens and call your own code to so if you want to expand the interpreter or whatever you can just hook your own code in there it scans the keyboard looking for break or pause and if those aren't pressed then it processes the token continues processing the token i do this differently i skip the ram hook entirely i mean that just jumps out to it and jumps back but that's two jumps for every single token and i count down from 16 and each time it goes through this and if i reach zero then i check to see if there's a key press and if a key isn't pressed then i continue processing the token if the key is pressed then it calls the longer break or pause scanning routine not having to do that inefficient keyboard scanning routine every time saves a lot of cpu time now, as we continue to process the token, it has to check to see if it is a basic token. Negative numbers are a token. This makes it a simple test. If it's not, then it has to be a literal, which is handled in some separate codes, and literals being a variable assignment or something like that. If it's not that, then it would issue a syntax error. Uh, it has to check to see if it's a valid token. This is basically a range check. So if 
it's a number greater than there are pointers on our token table, you know, it's an unknown token, then it has to issue an error because it doesn't know what this is. And if it tries to jump somewhere, it's going to end up in Never Neverland, okay? If it is a token and it is within range, then it loads the address and calls the function. Okay, I changed that. I still check if it's a token. I still handle literals. But I've expanded the token jump table to where it supports all token values. And all the illegal values point to the error routine. So if instead of doing the the range check, it's just automatically goes there. And there is an error um, ram hook so that if you want to add additional tokens, you can intercept the error code there and you can extend the basic that way. But you can't override an existing token. You would have to create a new token for anything you add. It just saves a little bit of processing time for every token. Skip remaining line. Okay. On an if statement that fails, like if A equal B, then something. If that's not true, it's supposed to drop to the next line. In rem, it's supposed to skip skip the comments that follow and drop to the next line. Well, the current way of doing that, they, they have a, they've stored the current line number, but they haven't stored a pointer to the line. So the only way they have of finding the next line is reading to the end of the current line a character at a time. And once they've reached the ter- the zero that's the terminator for the line, then it starts interpreting the next line. Um, the new way is to store the pointer to the line. And we use that when we need to jump to the n- next line. We just grab the pointer. Each line is stored with a 16-bit integer for the line number, and then a pointer to the next line is a linked list. And we just grab that pointer to the next line and start interpreting it without reading the rest of the line. This saves a lot of time as well. Multiplication without hardware multiply instruction is very time-consuming. It involves a lot of shifting. If a bit is set, then we add, and if it's not, then, you know, it's, it's a very long looping process that's very slow. The hardware multiply lets us multiply in the function that's in the ROM. We multiply a mantissa by one byte. And we basically do the four multiplications, and then we add everything together. So it's it's much faster, and anything that uses a lot of hardware mu- or a lot of the multiplication, the hardware multiply will speed it up by like 40%. Go to and go sub. Minor change here. Since I store a pointer to the current line, I don't have to search for the end of the line and then check to see if the line number we're going to or go subbing is from the next line. If it, you've got a program that go to has a go to to the current line, then you don't have to search from the top of the code. Um, it's a little faster there, but more importantly, it, you don't waste all the time searching for the end of the line. 16-bit and basic function optimizations, 16-bit text screen clear. You've, you're writing to the screen half as many times and looping half as many times. Scroll, um, I actually unroll the loop an additional time, so it's only looping one quarter of the time. Makes a big difference on the speed of the screen scroll but it's only a couple extra instructions and 16-bit string compare. Anything over three characters long on a string compare is faster. Slightly slower less than that, but, you know, even a few strings that are longer, it makes up for it. 16-bit memory move. Anytime you're 
changing string variables or adding new variables, this they have to be inserted into the variable list, and the variable list has to be expanded, compacted, whatever, and it's through a memory move, and the 16-bit memory move speeds this up quite a bit. Use 16-bit instructions in the math library. There's a lot of things that require moving bytes around, and by moving two bytes at a time, it saves a lot of time. And everything goes through the math library, so anytime you do with numbers. So it can be a noticeable difference. Use 16-bit instructions for stack manipulation. This is mostly dealing with the for loop. Uh, it keeps information about the for loop on the stack, and when it's pushing information onto it or pulling it off of it, I'm using 16-bit pushes and pulls instead of 8. Print character checks for the most common case first. So printable text characters are first instead of last, like the original code. So printing text will be faster. Load two number Common code optimizations, you've got loading two numbers at once using D instead of separate 8-bit loads. Just saves an instruction. Use offsets from an end. Okay, this, some of the code loads the index register and then increments it to access the next byte and increments it to access the next byte and so on. And I use the offsets on the indexed addressing so that they're just accessed with the offset. And then I update the index register at the bottom just one time. So it saves several increments. Organize variables on direct page for more efficient use. This is the floating point register so that I can use more 16-bit operations in the floating point library. I think it's mostly sign or exponent. I can't remember what moving that to a smarter byte order. Using reciprocals to allow multiplication instead of division. I divide one by a couple of the constants that are in the ROM and then I multiply by that instead of dividing by the other so that multiplication is faster to begin with. And then we're using the hardware multiply, so it really makes it faster than the division. And there may be a slight difference in the error because the numbers aren't represented exactly the same or as perfectly as the original division. But the speed difference is worth it. And uh, it's such a lower error amount that it most likely won't ever be a problem. This speeds up sine and cosine and stuff. I removed the programmer's name and the Easter egg for Microsoft to save some space. Uh, new functionality being tested. Go to go sub a variable instead of just having a hard-coded line number. Restore. You can use a constant or a variable so that you can start reading data directly from that line instead of having to search for the data statements. Remove spaces from code during tokenization is one that I've just started experimenting with. It lets me eliminate uh, the test for spaces in the careget, caregot functions. And since that's used for all the parsing, this would be a significant speed improvement, but you would have to re-tokenize programs because they would not be compatible otherwise. Code reorganization to make it more efficient. I have moved so much code around, eliminated some code. There's a lot of unnecessary branching that was going on. And just the ROM really doesn't look like the original, but it's I've done this to make it more efficient. Okay, I originally wanted else because it's convenient and you can combine a lot of stuff on a line. It makes it 
you know, simplifies the logic, but it requires scanning to the end of the line looking for an else statement and if an if fails, so we lose the speed of that optimization that I did. I can put it on a separate line possibly and set some flags to decide whether to execute this else or not, but it would be very non-standard and there's several basics don't have else, so that probably won't happen, but I haven't decided yet. Um, future speed enhancements, cache, go to and go subline numbers and their addresses so we don't have to search through the basic program for the line numbers once we've looked them up, uh, at least recently used ones. Cache recent, recent variable names and their addresses. Instead of searching through the variable table, recently used variables, we would already have in a quick access spot. This would be really nice for like uh, loops and stuff that don't use more than however many we cache so that you don't have to look through that entire list of variables. We just look through the small list. Convert constants from strings to int float during tokenization instead of runtime. ASCII to int or float is a very time-consuming thing and it has to be done every time a line is executed. This would let us just do it at tokenization and then it's done would make a code a lot faster and not we wouldn't have to put constants into variables to speed up code. Store line numbers as a token. Okay, this basically go to or go sub would have a token followed by the number for the line and then when the code is executed, it would replace that token with another one that says what follows is an address and it would look up the address of that line number and it would put that in place of the integer. So the next time that code is executed, it would see the token that it's an address and it wouldn't have to do the lookup. It would just load it and start executing from that address. So that would be nice speed-wise, but <laughs> inserting a new line after hitting break or something like that, you'd have to convert all the lines back to integers before you could insert a line. So that is the summary of at least the major ones and uh, none of the bit twiddling and minor counting cycles here and there. So anyway, that was James's presentation and a couple of notes I got from him. Um, he said non-math oriented programs are sped up anywhere from eight to 12% on average. Uh, he did a conversion of Conway's life and was on the low end, do the heavy use of set and point to fit in less RAM. So those don't get too much speed optimizations. Programs that depend heavily on multiplication can be 40% or more faster. If you look at the Fourier transfer program that he tweaked on the COCO 3, um, this was 50% faster with some of the changes to the code. So that was including the division being using reciprocals, and et cetera. Uh, he's got a video of that on his YouTube page. And he's not planning to do an official release until he can add some more feature creep, as he put it. And he's got another project that he's working on that he wants to finish first. So that was his additional comments aside from the presentation. I wanted to ask Jim in particular, because you're a basic programmer, what do you think of some of the things that he's been doing with the MC10 Basic? Oh, you're muted. Well, he's putting me out of a job. I don't have to optimize basic programs if he's going to get a speed increase up to 40%, but uh, no, I, 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 whatever. It's an interesting exercise. I, one thing I, he did for me was he gave me a small little poke routine, I think, that I could put at the beginning of some of my programs that did one or two of these kinds of optimizations. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that was, you know, sometimes that made a game just a little bit 
more playable than it could have been otherwise. Yeah, because I was thinking like between the compiler that Greg's doing and then also just optimizing the raw basic ROM itself, it might give you some opportunity to create some games that just would not have been possible before, or at least not well. Yeah, I mean, but it's, uh, now that we have the compiler, it's kind of, oh gosh, you know? And how would you ever implement this into an actual MC10? So it runs into that problem of base hardware kind of a a thing. Well, that's like, maybe it requires an MCX or an MC uh, SD where, you know, it's basically adding extended base anyway. So at that point you can overwrite the original or, you know, duplicate the ROM code in the RAM and then actually run it from there. So it's still compatible. It won't break the basic programs, but you'll get those. No, that's true. Because I'm assuming the ROM and the MC10 uh, is is also not socketed like everything else. <laughs> no, <laughs> of course not. So yeah, no, I mean yeah, if it if it if it uh, gets to a point that it can create a huge speed increase, and uh, and uh, somebody puts in an MCX or some simple way, then uh, that'd be great. Yeah, because the one thing I see, like like Greg, you can correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I would I would guess as most basic compilers that the comp- created compiled code that your compiler does would be bigger than the original basic program because you're not just using ROMs, you're using your own routines. So of course that takes out of the RAM. So if you were writing a very large game or a large program for the MC10, using the optimized ROM here would give you a speed gain without taking extra RAM away from your program. Whereas in your case, you could get even more speed, but at the cost of some RAM. I think, well, I think there's a couple of things can mention. I think um, is that the design points between the two projects are kind of different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if I were a kid, you know, and the MC10 came out, uh, I would love the diff and defer ROM. <laughs> that would be great because you know all of my stuff just works so much faster. And you know, the ROM has, you know, if it's in a stock MC10, you we get the soldering iron of the law and take out the old one and put the, put the diff and deffer one in. And, you know, I could still do all my editing right in the MC 10, right. With a compiler, you don't, you don't get editing, right. You don't get, and debug as well. That's painful, right. I mean, yeah, it's just like change one thing, recompile interpreter, right. So the fact that he's got an interpreter going and doing the, hopefully the right thing, um, you know, is, is, is good, really good. Um, I think, you know, there were, that I did at one point consider what it would take to make an interpret, like to tweak the, to tweak the ROM so that you could type in your basic program still in the MC10 and still have it generate compiled code. And, you know, if I could tweak the ROM, that would be great. I did, I did poke at that. Um, some ideas that, but, you know, I mean, there's all these constraints. Like when you write a program to memory, right? What are you writing, right? Is it just the text? Can you get away with, I mean, you tokenize it, but can you take it one more step further? So if you're doing an if then else, what if you tokenize the then and then store the address of the else right after the then, right? In case you wanted to jump. Yeah, so you don't have to scan ahead. You can just literally jump. You to just the, go, yeah. right? But now, you've, but now you've kind of lost something. Now you have to scan the program once for all the places. And then after it's done, then you can run your program, right? So you've lost the immediacy. So um, everything is a trade-off. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, I think the, the code that he's done, at least the part that I remember, I remember he's been talking about this for a long time. I think while the group was still active, he, 
he still did things. And I think I remember reading his blog. Um, so the, the, he's done like a really, I think a really good job of keeping things in the right places and, you know, tweaking things that, you know, some, some mistakes, I think that were, you know, it's hard to call them mistakes because, you know, you know, know, everything was a port, right? So you you make your choices as you go. Um, Using the multiply, I think was a really, you know, smart thing to do. Yeah. That was one he's quite proud of because I know we've, we've discussed that and talked to him about it on the show before. Some of those same things applied to Cocoa Basic too. So. Yeah. So, I mean, the old, the, the original code, right. was just taken and ported and none of the new instructions were done. So, um, so you have a 6803, you might as well use it. Right. So um, that was cool. The other thing that he did, which I thought was, which was impressive was that he, he didn't cheat like I did. Um, he kept the floating point. He made, he kept it as floating point. Whereas for me, I said, nah, I'll make it fixed point. Right. I, so, you know, the, the amount of math you have to do for floating point is considerably more difficult than that you would do for fixed point. Yeah. So um, that's another. Though even there, he managed to use the hardware multiply instruction right. to speed up some stuff there too. So now since I'm just a compiler, I can do all sorts of things that, you know, uh, I, I I know everything where everything's going to be ahead of time, right? There's no lookup table. I just grab it, right? Um, you know that so the compiler will give you more things than you could than if you're doing it really as a MC10 ROM. So it, you know, make sure that <laughs> you look at the stuff that he does, right? And he's he's trying to make it as a built-in still. I think still fit within the original 8K, right? I believe so, yeah, because that was one of the reasons some of his stuff right. was to compress the code and shrink so, it down as opposed to speed it up. Yeah, so he did Not all of that, that stupid uh, Microsoft uh, <laughs> Easter egg. Easter egg. Yeah, yeah I, I would have done the same thing. I would have gotten rid of the, <laughs> I mean, I think it was Chamberlain who wrote the basic, yeah. I think. And yeah, because yeah, Tim Linder is doing Squanchy basic, which is a kind of a compressed basic of all the various ROMs and the yeah. Cocos is doing the exact same thing. And that was one of the first so, things he ripped out too. Yeah, was, so I, I thought it was a, a really fun project. Um, you know, again, like I, we could rewind time and stick his ROM in. I'd, I'd be totally all over that. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating exercise to try to just uh, achieve something that you would have been keen on doing when you were younger. Yeah. Yeah. To try, I mean, to, I, to, try to make something right, to try to make something better. It's it's got its own rewards. That whether or not we'll be able to, many yeah. will be able to use it or not. Yeah. And to be honest, it's 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 a type of optimization that's very near dear to my heart because I mean the whole Nitrous Nine project when we started it back in '93 was to take the existing six zero nine code and optimize it six zero nine, and then later on optimize the actual you know functions and subroutines within algorithmically to run faster versus just taking the code and converting it to something faster than six zero nine. In fact, you know now it's been backported. We've sped up the six zero nine version as well, and it's just. Because you take, we have the time to do this. These guys had, you know, deadlines to meet. And of course they had, you know, they have to make a basic interpreter for 500 machines all over the world. So they have a very generic one and it basically creates the same base code and just literally translates it to 6803, 6809, but doesn't take advantage of those chips like they could. So everything's a trade-off. Yeah. Usually the time versus money then. (laughs) It's certainly dear to my heart that the, the, the process, like you say, Curtis, of, of, Taking code and then making code smaller or making code faster is itself just a kind of its own reward, you know? It's, it's, yeah, it's like that ultimate nerd joke where I'm going to keep compressing this thing until it's one instruction to play Pac-Man. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I've never achieved that goal. I'm still trying, but. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I don't know how about the rest of you. How many of you followed um, his his talk? And I think for those of you who have read Color Basic Unraveled. Um, yeah, know. it was definitely a deep dive. And I, I, I like James actually questioned me when he was, he was preparing and he said, you know, should I do that deep of a dive? And I said, I do know there's some technical people going to be on this panel. Greg, actually, I was thinking of you particularly in this case yeah. and Alan. Who know the CPU intimately, and I thought this would be cool for for you guys yeah. to hear that what his what he's been doing. Plus, well, I'm already I, familiar with it. I think Darren Atkinson. I think he did a ROM disassembly of the original, and that's kind of my bible. <laughs> um, so basically, I, I because I have so much of that in my head, <laughs> um, I was able to follow along, you know, the, the talk and kind of poke in and go, "Yeah, that's totally what I would do." Yep. Yeah, get rid of that thing. You know, there's no reason to jump to the direct page all the time and just get rid of that. So that's you know, well, well done. <laughs> um, it was entertaining, even though I only caught some of it. Good stuff. We need more of this. Yeah, it's a lot of detail too. Like it actually gives you know, if you're a budding ML programmer yourself, it gives you some hints of some things that maybe you should look at in your own code to try to speed things up and you know like store pointers directly here instead of having to go scan yeah. through an entire line looking for the end of it is type thing if, you, if right. you have a way to do it but to your question of you know how can you make let's say let's say we did decide that this nope this had to be on the wrong and what's the best way of compressing your data internally right um you know i think it's i think there have been other basics out there that can compile to p code and then the ROM would be responsible for unpecoding it and putting it into even readable form. Yeah, that's what um, Basic 9 does on Gerald Stein. So. Right. So, you know, I don't know if that would fit in 8K, <laughs> um, but that would be something that, you know, maybe, you know, another, yet another project, you know, could could you do that? And how much how much would you gain right. from that, right? If you, you, can, need, you, need, you, you know. need a switchable ROM so you have two 8Ks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so but that would be a neat trick too so um you know there have been you know different ways to p-code things and you can get p-code to be pretty dense yeah um, also karen had a nice wise uh, ass comment about my wise ass comment about the one instruction pacman he goes you can probably buy an arm variant for that that is a one instruction pacman so. <laughs> Yeah, I don't anyway, know. That, is, that is the last of the presentations. I can't take any questions for James because he's not here to answer them. And if I tried to answer, I'd just be guessing. So, um, <laughs> you can ask think, anyway. <laughs> would we all? <laughs> so, I think we'll go straight into Ken Waters if he hasn't fallen asleep yet um, to get into the game on challenge results here, featuring Greg's very own Pac Man game. Welcome, everyone, to the results of this week's Game On Challenge, where we played Pac-Man on the MC-10 computer. There were a total of 24 participants this week, so let's see how everybody did. Ron Delvaux with 640. David Krieger's son, Joshua, 1,280. Exile in Paradise, 5,300. David Krieger, 5,340. Coco Discord user, 5660. Rich N, 8320. Mark B, 8550. Data Soup Terry Stee, 10,170. 
Kieran, 12,130. Paul Shoemaker, 12,820. Chip Monkey, 13,460. Canadian Retro Things, 15,190. Brian Walsh, 15,210. Low Level, 16,170. Paul Fiscarelli, 17,250. Melly was 17,700. Mr. Chip, 19,240. Sloopy Malibu, 20,920. Tasman Scott Cooper, 21,580. Jim Rye, 23,010. L. Curtis Boyle, 23,340. Sabhead, 24,220. Mr. Dave, 6309. 28,490. And the number one score this week is... Buck Owens with 42,580. Thanks to everybody that played this week, and I will see you next weekend. Coco Salutes Buck, Buck Owens! Owens. Yeah! All, All right! right. So that was uh, the uh, pa- Pac-Man on the MC-10. And oh, somebody's got to stop sharing before I can share my screen. That would oh, be me. <laughs> okay, where, where are we? There we go. Here's some footage from the Wednesday night uh, playthrough. Um, I can get that going. There we go. This so, is using the on, online MC10 emulator? Yeah, this is, it's just uh, from the Wednesday night play through. So there's a few different emulators and whoever Sloopy decided to show on the screen at the time. So I will mention we got a comment from Kieran here, 60 in the chat, uh, also the author of XWare. And he said he got his score using XWare because, of course, he's been adding MC10 support just the last little while. Uh, which is just about done. And he did want to comment a fantastic version of Pac-Man, by the way, to Greg. Thank you. It took a long time to write. <laughs> that was probably Chipmunky. So you actually added like the musical interludes. You had the little, you know, cut scenes and stuff in there. Like you, you went all out on this sucker. <laughs> Yeah, I never, I personally never got to a cutscene until this morning when I was playing it, so it didn't count. <laughs> I was trying to go for the strategy to to uh, feed the uh, ghost Pac Man until they got to be fat and slow, and it just didn't work. <laughs> and I do have to say, like during your presentation, Greg, you were talking about that 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 other version that you're going to do the dual player Mrs. Pac Man, you know, Battle of Sexes thing. I really would like to see that. That would be awesome. Yeah, I want to see that also. Yes, I agree. Uh, well, I, no, I apologize in advance if you, you lose your MC10 because the two of you are battling <laughs> for the keyboard. You can always tone <laughs> it down with a bit of curling, I'm sure. So, <laughs> Or Gilmore Girls, depending. Or, Gilmore Girls. <laughs> or you could just have the two um, MC10s connected by uh, RS-232 and there you each go. one has their own keyboard and monitor. Yeah, that's another thing as to what, you know, should we should we network these things and get them going in parallel, right? And Greg, you created that wonderful um, 
routine that allows for the scanning of two uh, keys at the same time on the opposite side of the keyboard, right? That's for basic, yeah. I mean, you don't yeah, need to do that. Yeah, for basic. And I was able to get that, um, that Pong version, which was one of the few programs, so that you could actually hold down your key and your, the other player wouldn't be stopped moving their, their thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think Radio Shack actually, I think may have used a peek or a poke to do that for one of their games. Did they? Yeah, I think I think it mostly worked. <laughs> okay, so maybe maybe it was just a real hardware thing that I hadn't noticed that it was working. Yeah, that I mean the the reading of the keyboard strobe is you know it's simple to do. I think the main problem is that you know on every instruction as it's doing the key pull routine, it clobbers the um the clobbers the register that's used to select which bank of letters you want to look at and read. Yeah. Um, so oh, great during during our pre-call with you, you mentioned Easter eggs in here. Did you yeah want well, to I, can, I can probably present. Let's see. Let me um try to bring up Safari here. I will stop sharing so you can show some Easter eggs. All right, let's see. So let me get it up. Um, let's see. I hope there's nothing too scandalous in my screen here. Let's get it so it fits the nice screen. Um, let's see. Try to figure out how to share. Yeah, Greg, I thought all the scandalous stuff was behind you because how it's all blurred out. <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> it's uh, basically my electronic hobbies behind me, and I, I don't. I used my. I work at home, so when I'm on conference calls, I just by default will have it fuzzed out. Yeah. I'm, like here you're actually with geek, so you probably should have just made it more clear and like fuzzed your face. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah you see you see behind me. I mean it's <laughs> yeah. yeah, but our, this this our is magazines and manuals here. Yeah. This is judicious Boku. <laughs> so let me let me get it up. See so what was I gonna do? I was gonna look up Pac-Man. Oh the Easter eggs, that's right. So let's see. Yeah, I didn't until you mentioned it during the pre-call there, I'd never even heard there was Easter eggs in, in your Pac-Man version. So let's see. Well, there's I think I think you'll probably uncover most of them during play, but um see so the first one is the break key on the on the entrance screen. All right. So it basically it gives you a little blurb. Kind of a credit screen of testers and yeah. tools. So play. I think it was uh, James Tamer and I kind of went and did most of the most of the initial stuff, and then Mark, I think Mark Abin, I think I'm trying to remember the last was name. it Sabatini, Mark Sabatini, yeah, he yeah, because he did me, that Coco game review page at some point. Yeah, too, I and I I gave him an early copy of the game and asked his opinion on it, and he went and gave me some feedback. So um, unfortunately, he's not credited. Um, but you know, it'd be good. I think you know, <laughs> uh, if I do ever do the other, the, the you know, battle of the sexes, definitely I'm going to add him as part of the credits because he did help out with this one. Um, so the other, the other thing, if you want a really high score, is uh, Control Shift I makes you invulnerable. Oh. So. I'm glad you didn't reveal that before the game. <laughs> yeah, that would have been good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So you can play as long as you want and go to all your screens. Um, okay, now you can see all the cutscenes. 
<laughs> so. I don't know. I could probably still find a way to die. Now, is that a toggleable feature? Like once you set that, is it, are you stuck in that mode or can you? Turn I think it back I off? think originally I had it toggleable. I think right now it's stuck. Um, I did have some uh, problems that when I was first developing um, Pac-Man on the emulator was that I think for whatever reason, my computer was not emulating it correctly. Um, you know, when I would quit and reload it, it would work fine, but sometimes keys would get stuck in the down position and the, you know, the, I wasn't able to debug. So, um, yeah, so some things got mucked around when I did that. And I think I probably inadvertently <laughs> or maybe advertently left, made it so that it was sticky. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to cheat and go back, you know, because once you once you're invulnerable, you can't actually die. So yeah, <laughs> um, can you still abort the game? Like if you wanted to restart, or or you have uh, to like reset the machine? Question: I think break is dead. Yeah, I think you have to reset. Okay, so. I did want to compliment you on one thing too that we didn't really mention before because you're limited to the four color palette and the lower res. Is that of course you couldn't have different colored ghosts, but you kind of got around that by giving them different colored eyes. So there is they are right. still unique. Yeah, that was, that was a nice way to do it. Right. Because most of the Coco versions didn't didn't do that. They just you had four generic looking the same ghosts and you actually yeah, gave them each their own personality. Yes. That's I, how I realized that the uh, ghosts uh what they're what they individually were, because if you watch through the uh, gameplay from Wednesday, I started calling out someone's uh someone's game as they were going through, and I was like, Yeah, this person uh, just got uh eaten by that ghost and they're like how do you know which ghost it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so all in the eyes here yeah so yeah, i kind of yeah i kind of cheated because my own screen was actually um playing this screen right here where it's showing the different ghosts so right. i was able to look at it real quick <laughs> yeah. yeah and also a big thank you greg for popping by and rather short notice because i emailed the entire mc10 uh, guest panel group about an hour into it, because I was actually out, out, out of the out of the house there for a while, while Sleepy was doing the stream, and I was hoping one or two of you might be able to show up and <laughs> say something. And so it was really nice that you pop by as the author of the game, and then Jim popped by in the text chat a little bit too. So, yeah, and thank you for showing up on my on on my stream before the main Coco talk, so that I could <laughs> usurp the show. <laughs> yeah, that's. I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out. Now, if you do end up doing another version or this other Battle of the Sexes one, maybe you should look into supporting uh, that other cartridge that Ed uh, makes, which has a sound chip and joystick ports. Yeah, that's another thing. You know, I, I eventually, I think I'm, once I get my, this source code ported over to normal mnemonics, <laughs> uh, right now it's using my old school. As you know, I made my Your, your custom six out of three instructions. Right, <laughs> and it's using that. So it'll, I think I would probably make everyone <laughs> pull their hair out if they had to look at this. Um, so I would have to convert that over first. That's the, that's really the only reason why I haven't released it. Um, the source code. And also laziness. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, eventually I'll get that out there. And I know that uh, some folks over in the Alice world wanted because they you know people have better they still have a 6803 but they have better hardware to run it on so i know yeah, the later alice folks have been wanting to adapt it to another screen and possibly also the coco one um so 
you know, eventually I'll, I'll let it out. Yeah, it's a very well done game. And the fact that uh, the one other thing I didn't know until we had our pre-talk was that you'd actually based it on the original uh, Z slash Z80 source code from the arcade game. So a lot of the ghost intelligence is done like the arcade. So it's actually right. a closer yeah. clone than most of the Coco ports were. Yeah, right, right now this is doing the similar logic of the game, right? So right now it's trying to track, um, trying to track the pink ghost and it's just aiming for it and then um, when it goes in the other mode, it tries to run away from the pink ghost. Um, so this is just that whole logic. And it was amazing to me that it basically got through almost the entire screen. Um, so when I, when I found that out, I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so if you watch the game screen, it gets pretty far before it finally dies. I know I have to ask you from a personal, cause you, cause you know, the intricacy of the game from writing it type thing. What are your scores typically like when you play? Your <laughs> well, I think, you know, Jim said it best, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I, uh, you write the game, you don't play it <laughs> unless you debug it. Um, so, you know, when I played it, I mean, I can play it all the way through the key, um, but the, the monster timing is basically, I think after a certain boards and it's, I apologize, I, I don't have them all memorized, but, um, you know, after I think that I think it's the uh, it's the bell or the key that the monsters don't even turn blue. They don't even flash. Um, so basically, you're just doing a pattern. So if you want to be, if you know, if you know your Pac-Man lore, basically, until you hit a power pellet, all those monsters have pre pre-programmed directions from where they're going. So if you follow a pattern, you just develop a pattern. You know, did I die yet? No. Nope. Okay. Well, I can go this way. Just remember what you did from your previous game, um, and so that'll work. So um, if I had this all prepared, I'd, I'd have the cherry, the the strawberry, all the boards. The timings change as you go from the cherry's the easiest, then the strawberry board uh, comes next, and then the can't know if it's the strawberry and three peaches, but um, the two peaches. And then the apple board um, is the next break. And then, so there's another timing that you have to do with that. And then there's, I think, one or two more breaks after that. And that's when the, the monster's speeds change. So it's pretty close to what the original has in terms of when they change. Obviously, the patterns are going to be different because it's completely different names. Um, but yeah, if you if you start from the beginning and you uh, map out, it's a fun little puzzle. Just just go in a direction and then go until you die, <laughs> um, and then just remember what you did. Um, and if you hit the arrow key before, just before you take a corner, those are two things. One, you're guaranteed to hit the corner at the right time, and two, you you do the corner faster. Um, so if you do that in your in the actual game and you do that in this this version, you'll have a consistent way of always tracing out the same path. So you're much more likely to just to be able to just lather, rinse, repeat, just do the same pattern over and over and over and over and over again until you get completely, <laughs> you just go stir crazy um, or you mess up and then, <laughs> then it's over. Um, but yeah, that's how you win at Pac-Man. You just play that same, you, you memorize the pattern and you do it. And then once you hit the pellets, you're kind of on your own. Um, but, you know, hopefully you save them to the end. Um, and then after the after the board where 
you know, the, the monsters don't actually change color or just reverse, then it's pretty much um, consistent from that point on. So you can use a pattern to even go through the power pellets. Okay. Can I ask what were the uh, runners up in terms of the games? Oh, no, you could, but I'd let me I'd have to load it up here just a second. <laughs> I think uh, Space Assault was second, wasn't it? Oh. I think it wasn't the one we had to tie break, if I remember. Or no, actually, no, it was one bulk lower. I think. Let me just bring up the list here. The funny thing was, unlike the Dragon Special, where there was a definite majority going for one or two particular games, the MC10 was a lot more evenly split. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of really good games for the MC10. Yeah, so Pac-Man was number one. Space Assault was second. Uh, sucks, that recent game that came out, a machine language game. I can't remember who wrote that one. Um, Obviously, it doesn't <laughs> suck. <laughs> no, it's that space shooter. I'm sure you guys are more familiar with it than I am. But yeah. Do you remember who the author was, Jim? Oh, it doesn't come off the top of my head. Uh, Mr. McGillicuddy is the name on the Facebook group, I think, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, not his real name. No, uh, no. Then after that, it was Dropship, Bouncy Ball, the Asteroids Port, uh, the Darren Atkinson did Typing Attack, Lost Valley Pinball, Flagon Bird, and Dungeon Crawl. All equal number of votes each. Is that Dungeon Crawl my Dungeon Crawl? Yes, it is. Oh, my God, I made it on the list. <laughs> <laughs> Let the pigeons loose. I voted for it, Jim. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're too kind. <laughs> I play it all the time. Oh, really? God. But like I said, like in the Dragon, we had uh, the first place finisher on that one, and we had more panelists. So we had 11 people, I think, voted for the number one game. The second place was like four. But in this case here, it was all within three votes from lowest to highest. Like it was very, very close all the way down. So, which I, I guess, I guess speaks to the fact that there's a lot of really good games to choose from. And, you know, just depending on what genres you like personally is probably the ones you picked. Yeah. Oh, no we picked a good one. I noticed. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. All of us Canadians apologizing to each other. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Uh, personally, I played this on my uh, real MC10 because uh, I was getting way better scores on my real MC10 than on an emulator myself. So, yeah, and I remember early on in the competition there, there was uh, some people complaining that the people playing on the emulator were quote unquote cheating a little bit because they, you know the keyboard's wider and stuff. But you know, well, as Ken pointed out, some people played be it fair, better than the original hardware. So. To be yeah. fair, the original hardware is the way to go um, because there's no latency. Um, yep. Or, you, you, or use uh, Jim uh, James Tamer's emulator. That's I did find close. that on the emulator, I'd tend to miss my turns a little bit because I was used to the timing on the real computer. So Yeah, and the FPGA version, um, which I've never had, never played it, but I can imagine that would have very low latency. Um, yeah, I've tried to tweak the um, JavaScript emulator to have less latency, but when I do that, other things start getting <laughs> jerky. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and also, true. I like I actually like the keys on the MC10 for uh, a control pad. It just feels nicer than a modern-day keyboard for buttons to push for a control pad. Hmm. The little chiclet keys. Yeah, I think... Yeah, yeah you, to be honest, I can't to... imagine playing this on a Sinclair Spectrum membrane keyboard. That would drive me absolutely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> My fingers would never be on the right keys. 
I've been switching a lot of my games to WASD. So you're saying you like the actual WASZ uh, diamond? I yeah. I I mean I I'm used to it because I've played the Pac-Man quite a bit before. Hadn't pulled it out in a while, but yeah. and it shows how it's rusty. Yeah, it's a great war between the two formats. I think. Yeah, I, gotta, well, I was going to suggest something like one thing the Dragon community did a lot more than the Coco or the MC10 community. They just said, screw it, define your own keys. So they just bring up a menu and you just yeah. pick what do you want for left, yeah. what do you want for right, what do you want for up or yeah. down. And then people, like some people like playing four way stuff with like the right hand doing right, left, like the old Coco one keyboard up yeah. down with your left hand, which I prefer myself too, because some games are impossible otherwise. But other people prefer the diamond or they prefer the T shape or whatever else. So maybe just make it so that the person can. Im- Either yeah. like uh, Glenn Hewlett's done with Joust and Defender, where you define your own keys before the game gets run, you patch the game so it stays the same afterwards, or mm-hmm. make it definable in the game itself if you have enough room to do that. Yeah, I think James Tamer's emulator lets you define the keys how you want to. Yeah, but that would only work in that particular emulator. This would be in the game itself, so true, that anybody true, can point. change mm-hmm. it over. Yeah. Of course, even after you do that, someone's going to want to use the shift keys, which don't even show up in the rollover piece. <laughs> so what's next week's game? Oh, okay. Well, I can uh, tell you that. And here we are staying with the tradition of um, next week's guest of Mark Siegel. This is one that he was a designer for. Oh, yeah. Barlock. I remember this. Arlock. And uh, this is definitely a game where you have to uh, read the instructions because, uh, well, there, it's partially a chess game and partially a uh, fighting game. So, yeah, it's kind of like Archon how... was on the yeah. Negan and the other machines, but it's, it's it done is in a 3D wireframe perspective. So, it adds a whole 3D yeah. thing. You're floating on this platform you can fall off of. And so, you've got that screen for the you're fighting in and then you've got a chessboard screen for where you're moving around. And then, um, yeah. So it's a bit of a strategy and a bit of a action game. And one thing I liked about it, like it's strict chess. Of course you have certain pieces that are powerful enough to move in certain situations to do this. But in this case here, you can take the weakest piece in the board. And if you're really good at playing the arcade part, you can beat a much stronger piece. Yeah. So it's a interesting take. But Not as I like, said, uh, Archon. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's it's very similar to Archon. Yeah, except the three um, D thing because the they, I remember Archon yeah. kind of just switches to a two D view, and this one yeah. you actually do the three. This on one you're uh, two, and you've got a little uh, <clears throat> little radar below, so you can see where your opponent is, and and you got some of the more powerful it. pieces can mutate into other pieces if they feel like attacking you as a spider, they'll switch to a spider, they'll switch to a bat, so they can fly and all this other weird stuff. So. And you're actually fighting on a platform. So if you go over the edge of the platform, you immediately die. Nice. So, but as I said, you have to read the instructions to know how each piece will move on the board during the chess time and which characters can actually uh, change into other things. Like there's a snake, bat, um, Minotaur. Minotaur, yeah. Like you can shape. There's a couple of pieces that can shape shift into various other things. So, also, there's a comment here um, from Buck Owens, Steve Rasmussen. Question When the ghosts turned blue, did they have some kind of AI that directed them or was it random? Because they were pretty elusive. And uh, that's probably for Greg since you actually looked at the original code and you duplicated most of that in your own. 
Sheesh, you're asking me a good, really good question that I used to know the answer to immediately off the top of my head. I think, <laughs> wow, this is this is bad. This is a very fundamental piece. That, well, it's only been 15 years since you wrote it, so we figured it'd be <laughs> just off the top of your head. So. <laughs> and I believe it's random, and I, but it's a systematic. It's a pseudo-random, so it does the same thing every time. Um, and that goes for as long as they're blue, and then they revert back to their original. So in Pac-Man, there's a there's a the original where they they kind of go in their scatter mode, where each goes to their corners, right? There's a, there's actually a website that explains it way better than I can, and I did it by reverse engineering the code. So yours should work similarly then. But there's actual bugs in the code which are different than what was intended by the code. I know what the code intended to do. I don't actually know what the bugs do. Um, so there's a website where it actually has the bugs. And so the order in which they choose their up, down, right, left, you know, there's a bug in that. There's also a bug where if the, the pink ghost, which is chasing you, if it's going up, then instead of targeting you directly, it targets just to the left. It's like a, there's a, a carry bug. Um, so it doesn't actually target in the way that I thought. So I'm emulating not the bug, but the what what I could understand from it. Um, but yeah, so there's a scatter mode, and then there's the chase mode, where, which does all that stuff. And then when you hit a pellet, then they reverse, and then they go by a random. When they when they need to make a decision, they go by a, a random uh, direction. Okay. And then one last question from the chat here from Scott Cooper Tasman on the scoreboard there. He said, was wondering if your Pac-Man game has the kill screen on Maze 256. <laughs> no, it does not. Um, I, I didn't make one. I, I probably could. I probably could just let the counter just go and do something crazy um, and just let it go off into La La Land and just see what happens. <laughs> um, it wouldn't be playable, of course, but, um, you know, that might be a fun little Easter egg to put in if someone actually tried to make it to the bitter end. Okay, cool. Okay. Hey, uh, so next up, uh, I see we have uh, Jim Brain on the uh, panel with us. And uh, Jim, well, isn't there something going on in a couple of weeks? There, There is indeed. Can you hear me? Thanksgiving, right? Yes, no, tell kidding. us about yeah, it. That's right. Tell uh, us all about actually, it. <clears throat> is, is, the, is the Canadian Thanksgiving, Canuckistan or Canada? When, when's your Thanksgiving? Yeah, we did that last week. We tried to do before uh, snow hits. Yeah, well, so sucks to be you, I guess. <clears throat> um, so in two weeks, um, I wanted to make sure everybody is aware that um, the Glenside Color Computer Club is going to be holding their delayed um, 29th annual last Cocoa Fest in Chicago, actually in Elk Grove uh, Village, <clears throat> November 6th and 7th. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, $15 for folks to join and, and enjoy the festivities. <clears throat> um, we do still have a few tables available if folks are interested in exhibiting. Um, as well, we got some speakers, uh, presenters for Saturday and Sunday. Curtis um, on the panel today, he's going to be presenting as well as uh, Nick Marentis also on the panel today. Um, so excited for that. <clears throat> it is the 40th, the belated 40th birthday of the original Coco, the Color Computer One. And uh, we're going to celebrate both its 40th and 41st birthdays at the, uh, at the event. Um, and there's going to be some other exciting things going on. Um, we are sorry that the <clears throat> our friends up north aren't going to be able to join us 
um, physically, but we are going to be live streaming on YouTube and on uh, Facebook. So for those who uh, can't make it, we definitely are encouraging folks to not just uh, sit back and watch us on, on YouTube. If you can, please join us physically for the event. But if you can't make it, um, you can also enjoy us on there. We've got a huge auction going on in the afternoon and uh, would love to have additional participation from folks online. But you do have to find out a way to get your stuff out of the event uh, facility by the end of Sunday. Um, but we do have quite a bit of stuff for the Coco Fest auction. So happy to answer questions. I'm going to be putting the excuse me, the, uh, the tentative schedule online at glensideccc.com. I'll put a note up on that. I'll also put it in Facebook. Um, but we've got two weeks, a little less than two weeks, actually, before we start our festivities. And I encourage everybody who can um, to please show up again in Elk Grove Village, um, uh, just outside of Chicago. Now, how much MC Stand stuff is in the auction, I guess, to make it you know, relevant? to You know, I, I didn't ask the other day, but I'm sure there's some of it because what happened is, um, and a boon for those who do show up or are interested in the uh, in the auction this year is <clears throat> we're trying to um, whittle down the, the huge amount of hardware that is uh, in various club members' uh, uh, garages and houses and so forth. It's well cared for stuff, but it really needs to get into the hands of people. And so um, one of the members had about 26 totes, I believe, of, <clears throat> of software and hardware, including some MC-10 stuff. I couldn't tell you exactly how much. Um, and a couple weeks ago, they, they made sure that they, they took everything out of the containers. They made sure it was all in good shape. Um, don't know about the testing of all of it, but it's all physically in good shape. And I told the folks that I really thought it was an imposition to try to put that stuff in people's houses. So I think most of it is going to come to the show and hopefully most of it will get distributed to other folks to take home and enjoy. You couldn't hold this off till us Canadians can make it down there. I know, I know. November eighth. What are the? I mean, I was thinking, man, you know, if they can get it done this week or sorry, next weekend, you know, start of November, that would be awesome. But no, it's uh, my understanding is it's November eighth, so we yeah, literally the day after the festival. Literally the day after. So unfortunately, I can't. Um, however, for those folks that are interested, we have set the tentative dates anyway for the twenty twenty two Coco Fest, which is May fourteenth and fifteenth. Um, a little bit later than we normally uh, have the show. So it's going to be about six months between two shows. Um, so hopefully everything will be okay. And those folks up north can can visit or or actually down south, outside of the United States, whatever, um, can visit us for the 2022 show in the early part of the year. Cool. I'm, I'm going to shoot for that. And hopefully there'll be some other uh, hardware <coughs> auction stuff there at that time too. So I, I Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I, I, I told the folks uh, in the board of directors uh, meeting, I, you know, I'm having stuff. I, it, it is important, I think, for a club to have a certain amount of um, key items. Like, I think the club should definitely have a representative sample of the various uh, color computer and MC10, maybe even Alice or so, because you never know when a presentation or demonstration needs those type of machines. And it's always nice to bring a couple extra so that if people have problems, I mean, these are these are forty. 40, 35, 40-year-old 40 machines, so it's possible that they could have issues at the show. So it's nice to have some of those, but <clears throat> I think there's a limit. You know, once you've got three or four representative Coco 3s in the club's possession and you've got a couple good copies of the software or whatnot, um, 
I think the rest of it really makes more sense to distribute to the members and and people who attend the festivities um, and and get the stuff being used. Because if it's not used, then it's really not valuable to anybody. Yeah. And with the eBay prices going skyrocketing high for everything these days, this might be an opportunity to get them back at the older prices. That's Unless right. Alan Huffman's there, I'll try not to bid you. That's a possibility. <laughs> <clears throat> well, and I forget the person. I forget his name, the guy that's always buying disk drives um, at the show. And Besides David Ladd? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think who the other guy is. But but uh, definitely there's some folks that have interest interest in certain things. And so you might have to um, wait until they go to the restroom and then hurry up and put it on the, <laughs> put it on the auction block. <clears throat> and uh, where would uh, somebody go to, uh, say, buy tickets or... Uh... Sign up Glenside, yeah. So the website glensideccc.com has um, has links to um, to sign up. Um, uh, Tony Pedraza is our organizer, and would be happy to set you up with a table. Or um, oh, and there's one th- one other thing I forgot to mention. Um, <clears throat> we do we are getting to the end of the time frame, but the uh, we are going to be having a community dinner on Saturday evening, uh, starting at six o'clock. It's a it's a catered uh, dinner, a buffet style that's going to be done. The the new venue that we're at um, has a uh, has a restaurant as part of the venue, and so they're catering a dinner for us. Um, it's twenty dollars per plate, um, and uh, we do need to get final numbers to them in the next week or so, <clears throat> so they have time to prepare you know the the ingredients for the for the buffet, <clears throat> and and that that is something you can also um, uh, do online. We are encouraging folks to uh, pay ahead of time, if at all possible. If you find later that you can't attend, we're happy to refund and so forth, but we would prefer to um, to arrange transfer funds early just because it cuts down on the work that needs to be done at the registration. We'd love for everybody to just be able to walk in, say they're there, they've already paid, pick up their, um, uh, their, their material for the day, and then immediately go in and start uh, enjoying the exhibits. <clears throat> Cool. Oh, yep. Thank you. Much. Did the meatloaf win? Uh, so currently, uh, so as of as as of what was it Thursday night? I was pointing out that um, the meatloaf. So we had we have uh, for the buffet. I have to pick two different uh, uh, protein options to be kind of fancy um, from a list of six, <clears throat> and London broil, chicken. Um, uh, I think there was, yeah, there was the trash fish. Everybody called it the trash fish. So tilapia <laughs> was, was there. And then there was a uh, meatloaf and, and I'm, I actually like meatloaf, but you all that just eat mysterious meatloaf from unknown sources or a strange breed of people, <clears throat> but meatloaf was cut neck and neck with the second option, which currently was, uh, um, pork loin. Pork loin was the second option. London boil was definitely the first pork loin was the second. And the people who were voting are people who have paid for the dinner. So these are the most important votes. And I think it was 56 versus 55 on the scoring. And so at the, at the end of the show, one of the individuals said, I'm paying for some additional plates and I'm going to put meatloaf as my number one choice. So currently meatloaf's in the winning or in the uh, second choice slot. Um, But I was not able to give the final uh, uh, choices for the meat to the uh, the caterer on Friday, I wasn't able to get a hold of her, and so I'll have to get a hold of her on Monday. So if you are <clears throat> if you are not interested in having meatloaf be the option pursued, then you need to get your money, put your money where your potential mouth is, and uh, try vote for something a little bit better. Um, but they are neck and neck. I think right now they're 
59 and 58 on the voting. Um, so pork loin is running a distant, is running a slight third, and meatloaf has regained the second position. And where do we vote? <clears throat> so you vote by ordering, uh, uh, ordering for um, a dinner, and then uh, just ping me. Um, my email is my. I can you can contact me from the website, or if you know my email address, go ahead and send me an email, and I can ask for your for your um, uh, for your vote uh, on which of the five options you're most interested in. And so I will. I'm trying to keep that as a public version of it, huh? Um, there's a public oh. version of the uh, uh, of the tracker available on Facebook, and so people can watch it as I update the numbers. It's uh, rigged. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, my yeah, was awesome. <laughs> it's rigged. <clears throat> yep. And of course, you're telling us all right now, right before supper, because we're starving because we've been on the show. I know, I know, hours, I know. So. <clears throat> I did not. I I didn't figure it'd be such a close race, but we we I just brought up the numbers on win, on Thursday night, and it turns out that meatloaf was running a close second, and so that spurred some people into action. So you guys can still you can still reclaim the crown for something besides meatloaf, but you got just a little bit of time to do it. <laughs> It's kind of like voting for the MC10 game that we had to vote for this week. It was like an almost dead neck and neck. So that's right. <laughs> okay. okay. Now I said we also have John Strong on who uh, wanted to do a quick presentation. I think this is on your new case, is it not? Yes. And uh, let me get the video on. And I'm going to skip doing news today because we're already running pretty long. So we're already pushing a six-hour show. Yeah. Yeah. We're. So basically, I just want to follow up. I don't had Stevie been on and showed his case or not? Nope. No, he uh, not. got yanked away in work, unfortunately. Okay. Well, this is not the what I'm going to show is I've got pictures on Facebook, and uh, I'm planning to put some on my website. I just haven't got it done. I'm too busy making cases, and uh, wanted to bring up for people who have been requesting this is some been planned is actually also working on a version that will support having the Pi 4 inside of it. And so the case basically uses, you have a choice of using a Pi 400 and a set of back panels you can purchase for that. Or you're gonna have an option real soon to be able to have a, a add-in plate that goes inside that your, that your Pi 4 can set on and a set of back panels to go with it. And so I haven't screwed these in. They're still tweaking the things, but we have your Pi 4 will come at. The only disadvantage I've seen with this is we're going to have to have a cable running out from the keyboard into the Pi 4 uh, just because of the way the ports are located on the Pi 4. So okay. on a Pi 4, what would you use as a keyboard? You can actually use uh, the official keyboard from Raspberry Pi. Okay. Are you also going to have a place to put a um, like an SSD for uh, externally booted Pi fours? I don't know if uh, I don't have one, and there's not a lot of room inside of here. So uh, that would be ten on me getting one, or somebody loaning one that they want to support. And I would look at it. But yeah, because there's because the way it looks, there's plenty of room for it because. I actually, that's how my Pi 4 is, and it's inside of a small little, um, another computer case. So yeah. Cables take a lot of room up. I don't have the cables installed, you know, in here to be able to connect them to a back panel. Uh, 
Uh, if you don't put the back panels on you, you can run just standard cables out of it. You will have more room. Uh, I thought a lot of people would go without the back panel, which is the reason I priced them separately. And I built it because to allow the flexibility of doing different things with it. And so far, everybody's ordered with the back panel. <laughs> so uh, that may change in the future, you know, but right now, but uh, because it would actually been cheaper to build without designing it for a back panel and changing, but then you'd be locked in to the 400 or to the, the keyboard and stuff. So you'd have to have totally different right. cases for it. And so this is kind of the deal is there. I'm you know, planning to have at Coco Fest. Okay. And I don't want to dwell on price. If somebody asked me the, the price, I will. It's online. Uh, just it's a, been a big project. And this is actually a test project for doing a full-size cocoa case. Yeah, which will go well with Pedro Pena's uh, duplication of the cocoa 3 motherboard and stuff. So you yes. actually will be able to build a cocoa from scratch pretty well. Yes, he, I have actually a board on the way. Uh, uh, UPS uh, delayed it. It was supposed to have been here Friday, yesterday. And so it's now scheduled to be here Monday. And so I also have a Cocoa 2 case. Uh, I don't have any Cocoa 2s anymore. I have a, a Candy TV 100, TPD 100, but no uh, Cocoa 2 here. So mostly I've got Cocoa 3 stuff. So this is kind of the thing that's done is, you know, this was designed to try to get down to a price point to be a lot less than what a full-size case would be. And hence, you know, You've got to cut out bottom with some reinforcements. This is to, to keep the time on printing the amount of plastic down. But still, it's pretty good. I think it's a pretty nice case. And, and you'll, uh, you'll have some hands-on in the fest. People can actually check out their sturdiness, et cetera. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll have some at the fest. Uh, I have some actually built if somebody's interested in get in before the fest. Uh, just contact me uh, either through my Hotmail address at John Strong. Okay, and or on Facebook, will a three B plus uh, fit in there? Uh, the back panel would probably have to be different because I think they've got the ports laid out a little differently. The bottom plate area on the pies has been pretty standard here. Okay, and so I have a three. I don't know which model of the three I have, and a two. So I've got some. Uh, I'm focusing on the four because it's the most powerful and it's one people are recommending to use with the Cocoa yeah. Pie at this time. Uh, it may be just a minor change uh, to support that. But this is the reason for having the back panels. So, uh, and so this is all, like I said, it's come as part of the side product of working on the full-size case. I Do have you know what, uh, what it weighs? Go ahead. Do you know what it weighs? Like uh, less than a pound or a pound? Well, with the stuff in it, no, I don't. If When I ship it in the shipping box, it weighs uh, like this. Okay. It weighs one pound, one and three-tenths ounces. So it's not very heavy. Yeah. Okay. But uh, if you look at my stuff, I, I usually try to over-engineer to keep them fairly pretty solid. Uh, 
you know, I don't want I don't want to be shipped and broke and, and stuff like that. Because I like to support my products. So Is it possible I, to get it made in uh, black? Uh yes. I do usually I do have black and I'm probably planning to make up one. Uh, you know, uh, black I usually have on hand. Okay. Uh, the other thing I'm doing at the uh, we do at the fest. I don't. This is kind of glaring. It see it here. Uh, it's actually a little cocoa shaped business card holder, and this is sort of my Kickstarter item. If you like what I'm doing, but if you're not interested, do it. If you want to support it, you can. Ten dollars or more donation. Okay, I'm going to have some of those at the fest because this has been a pretty expensive project, and uh, Currently, I'm out of work, and I'm not growling it there, but that's just kind of it. If I wasn't out of work, this project wouldn't happen. But being out of work, it's hard to fund the project. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of those catch-22s. How's your but, machine holding up with uh, making all these things? Uh, so far, it seems to be doing pretty good. Okay. Uh, I'm using one from Nanocubic, and I have... Uh, the Risen printer also, which is what a Photon S, which I did these on. And it seemed to be pretty well built. So when I went looking for a bigger printer, uh, you know, it came up on the list of possibilities. And uh, within the price range that we could actually afford at the time, the candidate I really wanted actually wasn't available because of pandemic reasons. It wasn't being built. And uh, I wanted a little bit bigger one than what I got so I could actually do something, maybe in integrate a multi-pack within one case. And uh, this is a 400 by 400, and it's not big enough to do, do that. Okay. So, okay. so do people who are interested in this, they can either go to the fest in, in two weeks and actually see it in person and get it from yeah. you there. And then you've also, if you email you at johnstrong at hotmail.com. Yes. And if you want details on the pricing and stuff here, that's on Facebook and on your website already or not quite yet? Yes. Or if you ask me, I'll give it. I just don't want to be like I'm selling. <laughs> okay. If, I'll go ahead, I guess, and say, it. you know, it's with the back panel, uh, it's 60. Uh, without the back panel, it's 50. With the Pi four adaptions, it's going to be like, uh, sixty-five dollars all total for okay. the case. So I just don't want to have the show go out too much longer. We're just about to hit six hours here, and some of us are getting hungry. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm trying to be quick about it. You know, it's uh, it's there. It, it's 3D printed. 3D printing products are not perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, one thing I noticed, and I was going to cover in the news, except now the show's gone long enough. I'm not going to cover the news till next week. But basically, there's several people who received these ready from you and are quite happy with them and putting up pictures on Facebook. So anybody's really interested in this product, you want to go check out the Facebook uh, Tier City Color Computer Group. And there's multiple photos from multiple people that have received these and really like them. Yeah. And I do have a website that I'm planning to get to. I've just been so busy making the case that I haven't put pictures up there. So if you don't do Facebook, you know, say toward the end of next, this coming week, you might check my at strongware.net and I may have some pictures up there. Okay. okay. Cool. Seriously, just a 400 by 400? <laughs> I'd kill for a printer that big. <laughs> 
well, seriously, you know, I was looking for 600 by 600, but uh, circumstances yeah, I, did not work out. I feel so yeah. inadequ- inadequate with my tw- 220 by 220. Right. Yeah, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting people ask, well, can we print these? Well, I just, well, most people are not going to be able to print it. Um, you know, it, this one is 304 by 230. Okay. Uh, I probably could have designed it for 300, to print on a 300 one, but I wasn't even thinking about, you know, smaller one because I have a 400 by 400. And basically, I scaled it to about 80% size of a cocoa uh, in, in the direction like this way. I did shorten it a little bit this way to try to, you know, okay, still keep the look, but minimize it, the amount of plastic. The If you haven't done 3D printing, especially haven't done large prints, the longer you, you go, the more likely something's going to go wrong. And so I'm trying to... Some people might be cheap, but economical because the less cost I put in this, the less it costs me when something goes wrong. And uh, I also mentioned too, uh, the, if you want the sticker, the Tandy sticker on the top, you order that from Cloud Nine, I believe. That's not something yeah, you, you ship currently, with. You can, yeah, you currently order those from Cloud Nine. Uh, I haven't get Mark. Mark did say he'd work with me on getting some if I ordered some quantity. Uh, we haven't done that at this time, so. I may do that just to help people so they don't have to order from two different people. But uh, Mark has them. And uh, in fact, he he kindly provided one for me for testing. So, yeah. So, so it, right. it's, in, cool. it's in there nice. Okay. And, okay. Uh, so, well, thanks for popping by with that, John. I know you were kind of ducking in and out there and I uh, had to wait for the rest of the show to get done first. So, Right. Well, wife decided one to eat, and I thought, okay, they're not going to get here. And uh, I, I can appreciate that myself right now. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> I do have one other thing I would like to make, make it quick, unless it's food. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be very long. Just back here. And just while he's doing that, I'll just mention our guest next week is Mark Siegel, of course, is one of the senior engineers at Tandy that was in, intimately involved with the Deluxe Color Computer. Involved with the MC10, involved with the unseen Coco Games machine, involved with the Coco 3, uh, involved with Datasoft before he joined Tandy. So there'll be a lot of questions and stuff for next week. So that's our guest next week. Is he going to have any pictures to share? I don't know. That'd be interesting if he had a rendering of the game machine. Yeah, I don't know how far that project got. Like, he's kind of just teased it to us, too. But, uh, yeah, we'll definitely be going to that. I expect that to be a long interview, too, just to warn everybody. I just wanted to go ahead and show you guys. I did this a long time ago. Uh, my proof of concept on the case. And so. Hmm. And uh, actually, the printer I, I printed this on failed, and I had to send it back. So. <laughs> yep. Rick Adams had some bad experiences working with a 3D printer lately too, so it's it's not for the faint-hearted. It's uh, yeah, it's gotten a lot better. You know, I've been able to do get this printer running up a lot, lot faster than I, I did my original ones. Okay, and so yeah, it's it's a big learning curve, and uh, there's always these patience. gotchas and that, and learning exactly what's doing that. That's one reason we talked about doing the other case. Is 
as some of you know, uh, Alan Hutton's kind of a cool conspirator in ideas with me sometimes. And uh, the 3D case is one of those was talking about, oh, we'd like to have one like you do the Raspberry Pi keyboard. Says, oh, yeah, okay. Well, you know, it'll cost X amount of probably to make a full size. Well, you know, what kind of price you're looking at? And it was like the price I quoted for, I expected for the full size case was a lot higher. So, well, I could do a separate case for that, you know, and I could use it as smaller as testing. And uh, so that's basically how this case came about is trying to get something less expensive because I'm expecting a full size case to have to charge $100 for it. Okay. Uh, at least just because yeah. the amount of plastic, amount of time and have to burn the power and all this kind of stuff. So, well, you, you'll you keep us posted on the full-size case once you get to testing it, right? Like, that's another product you're planning on, so. Yes, yes. And I may, I'm hoping, okay, to have, uh, to do another test print before the fest. Hopefully, it'll come out. Okay. And then people can check with you at your booth there at the fest, too, so. Yes. Anyway, uh, just uh, so people can get a chance to eat here, I'm going to cut the show at this point. But thanks for showing up, John. And thanks to all of our MC10 panelists guests, not all who could stay the entire show. Um, but, but thank you all for coming on and we're hoping to have some of you on in the new year for extended interviews on a whole bunch of your projects. Cause some of you have done so much stuff we couldn't possibly cover 20 to 25 minutes. So, uh, thanks everybody for uh, coming on the show. Thanks everybody in the chat. Thanks for everybody viewing out live and viewing this as a podcast after the fact. And we'll see you all next week for uh, Mark Siegel. And we'll skip the outro. Sure. <laughs> 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 All right. Goodbye, everybody. See you all next week. Bye. Bye.